Economic Thought Before Adam Smith An Austrian Perspective on the History of Economic Thought Volume 1 By Murray N. Rothbard Introduction As the subtitle declares, this work is an overall history of economic thought from a frankly Austrian standpoint that is, from the point of view of an adherent of the Austrian school of economics. This is the only such work by a modern Austrian. Indeed, only a few monographs in specialized areas of the history of thought have been published by Austrians in recent decades. Not only that, this perspective is grounded in what is currently the least fashionable, though not the least numerous, variant of the Austrian school the Misesian, or Praxeologic. But the Austrian nature of this work is scarcely its only singularity. When the present author first began studying economics in the 1940s, there was an overwhelmingly dominant paradigm in the approach to the history of economic thought, one that is still paramount, though not as baldly as in that era. Essentially, this paradigm features a few great men as the essence of the history of economic thought, with Adam Smith as the almost superhuman founder. But if Smith was the creator of both economic analysis and of the free trade, free market tradition in political economy, it would be petty and niggling to question seriously any aspect of his alleged achievement. Any sharp criticism of Smith as either economist or free-market advocate would seem only anachronistic, looking down upon the pioneering founder from the point of view of the superior knowledge of today, puny descendants unfairly bashing the giants on whose shoulders we stand. If Adam Smith created economics, much as Athena sprang full-grown and fully armed from the brow of Zeus, then his predecessors must be foils, little men, of no account. And so short shrift was given in these classic portrayals of economic thought to anyone unlucky enough to precede Smith. Generally they were grouped into two categories and brusquely dismissed. Immediately preceding Smith were the mercantilists, whom he strongly criticized. Mercantilists were apparently boobs, who kept urging people to accumulate money but not to spend it, or insisting that the balance of trade must balance with each country. Scholastics were dismissed even more rudely as moralistic medieval ignoramuses who kept warning that the just price must cover a merchant's cost of production plus a reasonable profit. The classic works in the history of thought of the 1930s and 1940s then proceeded to expound and largely to celebrate a few peak figures after Smith. Ricardo systematized Smith and dominated economics until the 1870s. Then the marginalists, Jevons, Menger, and Valras, marginally corrected Smith-Ricardo classical economics by stressing the importance of the marginal unit as compared to whole classes of goods. 
Then it was on to Alfred Marshall, who sagely integrated Ricardian cost theory with the supposedly one-sided Austrian-Javonian emphasis on demand and utility, to create modern neoclassical economics. Karl Marx could scarcely be ignored, and so he was treated in a chapter as an aberrant Ricardian. And so the historian could polish off his story by dealing with four or five great figures, each of whom, with the exception of Marx, contributed more building blocks toward the unbroken progress of economic science, essentially a story of ever onward and upward into the light. In the post-World War II years, Keynes, of course, was added to the Pantheon, providing a new culminating chapter in the progress and development of the science. Keynes, beloved student of the great Marshall, realized that the old man had left out what would later be called macroeconomics in his exclusive emphasis on the micro. And so Keynes added macro, concentrating on the study and explanation of unemployment, a phenomenon which everyone before Keynes had unaccountably left out of the economic picture, or had conveniently swept under the rug by blithely assuming full employment. Since then, the dominant paradigm has been largely sustained, although matters have recently become rather cloudy, for one thing, this kind of great man ever upward history requires occasional new final chapters. Keynes' general theory, published in 1936, is now almost sixty years old. Surely there must be a great man for a final chapter? But who? For a while, Schumpeter, with his modern and seemingly realistic stress on innovation, had a run. But this trend came a cropper, perhaps on the realization that Schumpeter's fundamental work, or vision, as he himself perceptively put it, was written more than two decades before the general theory. The years since the 1950s have been murky, and it is difficult to force a return to the once-forgotten Valra into the Procrustean bed of continual progress. My own view of the grave deficiency of the few great men approach has been greatly influenced by the work of two splendid historians of thought. One is my own dissertation mentor, Joseph Dorfman, whose unparalleled multi-volume work on the history of American economic thought demonstrated conclusively how important allegedly lesser figures are in any movement of ideas. In the first place, the stuff of history is left out by omitting these figures, and history is therefore falsified by selecting and worrying over a few scattered texts to constitute the history of thought. Second, a large number of the supposedly secondary figures contributed a great deal to the development of thought, in some ways more than the few peak thinkers. Hence, important features of economic thought get omitted, and the developed theory is made paltry and barren, as well as lifeless. Furthermore, the cut and thrust of history itself, 
the context of the ideas and movements, how people influenced each other, and how they reacted to and against one another, is necessarily left out of the few great men approach. This aspect of the historian's work was particularly brought home to me by Quentin Skinner's notable two-volume Foundations of Modern Political Thought, the significance of which could be appreciated without adopting Skinner's own behaviorist methodology. The continual progress, onward and upward approach was demolished for me, and should have been for everyone, by Thomas Kuhn's famed Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Kuhn paid no attention to economics, but instead, in the standard manner of philosophers and historians of science, focused on such ineluctably hard sciences as physics, chemistry, and astronomy. Bringing the word paradigm into intellectual discourse, Kuhn demolished what I like to call the Whig theory of the history of science. The Whig theory, subscribed to by almost all historians of science, including economics, is that scientific thought progresses patiently, one year after another developing, sifting, and testing theories so that science marches onward and upward each year, decade, or generation, learning more and possessing ever more correct scientific theories. On analogy with the Whig theory of history, coined in mid-nineteenth century England, which maintained that things are always getting, and therefore must get, better and better, the Whig historian of science, seemingly on firmer grounds than the regular Whig historian, implicitly or explicitly asserts that later is always better in any particular scientific discipline. The Whig historian, whether of science or of history proper, really maintains that for any point of historical time, whatever was, was right or at least better than whatever was earlier. The inevitable result is a complacent and infuriating Panglossian optimism. In the historiography of economic thought, the consequence is the firm, if implicit, position that every individual economist, or at least every school of economists, contributed their important might to the inexorable upward march. There can, then, be no such thing as gross systemic error that deeply flawed or even invalidated an entire school of economic thought, much less sent the world of economics permanently astray. Kuhn, however, shocked the philosophic world by demonstrating that this is simply not the way that science has developed. Once a central paradigm is selected, there is no testing or sifting, and tests of basic assumptions only take place after a series of failures and anomalies in the ruling paradigm has plunged the science into a crisis situation. One need not adopt Kuhn's nihilistic philosophic outlook, his implication that no one paradigm is or can be better than any other to realize that his less-than-starry-eyed view of science rings true, both as history and as sociology.
But if the standard romantic or panglossian view does not work, even in the hard sciences, a fortiori it must be totally off the mark in such a soft science as economics, in a discipline where there can be no laboratory testing, and where numerous, even softer disciplines, such as politics, religion, and ethics, necessarily impinge on one's economic outlook. There can, therefore, be no presumption whatever in economics that later thought is better than earlier, or even that all well-known economists have contributed their sturdy might to the developing discipline. For it becomes very likely that rather than everyone contributing to an ever-progressing edifice, economics can and has proceeded in contentious, even zigzag fashion, with later systemic fallacy sometimes elbowing aside earlier but sounder paradigms, thereby redirecting economic thought down a totally erroneous or even tragic path. The overall path of economics may be up or it may be down over any given time period. In recent years, economics, under the dominant influence of formalism, positivism, and econometrics, and preening itself on being a hard science, has displayed little interest in its own past. It has been intent, as in any real science, on the latest textbook or journal article, rather than on exploring its own history. After all, do contemporary physicists spend much time poring over 18th-century optics? In the last decade or two, however, the reigning Valrassian-Keynesian-Neoclassical-Formalist paradigm has been called ever more into question, and a veritable Kuhnian crisis situation has developed in various areas of economics, including worry over its methodology. Amidst this situation, the study of the history of thought has made a significant comeback, one which we hope and expect will expand in coming years. For if knowledge buried in paradigms lost can disappear and be forgotten over time, then studying older economists and schools of thought need not be done merely for antiquarian purposes, or to examine how intellectual life proceeded in the past. Earlier economists can be studied for their important contributions to forgotten and therefore new knowledge today. Valuable truths can be learned about the content of economics not only from the latest journals, but from the texts of long-deceased economic thinkers. But these are merely methodological generalizations. The concrete realization that important economic knowledge had been lost over time came to me from absorbing the great revision of the scholastics that developed in the 1950s and 1960s. The pioneering revision came dramatically in Schumpeter's great History of Economic Analysis and was developed in the works of Raymond de Rouvet, Marjorie Grice Hutchinson, and John T. Noonan. It turns out that the scholastics were not simply medieval, but began in the 13th century and expanded and flourished through the 16th and into the 17th century. 
Far from being cost-of-production moralists, the scholastics believed that the just price was whatever price was established on the common estimate of the free market. Not only that, far from being naive labor or cost-of-production value theorists, the scholastics may be considered proto-Austrians, with a sophisticated subjective utility theory of value and price. Furthermore, some of the scholastics were far superior to current formalist microeconomics in developing a proto-Austrian dynamic theory of entrepreneurship. Moreover, in macro, the scholastics, beginning with Bourdon and culminating in the 16th century Spanish scholastics, worked out an Austrian rather than monetarist supply and demand theory of money and prices, including interregional money flows and even a purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates. It seems to be no accident that this dramatic revision of our knowledge of the scholastics was brought to American economists, not generally esteemed for their depth of knowledge of Latin, by European-trained economists steeped in Latin, the language in which the scholastics wrote. This simple point emphasizes another reason for loss of knowledge in the modern world— the insularity in one's own language, particularly severe in the English-speaking countries, that has, since the Reformation, ruptured the once Europe-wide community of scholars. One reason why continental economic thought has often exerted minimal or at least delayed influence in England and the United States is simply because these works had not been translated into English. For me, the impact of scholastic revisionism was complemented and strengthened by the work during the same decades of the German-born Austrian historian Emil Kauter. Kauter revealed that the dominant economic thought in France and Italy during the 17th and especially the 18th centuries was also proto-Austrian, emphasizing subjective utility and relative scarcity as the determinants of value. From this groundwork, Cowder proceeded to a startling insight into the role of Adam Smith that, however, follows directly from his own work and that of the scholastic revisionists. That Smith, far from being the founder of economics, was virtually the reverse— on the contrary, Smith actually took the sound and almost fully developed proto-Austrian subjective value tradition and tragically shunted economics onto a false path, a dead end from which the Austrians had to rescue economics a century later. Instead of subjective value, entrepreneurship and emphasis on real market pricing and market activity, Smith dropped all this and replaced it with a labor theory of value and a dominant focus on the unchanging, long-run, natural-price equilibrium, a world where entrepreneurship was assumed out of existence. Under Ricardo, this unfortunate shift in focus was intensified and systematized. If Smith was not the creator of economic theory, neither was he the founder of laissez-faire in political economy. 
Not only were the scholastics analysts of and believers in the free market and critics of government intervention, but the French and Italian economists of the 18th century were even more laissez-faire oriented than Smith, who introduced numerous waffles and qualifications into what had been, in the hands of Turgot and others, an almost pure championing of laissez-faire. It turns out that rather than someone who should be venerated as creator of modern economics or of laissez-faire, Smith was closer to the picture portrayed by Paul Douglas in the 1926 Chicago commemoration of the Wealth of Nations, a necessary precursor of Karl Marx. Emil Cowder's contribution was not limited to his portrayal of Adam Smith as the destroyer of a previously sound tradition of economic theory, as the founder of an enormous zag in a Kuhnian picture of a zigzag history of economic thought. Also fascinating, if more speculative, was Cowder's estimate of the essential cause of a curious asymmetry in the course of economic thought in different countries. Why is it, for example, that the subjective utility tradition flourished on the continent, especially in France and Italy, and then revived particularly in Austria, whereas the labor and cost of production theories developed especially in Great Britain. Cowder attributed the difference to the profound influence of religion. The scholastics, and then France, Italy, and Austria, were Catholic countries, and Catholicism emphasized consumption as the goal of production, and consumer utility and enjoyment as, at least in moderation, valuable activities and goals. The British tradition, on the contrary, beginning with Smith himself, was Calvinist, and reflected the Calvinist emphasis on hard work and labor toil as not only good, but a great good in itself, whereas consumer enjoyment is at best a necessary evil, a mere requisite to continuing labor and production. On reading Cowder, I considered this view a challenging insight, but essentially an unproven speculation. However, as I continued studying economic thought and embarked on writing these volumes, I concluded that Cowder was being confirmed many times over. Even though Smith was a moderate Calvinist, he was a staunch one nevertheless, and I came to the conclusion that the Calvinist emphasis could account, for example, for Smith's otherwise puzzling championing of usury laws, as well as his shift in emphasis from the capricious, luxury-loving consumer as the determinant of value, to the virtuous laborer embedding his hours of toil into the value of his material product. But if Smith could be accounted for by Calvinism, what of the Spanish-Portuguese Jew-turned-Quaker David Ricardo, surely no Calvinist? Here it seems to me that recent research into the dominant role of James Mill as mentor of Ricardo and major founder of the Ricardian system comes strongly into play. For Mill was a Scotsman, ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and steeped in Calvinism. 
The fact that, later in life, Mill moved to London and became an agnostic had no effect on the Calvinist nature of Mill's basic attitudes toward life and the world. Mill's enormous evangelical energy, his crusading for social betterment, and his devotion to labor toil, as well as the cognate Calvinist virtue of thrift, reflected his lifelong Calvinist world outlook. John Stuart Mill's resurrection of Ricardianism may be interpreted as his filiopietist devotion to the memory of his dominant father, and Alfred Marshall's trivialization of Austrian insights into his own neo-Ricardian schema also came from a highly moralistic and evangelical neo-Calvinist. Conversely, it is no accident that the Austrian school, the major challenge to the Smith-Ricardo vision, arose in a country that was not only solidly Catholic, but whose values and attitudes were still heavily influenced by Aristotelian and Thomist thought. The German precursors of the Austrian school flourished not in Protestant and anti-Catholic Prussia, but in those German states that were either Catholic or were politically allied to Austria, rather than Prussia. The result of these researches was my growing conviction that leaving out religious outlook, as well as social and political philosophy, would disastrously skew any picture of the history of economic thought. This is fairly obvious for the centuries before the 19th, but it is true for that century as well, even as the technical apparatus takes on more of a life of its own. In consequence of these insights, these volumes are very different from the norm, and not just in presenting an Austrian rather than a neoclassical or institutionalist perspective. The entire work is much longer than most, since it insists on bringing in all the lesser figures and their interactions, as well as emphasizing the importance of their religious and social philosophies, as well as their narrower, strictly economic views. But I would hope that the length and inclusion of other elements does not make this work less readable. On the contrary, history necessarily means narrative discussion of real persons as well as their abstract theories, and includes triumphs, tragedies, and conflicts, conflicts which are often moral as well as purely theoretical. Hence I hope that for the reader the unwanted length will be offset by the inclusion of far more human drama than is usually offered in histories of economic thought. Murray N. Rothbard Las Vegas, Nevada. Acknowledgements. These volumes were directly inspired by Mark Skousen of Rollins College, Florida, who urged me to write a history of economic thought from an Austrian perspective. In addition to providing the spark, Skousen persuaded the Institute for Political Economy to support my research during its first academic year. Mark first envisioned the work as a standard Smith-to-the-present moderately-sized book, a sort of contra Heilbrunner. After pondering the problem, however, I told him that I would have to begin with Aristotle, since Smith was a sharp decline from many of his predecessors. Neither of us realized then the scope or length of the ensuing research.
It is impossible to list all the persons from whom I have learned in a lifetime of instruction and discussion in the history of economics and all its cognate disciplines. Here I shall have to slight most of them and single out a few. The dedication acknowledges my immense debt to Ludwig von Mises for providing a mighty edifice of economic theory, as well as for his teaching, his friendship, and for the inspiring example of his life, and to Joseph Dorfman for his path-breaking work in the history of economic thought, his stress on the importance of the stuff of history as well as of the theories themselves, and his painstaking instruction in historical method. I owe a great debt to Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jr. for creating and organizing the Ludwig von Mises Institute, establishing it at Auburn University, and building it, in merely a decade, into a flourishing and productive center for advancing and instructing people in Austrian economics. Not the least service to me of the Mises Institute was attracting a network of scholars from whom I could learn. Here again I must single out Joseph T. Salerno of Pace University, who has done remarkably creative work in the history of economic thought, and that extraordinary polymath and scholar's scholar David Gordon of the Mises Institute, whose substantial output in philosophy, economics, and intellectual history embodies only a small fraction of his erudition in these and many other fields. Also, thanks to Gary North, head of the Institute for Christian Economics in Tyler, Texas, for leads into the extensive bibliography on Marx and on socialism generally, and for instructing me in the mysteries of varieties of millennialism, A, pre, and post. None of these people, of course, should be implicated in any of the errors herein. Most of my research was conducted with the aid of the superb resources of Columbia and Stanford University libraries, as well as the library at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, supplemented by my own book collection accumulated over the years. Since I am one of the few scholars remaining who stubbornly cleave to low-tech typewriters rather than adopt word processors' computers, I have been dependent on the services of a number of typists, word processors, among whom I would particularly mention Janet Banker and Donna Evans of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Chapter 1. The First Philosopher Economists, the Greeks It all began, as usual, with the Greeks. The ancient Greeks were the first civilized people to use their reason to think systematically about the world around them. The Greeks were the first philosophers, philo-sophia, lovers of wisdom, the first people to think deeply and to figure out how to attain and verify knowledge about the world. Other tribes and peoples had tended to attribute natural events to arbitrary whims of the gods. A violent thunderstorm, for example, might be ascribed to something that had irritated the god of thunder. The way to bring on rain, then, or to curb violent thunderstorms, would be to find out what acts of man would please the god of rain, or appease the thunder god. 
Such people would have considered it foolish to try to figure out the natural causes of rain or of thunder. Instead, the thing to do was to find out what the relevant gods wanted, and then try to supply their needs. The Greeks, in contrast, were eager to use their reason, their sense observations, and their command of logic to investigate and learn about their world. In so doing, they gradually stopped worrying about the whims of the gods and to investigate actual entities around them. Led in particular by the great Athenian philosopher Aristotle, 384-322 B.C., a magnificent and creative systematizer known to later ages as the philosopher, the Greeks evolved a theory and a method of reasoning and of science which later came to be called the natural law. 1. The Natural Law Natural law rests on the crucial insight that to be necessarily means to be something, that is, some particular thing or entity. There is no being in the abstract. Everything that is, is some particular thing, whether it be a stone, a cat, or a tree. By empirical fact, there is more than one kind of thing in the universe. In fact, there are thousands, if not millions, of kinds of things. Each thing has its own particular set of properties or attributes, its own nature, which distinguishes it from other kinds of things. A stone, a cat, an elm tree, each has its own particular nature, which man can discover, study, and identify. Man studies the world, then, by examining entities, identifying similar kinds of things, and classifying them into categories, each with its own properties and nature. If we see a cat walking down the street, we can immediately include it into a set of things, or animals, called cats, whose nature we have already discovered and analyzed. If we can discover and learn about the natures of entities X and Y, then we can discover what happens when these two entities interact. Suppose, for example, that when a certain amount of X interacts with a given amount of Y, we get a certain quantity of another thing, Z. We can then say that the effect, Z, has been caused by the interaction of X and Y. Thus chemists may discover that when two molecules of hydrogen interact with one molecule of oxygen, the result is one molecule of a new entity, water. All these entities, hydrogen, oxygen, and water, have specific discoverable properties or natures which can be identified. We see, then, that the concepts of cause and effect are part and parcel of natural law analysis. Events in the world can be traced back to the interactions of specific entities. Since natures are given and identifiable, the interactions of the various entities will be replicable under the same conditions. The same causes will always yield the same effects. 
For the Aristotelian philosophers, logic was not a separate and isolated discipline, but an integral part of the natural law. Thus, the basic process of identifying entities led, in classical or Aristotelian logic, to the law of identity. A thing is and cannot be anything other than what it is. A is A. It follows, then, that an entity cannot be the negation of itself. Or, put another way, we have the law of non-contradiction. A thing cannot be both A and non-A. A is not and cannot be non-A. Finally, in our world of numerous kinds of entities, anything must be either A or it won't be. In short, it will either be A or non-A. Nothing can be both. This gives us the third well-known law of classical logic, the law of the excluded middle. Everything in the universe is either A or non-A. But if every entity in the universe, if hydrogen, oxygen, stone, or cats, can be identified, classified, and its nature examined, then so too can man. Human beings must also have a specific nature with specific properties that can be studied, and from which we can obtain knowledge. Human beings are unique in the universe because they can and do study themselves as well as the world around them, and try to figure out what goals they should pursue and what means they can employ to achieve them. The concept of good, and therefore of bad, is only relevant to living entities. Since stones or molecules have no goals or purposes, any idea of what might be good for a molecule or stone would properly be considered bizarre. But what might be good for an elm tree or a dog makes a great deal of sense. Specifically, the good is whatever conduces to the life and the flourishing of the living entity. The bad is whatever injures such an entity's life or prosperity. Thus it is possible to develop an elm-tree ethics by discovering the best conditions—soil, sunshine, climate, etc.—for the growth and sustenance of elm-trees, and by trying to avoid conditions deemed bad for elm-trees, elm blight, excessive drought, etc., a similar set of ethical properties can be worked out for various breeds of animals. Thus, natural law sees ethics as living entity or species relative. What is good for cabbages will differ from what is good for rabbits, which in turn will differ from what is good or bad for man. The ethic for each species will differ according to their respective natures. Man is the only species which can, and indeed must, carve out an ethic for himself. Plants lack consciousness, and therefore cannot choose or act. The consciousness of animals is narrowly perceptual and lacks the conceptual, the ability to frame concepts and to act upon them. 
Man, in the famous Aristotelian phrase, is uniquely the rational animal, the species that uses reason to adopt values and ethical principles, and that acts to attain these ends. Man acts, that is, he adopts values and purposes, and chooses the ways to achieve them. Man, therefore, in seeking goals and ways to attain them, must discover and work within the framework of the natural law, the properties of himself and of other entities, and the ways in which they may interact. Western civilization is in many ways Greek and the two great philosophic traditions of ancient Greece which have been shaping the Western mind ever since have been those of Aristotle and his great teacher and antagonist, Plato, 428-347 B.C. It has been said that every man deep down is either a Platonist or an Aristotelian, and the divisions run throughout their thought. Plato pioneered the natural law approach, which Aristotle developed and systematized. But the basic thrust was quite different. For Aristotle and his followers, man's existence, like that of all other creatures, is contingent. That is, it is not necessary and eternal. Only God's existence is necessary and transcends time. The contingency of man's existence is simply an unalterable part of the natural order, and must be accepted as such. To the Platonists, however, especially as elaborated by Plato's follower, the Egyptian Plotinus, 204-270 A.D., these inevitable limitations of man's natural state were intolerable, and must be transcended. To the Platonists, the actual, concrete, temporal, factual existence of man was too limited. Instead, this existence, which is all that any of us has ever seen, is a fall from grace, a fall from the original, non-existent, ideal, perfect, eternal being of man, a godlike being, perfect and therefore without limits. In a bizarre twist of language, this perfect and never-existent being was held up by the Platonists as the truly existent, the true essence of man, from which we have all been alienated or cut off. The nature of man and of all other entities in the world is to be something and to exist in time. But in the semantic twist of the Platonists, the truly existent man is to be eternal, to live outside of time, and to have no limits. Man's condition on earth is therefore supposed to be a state of degradation and alienation, and his purpose is supposed to be to work his way back to the true, limitless, and perfect self alleged to be his original state alleged, of course, on the basis of no evidence whatever. Indeed, evidence itself identifies, limits, and, therefore, to the Platonic mind, corrupts. Plato's and Plotinus's views of man's allegedly alienated state were highly influential, as we shall see, in the writings of Karl Marx and his followers. 
Another Greek philosopher, emphatically different from the Aristotelian tradition, who prefigured Hegel and Marx, was the early pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus of Ephesus, circa 535 to 475 B.C. He was pre-Socratic in the sense of predating Plato's great teacher, Socrates, 470 to 399 B.C., who wrote nothing but has come down to us as interpreted by Plato and by several other followers. Heraclitus, who was aptly given the title The Obscure by the Greeks, taught that sometimes opposites, A and non-A, can be identical, or, in other words, that A can be non-A. This defiance of elemental logic can perhaps be excused in someone like Heraclitus, who wrote before Aristotle developed classical logic, but it is hard to be so forbearing to his later followers. 2. THE POLITICS OF THE POLIS When man turns the use of his reason from the inanimate world to man himself and to social organization, it becomes difficult for pure reason to avoid giving way to the biases and prejudices of the political framework of the age. This was all too true of the Greeks, including the Socratics, Plato and Aristotle. Greek life was organized in small city-states, the polis, some of which were able to carve out overseas empires. The largest city-state, Athens, covered an area of only about 1,000 square miles, or half the size of modern Delaware. The key facet of Greek political life was that the city-state was run by a tight oligarchy of privileged citizens, most of whom were large landowners. Most of the population of the city-state were slaves or resident foreigners, who generally performed the manual labor and commercial enterprise, respectively. The privilege of citizenship was reserved to descendants of citizens. While Greek city-states fluctuated between outright tyrannies and democracies, at its most democratic, Athens, for example, reserved the privileges of democratic rule to 7% of the population, the rest of whom were either slaves or resident aliens. Thus, in Athens of the 5th century B.C., there were approximately 30,000 citizens out of a total population of 400,000. As privileged landowners living off taxes and the product of slaves, Athenian citizens had the leisure for voting, discussion, the arts, and, in the case of the particularly intelligent, philosophizing. Although the philosopher Socrates was himself the son of a stonemason, his political views were ultra-elitist. In the year 404 B.C., the despotic state of Sparta conquered Athens and established a reign of terror known as the Rule of the Thirty Tyrants. When the Athenians overthrew this short-lived rule a year later, the restored democracy executed the aged Socrates, largely on suspicion of sympathy with the Spartan cause. 
This experience confirmed Socrates' brilliant young disciple, Plato, the scion of a noble Athenian family, in what would now be called an ultra-right devotion to aristocratic and despotic rule. A decade later, Plato set up his academy on the outskirts of Athens as a think tank, not only of abstract philosophic teaching and research, but also as a fountainhead of policy programs for social despotism. He himself tried three times unsuccessfully to set up despotic regimes in the city-state of Syracuse, while no less than nine of Plato's students succeeded in establishing themselves as tyrants over Greek city-states. While Aristotle was politically more moderate than Plato, his aristocratic devotion to the polis was fully as evident. Aristotle was born of an aristocratic family in the Macedonian coastal town of Stagira, and entered Plato's academy as a student at the age of seventeen in 367 B.C. There he remained until Plato's death twenty years later, after which he left Athens and eventually returned to Macedonia, where he joined the court of King Philip and tutored the young future world conqueror Alexander the Great. After Alexander ascended the throne, Aristotle returned to Athens in 335 B.C. and established his own school of philosophy at the Lyceum, from which his great works have come down to us as lecture notes written by himself or transcribed by his students. When Alexander died in 323 B.C., the Athenians felt free to vent their anger at Macedonians and their sympathizers, and Aristotle was ousted from the city, dying shortly thereafter. Their aristocratic bent and their lives within the matrix of an oligarchic polis had a greater impact on the thought of the Socratics than Plato's various excursions into theoretical right-wing collectivist utopias, or, in his students, practical attempts at establishing tyranny. For the social status and political bent of the Socratics colored their ethical and political philosophies and their economic views. Thus, for both Plato and Aristotle, the good for man was not something to be pursued by the individual, and neither was the individual a person with rights that were not to be abridged or invaded by his fellows. For Plato and Aristotle, the good was naturally not to be pursued by the individual, but by the polis. Virtue and the good life were polis rather than individual-oriented. All this means that Plato's and Aristotle's thought was statist and elitist to the core, a statism which unfortunately permeated classical, Greek and Roman, philosophy, as well as heavily influencing Christian and medieval thought. Classical natural law philosophy therefore never arrived at the later elaboration, first in the Middle Ages and then in the 17th and 18th centuries, of the natural rights of the individual, which may not be invaded by man or by government. In the more strictly economic realm, the statism of the Greeks means the usual aristocratic exaltation of the alleged virtues of the military arts, 
and of agriculture, as well as a pervasive contempt for labor and for trade, and, consequently, of money-making and the seeking and earning of profit. Thus Socrates, openly despising labor as unhealthy and vulgar, quotes the king of Persia to the effect that by far the noblest arts are agriculture and war. And Aristotle wrote that no good citizens should be permitted to exercise any low mechanical employment or traffic, as being ignoble and destructive to virtue. Furthermore, the Greek elevation of the polis over the individual led to their taking a dim view of economic innovation and entrepreneurship. The entrepreneur, the dynamic innovator, is, after all, the locus of individual ego and creativity, and is therefore the harbinger of often disturbing social change, as well as economic growth. But the Greek and Socratic ethical ideal for the individual was not an unfolding and flowering of inner possibilities, but rather a public, political creature, molded to conform to the demands of the polis. That kind of social ideal was designed to promote a frozen society of politically determined status, and certainly not a society of creative and dynamic individuals and innovators. 3. The First Economist Hesiod and the Problem of Scarcity No one should be misled into thinking that the ancient Greeks were economists in the modern sense. In the course of pioneering in philosophy, their philosophizing on man and his world yielded fragments of politico-economic, or even strictly economic, thoughts and insights. But there were no modern-style treatises on economics per se. It is true that the term economics is Greek, stemming from the Greek oikonomia, but oikonomia means not economics in our sense, but household management, and treatises on economics would discuss what might be called the technology of household management, useful, perhaps, but certainly not what we would regard today as economics. There is, furthermore, a danger, unfortunately not avoided by many able historians of economic thought, of eagerly reading into fragments of ancient sages the knowledge gained by modern economics. While we surely should not overlook any giants of the past, we must also avoid any presentist seizing upon a few obscure sentences to hail alleged but non-existent forerunners of sophisticated modern concepts. The honor of being the first Greek economic thinker goes to the poet Hesiod, a Boeotian who lived in the very early ancient Greece of the middle of the 8th century B.C. Hesiod lived in the small, self-sufficient agricultural community of Ascra, which he himself refers to as a sorry place, bad in winter, hard in summer, never good. He was therefore naturally attuned to the eternal problem of scarcity, of the niggardliness of resources as contrasted to the sweep of man's goals and desires. 
Hesiod's great poem, Works and Days, consisted of hundreds of verses designed for solo recitation with musical accompaniment. But Hesiod was a didactic poet rather than a mere entertainer, and he often broke out of his storyline to educate his public in traditional wisdom or in explicit rules for human conduct. Of the 828 verses in the poem, the first 383 centered on the fundamental economic problem of scarce resources for the pursuit of numerous and abundant human ends and desires. Hesiod adopts the common religious or tribal myth of the Golden Age, of man's alleged initial state on earth as an Eden, a paradise of limitless abundance. In this original Eden, of course, there was no economic problem, no problem of scarcity, because all of men's wants were instantaneously fulfilled. But now all is different and men never rest from labor and sorrow by day and from perishing by night. The reason for this low state is an all-encompassing scarcity, the result of man's ejection from paradise. Because of scarcity, notes Hesiod, labor, materials, and time have to be allocated efficiently. Scarcity, moreover, can only be partially overcome by an energetic application of labor and of capital. In particular, labor, work, is crucial, and Hesiod analyzes the vital factors which may induce man to abandon the godlike state of leisure. The first of these forces is, of course, basic material need. But, happily, need is reinforced by a social disapproval of sloth, and by the desire to emulate the consumption standards of one's fellows. To Hesiod, emulation leads to the healthy development of a spirit of competition, which he calls good conflict, a vital force in relieving the basic problem of scarcity. To keep competition just and harmonious, Hesiod vigorously excludes such unjust methods of acquiring wealth as robbery, and advocates a rule of law and a respect for justice to establish order and harmony within society, and to allow competition to develop within a matrix of harmony and justice. It should already be clear that Hesiod had a far more sanguine view of economic growth, of labor, and of vigorous competition than did the far more philosophically sophisticated Plato and Aristotle three and a half centuries later. 4. The Pre-Socratics Man is prone to error, and even folly and therefore a history of economic thought cannot confine itself to the growth and development of economic truths. It must also treat influential error, that is, error that unfortunately influenced later developments in the discipline. One such thinker is the Greek philosopher Pythagoras of Samos, circa 582 to circa 507 B.C., who, two centuries after Hesiod, developed a school of thought which held that the only significant reality is number. The world not only is number, but each number even embodies moral qualities and other abstractions. 
Thus, justice to Pythagoras and his followers is the number four, and other numbers consisted of various moral qualities. While Pythagoras undoubtedly contributed to the development of Greek mathematics, his number mysticism could well have been characterized by the twentieth-century Harvard sociologist Peterim A. Sorokin as a seminal example of quantophrenia and metromania. It is scarcely an exaggeration to see in Pythagoras the embryo of the burgeoning and overweeningly arrogant mathematical economics and econometrics of the present day. Pythagoras thus contributed a sterile dead end to philosophy and economic thought, one that later influenced Aristotle's pawky and fallacious attempts to develop a mathematics of justice and of economic exchange. The next important positive development was contributed by the pre-Socratic, actually contemporary of Socrates, Democritus, circa 460 to circa 370 B.C. This influential scholar from Abdera was the founder of atomism in cosmology, that is, the view that the underlying structure of reality consists of interacting atoms. Democritus contributed two important strands of thought to the development of economics. First, he was the founder of subjective value theory. Moral values, ethics, were absolute, Democritus taught, but economic values were necessarily subjective. The same thing, Democritus writes, may be good and true for all men, but the pleasant differs from one and another. Not only was valuation subjective, but Democritus also saw that the usefulness of a good will fall to nothing and become negative if its supply becomes superabundant. Democritus also pointed out that if people restrained their demands and curbed their desires, what they now possess would make them seem relatively wealthy rather than impoverished. Here again, the relative nature of the subjective utility of wealth is recognized. In addition, Democritus was the first to arrive at a rudimentary notion of time preference, the Austrian insight that people prefer a good at present to the prospect of the good arriving in the future. As Democritus explains, it is not sure whether the young man will ever attain old age. Hence, the good on hand is superior to the one still to come. In addition to the adumbration of subjective utility theory, Democritus's other major contribution to economics was his pioneering defense of a system of private property. In contrast to Oriental despotisms, in which all property was owned or controlled by the emperor and his subordinate bureaucracy, Greece rested on a society and economy of private property. Democritus, having seen the contrast between the private property economy of Athens and the oligarchic collectivism of Sparta, concluded that private property is a superior form of economic organization. 
In contrast to communally owned property, private property provides an incentive for toil and diligence, since income from communally held property gives less pleasure and the expenditure less pain. Toil, the philosopher concluded, is sweeter than idleness when men gain what they toil for or know that they will use it. 5. Plato's Right-Wing Collectivist Utopia Plato's search for a hierarchical collectivist utopia found its classic expression in his most famous and influential work, The Republic. There, and later in The Laws, Plato sets forth the outline of his ideal city-state, one in which right oligarchic rule is maintained by philosopher kings and their philosophic colleagues, thus supposedly ensuring rule by the best and wisest in the community. Underneath the philosophers in the coercive hierarchy are the guardians, the soldiers, whose role is to aggress against other cities and lands, and to defend their polis from external aggression. Underneath them are to be the body of the people, the despised producers, laborers, peasants, and merchants, who produce the material goods on which the lordly philosophers and guardians are to live. These three broad classes are supposed to reflect a shaky and pernicious leap, if there ever was one, the proper rule over the soul in each human being. To Plato, each human being is divided into three parts, one that craves, one that fights, and one that thinks and the proper hierarchy of rule within each soul is supposed to be reason first, fighting next, and finally, and the lowest, grubby desire. The two ruling classes, the thinkers and the guardians that really count, are, in Plato's ideal state, to be forced to live under pure communism. There is to be no private property whatsoever among the elite. All things are to be owned communally, including women and children. The elite are to be forced to live together and share common meals. Since money and private possessions, according to the aristocrat Plato, only corrupt virtue, they are to be denied to the upper classes. Marriage partners among the elite are to be selected strictly by the state, which is supposed to proceed according to the scientific breeding already known in animal husbandry. If any of the philosophers or guardians find themselves unhappy about this arrangement, they will have to learn that their personal happiness means nothing compared to the happiness of the polis as a whole. A rather murky concept at best. In fact, those who are not seduced by Plato's theory of the essential reality of ideas will not believe that there is such a real living entity as a polis. Instead, the city-state or community consists only of living, choosing individuals. To keep the elite and the subject masses in line, Plato instructs the philosopher-rulers to spread the noble lie that they themselves are descended from the gods, whereas the other classes are of inferior heritage. 
freedom of speech or of inquiry was, as one might expect, anathema to Plato. The arts are frowned on, and the life of the citizens was to be policed to suppress any dangerous thoughts or ideas that might come to the surface. Remarkably, in the very course of setting forth his classic apologia for totalitarianism, Plato contributed to genuine economic science by being the first to expound and analyze the importance of the division of labor in society. Since his social philosophy was founded on a necessary separation between classes, Plato went on to demonstrate that such specialization is grounded in basic human nature, in particular its diversity and inequality. Plato has Socrates say in the Republic that specialization arises because we are not all alike. There are many diversities of natures among us which are adapted to different occupations. Since men produce different things, the goods are naturally traded for each other, so that specialization necessarily gives rise to exchange. Plato also points out that this division of labor increases the production of all the goods. Plato saw no problem, however, in morally ranking the various occupations, with philosophy, of course, ranking highest, and labor or trade being sordid and ignoble. The use of gold and silver as money greatly accelerated with the invention of coinage in Lydia in the early 7th century B.C., and coined money quickly spread to Greece. In keeping with his distaste for money-making, trade, and private property, Plato was perhaps the first theorist to denounce the use of gold and silver as money. He also disliked gold and silver precisely because they served as international currencies accepted by all peoples. Since these precious metals are universally accepted and exist apart from the imprimatur of government, Gold and silver constitute a potential threat to economic and moral regulation of the polis by the rulers. Plato called for a government fiat currency, heavy fines on the importation of gold from outside the city-state, and the exclusion from citizenship of all traders and workers who deal with money. One of the hallmarks of an ordered utopia sought by Plato is that to remain ordered and controlled, it must be kept relatively static. And that means little or no change, innovation, or economic growth. Plato anticipated some present-day intellectuals in frowning on economic growth, and for similar reasons. Notably, fear of collapse of the domination of the state by the ruling elite. Particularly difficult in trying to freeze a static society is the problem of population growth. Quite consistently, therefore, Plato called for freezing the size of the population of the city-state, keeping the number of its citizens limited to 5,000 agricultural landlord families. 6. Xenophon on Household Management A disciple and contemporary of Plato was the Athenian landed aristocrat and army general Xenophon, 
430-354 B.C. Xenophon's economic writings were scattered throughout such works as An Account of the Education of a Persian Prince, a treatise on how to increase government revenue, and a book on economics in the sense of Thoughts on the Technology of Household and Farm Management. Most of Xenophon's adumbrations were the usual Hellenic scorn for labor and trade, and admiration for agriculture and the military arts, coupled with a call for a massive increase in government operations and interventions in the economy. These included improving the port of Athens, building markets and inns, establishing a governmental merchant fleet, and greatly expanding the number of government-owned slaves. Interspersed in this role of commonplace bromides, however, were some interesting insights into economic matters. In the course of his treatise on household management, Xenophon pointed out that wealth should be defined as a resource that a person can use and knows how to use. In this way, something that an owner has neither the ability nor the knowledge to use cannot really constitute part of his wealth. Another insight was Xenophon's anticipation of Adam Smith's famous dictum that the extent of the division of labor in society is necessarily limited by the extent of the market for the products. Thus, in an important addition to Plato's insights on the division of labor, written twenty years after the Republic, Xenophon says that, in small towns, the same workman makes chairs and doors and plows and tables, and often the same artisan builds houses. Whereas in the large cities, many people have demands to make upon each branch of industry, and therefore one trade alone, and very often even less than a whole trade, is enough to support a man. In large cities, we find one man making men's boots only, and another women's only. One man lives by cutting out garments, another by fitting together the pieces. Elsewhere, Xenophon outlines the important concept of general equilibrium as a dynamic tendency of the market economy. Thus, he states that when there are too many coppersmiths, copper becomes cheap, and the smiths go bankrupt and turn to other activities, as would happen in agriculture or any other industry. He also sees clearly that an increase in the supply of a commodity causes a fall in its price. 7. Aristotle, Private Property and Money the views of the great philosopher Aristotle are particularly important because the entire structure of his thought had an enormous and even dominant influence on the economic and social thought of the high and late Middle Ages, which considered itself Aristotelian. Although Aristotle in the Greek tradition scorned money-making and was scarcely a partisan of laissez-faire, he set forth a trenchant argument in favor of private property. Perhaps influenced by the private property arguments of Democritus, Aristotle delivered a cogent attack on the communism of the ruling class called for by Plato. 
He denounced Plato's goal of the perfect unity of the state through communism by pointing out that such extreme unity runs against the diversity of mankind, and against the reciprocal advantage that everyone reaps through market exchange. Aristotle then delivered a point-by-point contrast of private as against communal property. First, private property is more highly productive and will therefore lead to progress. Goods owned in common by a large number of people will receive little attention, since people will mainly consult their own self-interest and will neglect all duty they can fob off onto others. In contrast, people will devote the greatest interest and care to their own property. Second, one of Plato's arguments for communal property is that it is conducive to social peace, since no one will be envious of or try to grab the property of another. Aristotle retorted that communal property would lead to continuing and intense conflict, since each will complain that he has worked harder and obtained less than others who have done little and taken more from the common store. Furthermore, not all crimes or revolutions, declared Aristotle, are powered by economic motives. As Aristotle trenchantly put it, men do not become tyrants in order that they may not suffer cold. Third, private property is clearly implanted in man's nature. His love of self, of money, and of property are tied together in a natural love of exclusive ownership. Fourth, Aristotle, a great observer of past and present, pointed out that private property had existed always and everywhere. To impose communal property on society would be to disregard the record of human experience, and to leap into the new and untried. Abolishing private property would probably create more problems than it would solve. Finally, Aristotle wove together his economic and moral theories by providing the brilliant insight that only private property furnishes people with the opportunity to act morally, for example, to practice the virtues of benevolence and philanthropy. The compulsion of communal property would destroy that opportunity. While Aristotle was critical of money-making, he still opposed any limitation, such as Plato had advocated, on an individual's accumulation of private property. Instead, education should teach people voluntarily to curb their rampant desires, and thus lead them to limit their own accumulations of wealth. Despite his cogent defense of private property and opposition to coerced limits on wealth, the aristocrat Aristotle was fully as scornful of labor and trade as his predecessors. Unfortunately, Aristotle stored up trouble for later centuries by coining a fallacious, proto-Galbraithian distinction between natural needs, which should be satisfied, and unnatural wants, which are limitless and should be abandoned. There is no plausible argument to show why, as Aristotle believes, the desires filled by subsistence labor or barter are natural, 
whereas those satisfied by far more productive money exchanges are artificial, unnatural, and therefore reprehensible. Exchanges for monetary gain are simply denounced as immoral and unnatural, specifically such activities as retail trade, commerce, transportation, and the hiring of labor. Aristotle had a particular animus toward retail trade, which of course directly serves the consumer, and which he would have liked to eliminate completely. Aristotle is scarcely consistent in his economic lucubrations. For although monetary exchange is condemned as immoral and unnatural, he also praises such a network of exchanges as holding the city together through mutual and reciprocal give and take. The confusion in Aristotle's thought between the analytic and the moral is also shown in his discussion of money. On the one hand, he sees that the growth of money greatly facilitated production and exchange. He sees also that money, the medium of exchange, represents general demand and holds all goods together. Also, money eliminates the grave problem of double coincidence of wants, where each trader will have to desire the other man's goods directly. Now each person can sell goods for money. Furthermore, money serves as a store of values to be used for purchases in the future. Aristotle, however, created great trouble for the future by morally condemning the lending of money at interest as unnatural. Since money cannot be used directly and is employed only to facilitate exchanges, it is barren and cannot itself increase wealth. Therefore, the charging of interest, which Aristotle incorrectly thought to imply a direct productivity of money, was strongly condemned as contrary to nature. Aristotle would have done better to avoid such hasty moral condemnation and to try to figure out why interest is, in fact, universally paid. Might there not be something natural, after all, about a rate of interest? And if he had discovered the economic reason for the charging and the paying of interest, perhaps Aristotle would have understood why such charges are moral and not unnatural. Aristotle, like Plato, was hostile to economic growth and favored a static society, all of which fits with his opposition to money-making and the accumulation of wealth. The insight of old Hesiod into the economic problem as the allocation of scarce means for the satisfying of alternative wants was virtually ignored by both Plato and Aristotle, who instead counseled the virtue of scaling down one's desires to fit whatever means were available. 8. Aristotle, Exchange and Value Aristotle's difficult but influential discussion of exchange suffered grievously from his persistent tendency to confuse analysis with instant moral judgment. As in the case of charging interest, Aristotle did not remain content to complete a study of why exchanges take place in real life, 
before leaping in with moral pronouncements. In analyzing exchanges, Aristotle declares that these mutually beneficial transactions imply a proportional reciprocity, but it is characteristically ambivalent in Aristotle whether all exchanges are by nature marked by reciprocity, or whether only proportionately reciprocal exchanges are truly just. And, of course, Aristotle was never one to raise the question, why do people voluntarily engage in unjust exchanges? In the same way, why should people voluntarily pay interest charges if they are really unjust? To muddle matters further, Aristotle, under the influence of the Pythagorean number mystics, introduced obscure and obfuscating mathematical terms into what could have been a straightforward analysis. The only dubious benefit of this contribution was to give many happy hours to historians of economic thought, attempting to read sophisticated modern analysis into Aristotle. This problem has been aggravated by an unfortunate tendency among historians of thought to regard great thinkers of the past as necessarily consistent and coherent. That, of course, is a grievous historiographic error. However great they may have been, any thinkers can slip into error and inconsistency, and even write gibberish on occasion. Many historians of thought do not seem able to recognize that simple fact. Aristotle's famous discussion of reciprocity in exchange in Book Five of his Nicomachean Ethics is a prime example of descent into gibberish. Aristotle talks of a builder exchanging a house for the shoes produced by a shoemaker. He then writes, The number of shoes exchanged for a house must therefore correspond to the ratio of builder to shoemaker. For if this be not so, there will be no exchange and no intercourse. A. How can there possibly be a ratio of builder to shoemaker? Much less an equating of that ratio to shoes' houses. In what units can men like builders and shoemakers be expressed? The correct answer is that there is no meaning, and that this particular exercise should be dismissed as an unfortunate example of Pythagorean quantophrenia. And yet, various distinguished historians have read tortured constructions of this passage to make Aristotle appear to be a forerunner of the labor theory of value, of W. Stanley Jevons, or of Alfred Marshall. The labor theory is read into the unsupportable assumption that Aristotle must have meant labor hours put in by the builder or shoemaker, while Joseph Sudek somehow sees here the respective skills of these producers, skills which are then measured by their products. Sudek eventually emerges with Aristotle as an ancestor of Jevons. In the face of all this elaborate wild goose chase, it is a pleasure to see the verdict of gibberish supported by the economic historian of ancient Greece, Moses I. Finley, and by the distinguished Aristotelian scholar H. H. Joachim, who has the courage to write, 
how exactly the values of the producers are to be determined, and what the ratio between them can mean, is, I must confess, in the end unintelligible to me. Another grave fallacy in the same paragraph in the Ethics did incalculable damage to future centuries of economic thought. There, Aristotle says that in order for an exchange, any exchange, a just exchange, to take place, the diverse goods and services must be equated, a phrase Aristotle emphasizes several times. It is this necessary equation that led Aristotle to bring in the mathematics and the equal signs. His reasoning was that for A and B to exchange two products, the value of both products must be equal, otherwise an exchange would not take place. The diverse goods being exchanged for one another must be made equal because only things of equal value will be traded. The Aristotelian concept of equal value in exchange is just plain wrong, as the Austrian school was to point out in the late 19th century. If A trades shoes for sacks of wheat owned by B, A does so because he prefers the wheat to the shoes, while B's preferences are precisely the opposite. If an exchange takes place, this implies not an equality of values, but rather a reverse inequality of values in the two parties making the exchange. If I buy a newspaper for thirty cents, I do so because I prefer the acquisition of the newspaper to keeping the thirty cents, whereas the newsagent prefers getting the money to keeping the newspaper. This double inequality of subjective valuations sets the necessary precondition for any exchange. If the equation of ratio of builder to laborer is best forgotten, other parts of Aristotle's analysis have been seen by some historians as predating parts of the economics of the Austrian school. Aristotle clearly states that money represents human need or demand, which provides the motivation for exchange, and which holds all things together. Demand is governed by the use-value or desirability of a good. Aristotle follows Democritus in pointing out that after the quantity of a good reaches a certain limit, after there is too much, the use-value will plummet and become worthless. But Aristotle goes beyond Democritus in pointing out the other side of the coin, that when a good becomes scarcer, it will become subjectively more useful or valuable. He states in the rhetoric that what is rare is a greater good than what is plentiful. Thus gold is a better thing than iron, though less useful. These statements provide an intimation of the correct influence of different levels of supply on the value of a good, and at least a hint of the later fully formed Austrian marginal utility theory of value and its solution of the paradox of value. These are interesting allusions and suggestions, but a few fragmentary sentences scattered throughout different books hardly constitute a fully-fledged precursor of the Austrian school. 
but a more interesting harbinger of Austrianism has only come to the attention of historians in recent years. The groundwork for the Austrian theory of marginal productivity, the process by which the value of final products is imputed to the means or factors of production. In his little-known work, The Topics, as well as in his later rhetoric, Aristotle engaged in a philosophical analysis of the relationship between human ends and the means by which people pursue them. These means, or instruments of production, necessarily derive their value from the final products useful to man, the instruments of action. The greater the desirability or subjective value of a good, the greater the desirability or value of the means to arrive at that product. More important, Aristotle introduces the marginal element into this imputation by arguing that if the acquisition or addition of a good A to an already desirable good C creates a more desirable result than the addition of good B, then A is more highly valued than B. Or, as Aristotle put it, judge by means of an addition, and see if the addition of A to the same thing as B makes the whole more desirable than the addition of B. Aristotle also introduces an even more specifically pre-Austrian or pre-Bombaverkian concept by stressing the differential value of the loss rather than the addition of a good. Good A will be more valuable than B if the loss of A is considered to be worse than the loss of B. As Aristotle clearly phrased it, that is, the greater good whose contrary is the greater evil, and whose loss affects us more. Aristotle also took note of the importance of the complementarity of economic factors of production in imputing their value. A saw, he pointed out, is more valuable than a sickle in the art of carpentry, but it is not more valuable everywhere and in all pursuits. He also pointed out that a good with many potential uses will be more desirable or valuable than a good with only one use. Critics of the economic importance of Aristotle's analysis charge that, with the exception of the saw and sickle passage, Aristotle made no economic application of his broad philosophical treatment of imputation. But this charge misses the crucial Austrian point, made with particular force and elaboration by the twentieth-century Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, that economic theory is but a part, a subset, of a broader praxeological analysis of human action. By analyzing the logical implications of the employment of means to the pursuit of ends in all human action, Aristotle brilliantly began to lay the groundwork for the Austrian theory of imputation and marginal productivity over two millennia later. 9. The Collapse After Aristotle It is remarkable that the great burst of economic thinking in the ancient world covered only two centuries, the 5th and the 4th B.C., and only in one country, 
Greece. The rest of the ancient world, and even Greece before and after these centuries, was essentially a desert of economic thought. Nothing of substance came out of the great ancient civilizations in Mesopotamia and India, and very little except political thought in the many centuries-long civilization of China. Remarkably, little or no economic thought emerged out of those civilizations, even though the economic institutions—trade, credit, mining, crafts, etc.—were often far advanced, and even more so than in Greece. Here is an important indication that, contrary to Marxists and other economic determinists, economic thought and ideas do not simply emerge as a reflex of the development of economic institutions. There is no way that historians of thought can ever completely penetrate the mysteries of creativity in the human soul and thus completely explain this relatively brief flowering of human thought. But it is surely no accident that it was the Greek philosophers who provided us with the first fragments of systematic economic theory. For philosophy, too, was virtually non-existent in the rest of the ancient world, or before this era in Greece. The essence of philosophic thought is that it penetrates the ad hoc vagaries of day-to-day -day life in order to arrive at truths that transcend the daily accidents of time and place. Philosophy arrives at truths about the world and about human life that are absolute, universal, and eternal, at least while the world and humanity last. It arrives, in short, at a system of natural laws. But economic analysis is a subset of such investigation, because genuine economic theory can only advance beyond shifting day-to-day -day events by penetrating truths about human action which are absolute, unchanging, and eternal, which are unaffected by changes of time and place. Economic thought, at least correct economic thought, is itself a subset of natural laws in its own branch of investigation. If we remember the snatches of economic thought contributed by the Greeks, Hesiod on scarcity, Democritus on subjective value and utility, the influence of supply and demand on value and on time preference, Plato and Xenophon on the division of labor, Plato on the functions of money, Aristotle on supply and demand, money, exchange, and the imputation of value from ends to means. We see that all of these men were focusing on the logical implications of a few broadly empirical axioms of human life. The existence of human action the eternal pursuit of goals by employing scarce means, the diversity and inequality among men. These axioms are certainly empirical, but they are so broad and pervasive that they apply to all of human life at any time and place. Once articulated and set forth, they impel assent to their truth by a shock of recognition, once articulated, they become evident to the human mind. Since these axioms are then established as certain and apodictic, 
the processes of logic, themselves universal and apodictic and transcending time and place, can be used to arrive at absolutely true conclusions. While this method of reasoning, of philosophy and of economics, is both empirical, being derived from the world, and true, it runs against the grain of modern philosophies of science. In modern positivism, or neo-positivism, for example, evidence is much narrower, fleeting, and open to change. In much of modern economics, using the positivist method, empirical evidence is a congeries of isolated and narrow economic events, each of which is conceived as homogeneous bits of information supposedly used to test, to confirm or refute economic hypotheses. These bits, like laboratory experiments, are supposed to result in evidence to test a theory. Modern positivism is unequipped to understand or handle a system of analysis, whether classical Greek philosophy or economic theory, grounded on deductions from fundamental axioms so broadly empirical as to be virtually self-evident, evident to the self, once they are articulated. Positivism fails to understand that the results of laboratory experiments are only evidence because they too make evident to the scientists or to others who follow the experiments, that is, make evident to the self facts or truths not evident before. The deductive processes of logic and mathematics do the same thing. They compel assent by making things evident to people which were not evident before. Correct economic theory, which we have named as praxeological theory, is another way by which truths are made evident to the human mind. Even politics, which some scoff at as not purely or strictly economics, impinges heavily on economic thought. Politics is, of course, an aspect of human action, and much of it has a crucial impact on economic life. Eternal natural law truths about economic aspects of politics may be and have been arrived at, and cannot be neglected in a study of the development of economic thought. When Democritus and Aristotle defended a regime of private property, and Aristotle demolished Plato's portrayal of an ideal communism, they were engaging in important economic analysis of the nature and consequences of alternative systems of control and ownership of property. Aristotle was the culmination of ancient economic thought, as he was of classical philosophy. Economic theorizing collapsed after the death of Aristotle, and later Hellenistic and Roman epochs were virtually devoid of economic thought. Again, it is impossible to explain fully the disappearance of economic thought, but surely one reason must have been the disintegration of the once proud Greek polis after the time of Aristotle. The Greek city-states were subjected to conquest and disintegration, beginning with the empire of Alexander the Great during the life of his former mentor Aristotle. Eventually, Greece, 
much diminished in wealth and economic prosperity, became absorbed by the Roman Empire. Small wonder, then, that the only references to economic affairs should be councils of despair, with various Greek philosophers futilely urging their followers to solve the problem of aggravated scarcity by drastically curbing their wants and desires. In short, if you're miserable and poverty-stricken, accept your lot as man's inevitable fate, and try to want no more than you have. This counsel of hopelessness and despair was preached by Diogenes, 412 to 323 B.C., the founder of the school of Cynics, and by Epicurus, 343 to 270 B.C., the founder of the Epicureans. Diogenes and the Cynics pursued this culture of poverty to such length as to adopt the name and the life of dogs. Diogenes himself made his home in a barrel. Consistent with his outlook, Diogenes denounced the hero Prometheus, who in Greek myth stole the gift of fire from the gods and thus made possible innovation, the growth of human knowledge, and the progress of mankind. Prometheus, wrote Diogenes, was properly punished by the gods for this fateful deed. As Bertrand Russell summed up, Aristotle is the last Greek philosopher who faces the world cheerfully. After him, all have, in one form or another, a philosophy of retreat. The world is bad. Let us learn to be independent of it. External goods are precarious. They are the gift of fortune, not the reward of our own efforts. The most interesting and influential school of Greek philosophers after Aristotle was the Stoics, founded by Zeno of Clitium, circa 336 to 264 B.C., who appeared about the year 300 B.C. in Athens to teach at a painted porch, Stoa Poikile, after which he and his followers were called Stoics. While the Stoics began as an offshoot of cynicism, preaching the quenching of desire for worldly goods, it took on a new and more optimistic note with Stoicism's second great founder, Chrysippus, 281-208 B.C. Whereas Diogenes had preached that the love of money was the root of all evil, Chrysippus countered with the quip that the wise man will turn three somersaults for an adequate fee. Chrysippus was also sound on the inherent inequality and diversity of man. Nothing, he pointed out, can prevent some seats in the theater from being better than others. But the most important contribution of Stoic thought was in ethical, political, and legal philosophy for it was the Stoics who first developed and systematized, especially in the legal sphere, the concept and the philosophy of natural law. It was precisely because Plato and Aristotle were circumscribed politically by the Greek polis that their moral and legal philosophy became closely intertwined with the Greek city-state. For the Socratics, the city-state not the individual, was the locus of human virtue. But the destruction or subjugation of the Greek polis after Aristotle 
freed the thought of the Stoics from its admixture with politics. The Stoics were therefore free to use their reason to set forth a doctrine of natural law, focusing not on the polis, but on each individual, and not on each state, but on all states everywhere. In short, in the hands of the Stoics, natural law became absolute and universal, transcending political barriers or fleeting limitations of time and place. Law and ethics, the principles of justice, became transcultural and transnational, applying to all human beings everywhere. And since every man possesses the faculty of reason, he can employ right reason to understand the truths of the natural law. The important implication for politics is that the natural law, the just and proper moral law discovered by man's right reason, can and should be used to engage in a moral critique of the positive man-made laws of any state or polis. For the first time, positive law became continually subject to a transcendent critique based on the universal and eternal nature of man. The Stoics were undoubtedly aided in arriving at their cosmopolitan disregard for the narrow interests of the polis by the fact that most of them were Easterners who had come from outside the Greek mainland. Zeno, the founder, described as tall, gaunt, and swarthy, came from Clitium on the island of Cyprus. Many, including Chrysippus, came from Tarsus in Cilicia, on the Asia Minor mainland near Syria. Later Greek Stoics were centered in Rhodes, an island off Asia Minor. Stoicism lasted five hundred years, and its most important influence was transmitted from Greece to Rome. The later Stoics, during the first two centuries after the birth of Christ, were Roman, rather than Greek. The great transmitter of Stoic ideas from Greece to Rome was the famous Roman statesman, jurist, and orator Marcus Tullius Cicero, 106-43 B.C., Following Cicero, Stoic natural law doctrines heavily influenced the Roman jurists of the second and third centuries A.D., and thus helped shape the great structures of Roman law which became pervasive in Western civilization. Cicero's influence was assured by his lucid and sparkling style, and by the fact that he was the first Stoic to write in Latin the language of Roman law, and of all thinkers and writers in the West down to the end of the seventeenth century. Moreover, Cicero's and other Latin writings have been far better preserved than the fragmentary remains we have from the Greeks. Cicero's writings were heavily influenced by the Greek Stoic leader, the aristocratic Panetius of Rhodes, circa 185 to 110 B.C., and, as a young man, he traveled there to study with his follower, Posidonius of Rhodes, 135-51 B.C., the greatest Stoic of his age. There is no better way to sum up Cicero's Stoic natural law philosophy than by quoting what one of his followers called his almost divine words. 
Paraphrasing and developing the definition and insight of Chrysippus, Cicero wrote, There is a true law, right reason, agreeable to nature, known to all men, constant and eternal, which calls to duty by its precepts, deters from evil by its prohibition. This law cannot be departed from without guilt, nor is there one law at Rome and another at Athens, one thing now and another afterward, but the same law, unchanging and eternal, binds all races of man and all times. And there is one common, as it were, master and ruler, God, the author, promulgator, and mover of this law, Whoever does not obey it departs from his true self, contemns the nature of man, and inflicts upon himself the greatest penalties. Cicero also contributed to Western thought a great anti-statist parable which resounded through the centuries, a parable that revealed the nature of rulers of state as nothing more than pirates writ large. Cicero told the story of a pirate who was dragged into the court of Alexander the Great. When Alexander denounced him for piracy and brigandage, and asked the pirate what impulse had led him to make the sea unsafe with his one little ship, the pirate trenchantly replied, The same impulse which has led you, Alexander, to make the whole world unsafe. But despite their important contributions to moral and legal philosophy, neither the Stoics nor other Romans contributed anything else of significance to economic thought. Roman law, however, heavily influenced and pervaded later legal developments in the West. Roman private law elaborated, for the first time in the West, the idea of property rights as absolute with each owner having the right to use his property as he saw fit. From this stemmed the right to make contracts freely, with contracts interpreted as transfers of titles to property. Some Roman jurists declared that property rights were required by the natural law. The Romans also founded the law merchant, and Roman law strongly influenced the common law of the English-speaking countries and the civil law of the continent of Europe. 10. Taoism in Ancient China The only other body of ancient thought worth mentioning is the schools of political philosophy in ancient China. Though remarkable for its insights, ancient Chinese thought had virtually no impact outside the isolated Chinese empire in later centuries, and so will be dealt with only briefly. The three main schools of political thought, the Legalists, the Taoists, and the Confucians, were established from the 6th to the 4th centuries B.C. Roughly, the Legalists, the latest of the three broad schools, simply believed in maximal power to the state, and advised rulers how to increase that power. The Taoists were the world's first libertarians, who believed in virtually no interference by the state in economy or society, and the Confucians were middle-of-the-roaders on this critical issue. The towering figure of Confucius, 
551 to 479 B.C., whose name was actually Chu Chung Ni, was an erudite man from an impoverished but aristocratic family of the fallen Yin dynasty, who became Grand Marshal of the state of Sung. In practice, though far more idealistic, Confucian thought differed little from the legalists, since Confucianism was largely dedicated to installing an educated, philosophically-minded bureaucracy to rule in China. By far the most interesting of the Chinese political philosophers were the Taoists, founded by the immensely important but shadowy figure of Lao Tzu. Little is known about Lao Tzu's life, but he was apparently a contemporary and personal acquaintance of Confucius. Like the latter, he came originally from the state of Sung, and was a descendant of lower aristocracy of the Yin dynasty. Both men lived in a time of turmoil, wars, and statism, but each reacted very differently. For Lao Tzu worked out the view that the individual and his happiness was the key unit of society. If social institutions hampered the individual's flowering and his happiness, then those institutions should be reduced or abolished altogether. To the individualist Lao Tzu, government, with its laws and regulations more numerous than the hairs of an ox, was a vicious oppressor of the individual, and more to be feared than fierce tigers. Government, in sum, must be limited to the smallest possible minimum. Inaction became the watchword for Lao Tzu, since only inaction of government can permit the individual to flourish and achieve happiness. Any intervention by government, he declared, would be counterproductive, and would lead to confusion and turmoil. The first political economist to discern the systemic effects of government intervention, Lao Tzu, after referring to the common experience of mankind, came to his penetrating conclusion. The more artificial taboos and restrictions there are in the world, the more the people are impoverished. The more that laws and regulations are given prominence, the more thieves and robbers there will be. The worst of government interventions, according to Lao Tzu, was heavy taxation and war. The people hunger because their superiors consume an excess in taxation. And, where armies have been stationed, thorns and brambles grow. After a great war, harsh years of famine are sure to follow. The wisest course is to keep the government simple and inactive for then the world stabilizes itself. As Lao Tzu put it, therefore the sage says, I take no action, yet the people transform themselves. I favor quiescence, and the people right themselves. I take no action, and the people enrich themselves. Deeply pessimistic, and seeing no hope for a mass movement to correct oppressive government, Lao Tzu counseled the now-familiar Taoist path of withdrawal, retreat, and limitation of one's desires. Two centuries later, Lao Tzu's great follower, Chuang Tzu, 369 to circa 286 B.C., 
built on the master's ideas of laissez-faire to push them to their logical conclusion, individualist anarchism. The influential Chuang Tzu, a great stylist who wrote in allegorical parables, was therefore the first anarchist in the history of human thought. The highly learned Chuang Tzu was a native of the state of Meng, now probably in Honan province, and also descended from the old aristocracy. A minor official in his native state, Chuang Tzu's fame spread far and wide throughout China, so much so that King Wei of the Chu kingdom sent an emissary to Chuang Tzu, bearing great gifts and urging him to become the king's chief minister of state. Chuang Tzu's scornful rejection of the king's offer is one of the great declarations in history on the evils underlying the trappings of state power and the contrasting virtues of the private life. A thousand ounces of gold is indeed a great reward, and the office of chief minister is truly an elevated position. But have you, sir, not seen the sacrificial ox awaiting the sacrifices at the royal shrine of state? It is well cared for and fed for a few years, caparisoned with rich brocades, so that it will be ready to be led into the great temple. At that moment, even though it would gladly change places with any solitary pig, can it do so? So quick, and be off with you. Don't sully me. I would rather roam and idle about in a muddy ditch at my own amusement than to be put under the restraints that the ruler would impose. I will never take any official service, and thereby I will be free to satisfy my own purposes. Chuang Tzu reiterated and embellished Lao Tzu's devotion to laissez-faire and opposition to state rule. There has been such a thing as letting mankind alone. There has never been such a thing as governing mankind with success. Chuang Tzu was also the first to work out the idea of spontaneous order, independently discovered by Proudhon in the 19th century and developed by F. A. von Hayek of the Austrian school in the 20th. Thus, Chuang Tzu... Good order results spontaneously when things are let alone. But while people in their natural freedom can run their lives very well by themselves, government rules and edicts distort that nature into an artificial Procrustean bed. As Chuang Tzu wrote, The common people have a constant nature. They spin and are clothed, till and are fed. It is what may be called their natural freedom. These people of natural freedom were born and died themselves, suffered from no restrictions or restraints, and were neither quarrelsome nor disorderly. If rulers were to establish rights and laws to govern the people, it would indeed be no different from stretching the short legs of the duck and trimming off the long legs of the heron, or haltering a horse. Such rules would not only be of no benefit, but would work great harm. In short, Chuang Tzu concluded, the world does simply not need governing. In fact, it should not be governed.
Chuang Tzu, moreover, was perhaps the first theorist to see the state as a brigand writ large. A petty thief is put in jail. A great brigand becomes a ruler of a state. Thus the only difference between state rulers and out-and-out robber chieftains is the size of their depredations. This theme of ruler as robber was to be repeated, as we have seen, by Cicero, and later by Christian thinkers in the Middle Ages, though, of course, these were arrived at independently. Taoist thought flourished for several centuries, culminating in the most determinedly anarchistic thinker, Pao Ching Yen, who lived in the early fourth century A.D., and about whose life nothing is known. Elaborating on Chuang Tzu, Pao contrasted the idyllic ways of ancient times that had had no rulers and no government with the misery inflicted by the rulers of the current age. In the earliest days, wrote Powell, there were no rulers and no officials. People dug wells and drank, tilled fields and ate. When the sun rose they went to work, and when it set they rested. Placidly going their ways with no encumbrances, they grandly achieved their own fulfillment. In the stateless age there was no warfare and no disorder. Where knights and hosts could not be assembled, there was no warfare afield. Ideas of using power for advantage had not yet burgeoned. Disaster and disorder did not occur. Shields and spears were not used. City walls and moats were not built. People munched their food and disported themselves. They were carefree and contented. Into this idol of peace and contentment, wrote Pao Ching Yen, there came the violence and deceit instituted by the state. The history of government is the history of violence, of the strong plundering the weak. Wicked tyrants engage in orgies of violence. Being rulers, they could give free rein to all desires. Furthermore, the government's institutionalization of violence meant that the petty disorders of daily life would be greatly intensified and expanded on a much larger scale. As Pau put it, disputes among the ordinary people are merely trivial matters. For what scope of consequences can a contest of strength between ordinary fellows generate? They have no spreading lands to arouse avarice. They wield no authority through which they can advance their struggle. Their power is not such that they can assemble mass followings, and they command no awe that might quell such gatherings by their opponents. How can they compare with the display of the royal anger, which can deploy armies and move battalions, making people who hold no enmities attack states that have done no wrong? To the common charge that he has overlooked good and benevolent rulers, Powell replied that the government itself is a violent exploitation of the weak by the strong. The system itself is the problem, and the object of government is not to benefit the people, but to control and plunder them. There is no ruler who can compare in virtue with a condition of non-rule.
Pao Cheng Yan also engaged in a masterful study in political psychology by pointing out that the very existence of institutionalized violence by the state generates imitative violence among the people. In a happy and stateless world, declared Pao, the people would naturally turn to thoughts of good order and not be interested in plundering their neighbors. But rulers oppress and loot the people, and make them toil without rest, and wrest away things from them endlessly. In that way, theft and banditry are stimulated among the unhappy people, and arms and armor, intended to pacify the public, are stolen by bandits to intensify their plunder. All these things are brought about because there are rulers. The common idea, concluded Pow, that strong government is needed to combat disorders among the people, commits the serious error of confusing cause and effect. The only Chinese with notable views in the more strictly economic realm was the distinguished 2nd century B.C. historian Su Ma Qian, 145 to circa 90 B.C., Qian was an advocate of laissez-faire, and pointed out that minimal government made for abundance of food and clothing, as did the abstinence of government from competing with private enterprise. This was similar to the Taoist view, but Qian, a worldly and sophisticated man, dismissed the idea that people could solve the economic problem by reducing desires to a minimum. People, Qian maintained, preferred the best and most attainable goods and services, as well as ease and comfort. Men are therefore habitual seekers after wealth. Since Qian thought very little of the idea of limiting one's desires, he was impelled, far more than the Taoists, to investigate and analyze free market activities. He therefore saw that specialization and the division of labor on the market produced goods and services in an orderly fashion. Each man has only to be left to utilize his own abilities and exert his strength to obtain what he wishes. When each person works away at his own occupation and delights in his own business, then, like water flowing downward, goods will naturally flow ceaselessly, day and night, without being summoned, and the people will produce commodities without having been asked. To Qian, this was the natural outcome of the free market. Does this not ally with reason? Is it not a natural result? Furthermore, prices are regulated on the market since excessively cheap or dear prices tend to correct themselves and reach a proper level. But if the free market is self-regulating, asked Qian perceptively, what need is there for government directives, mobilizations of labor, or periodic assemblies? What need indeed? Su Ma Qian also set forth the function of entrepreneurship on the market. The entrepreneur accumulates wealth and functions by anticipating conditions, that is, forecasting, and acting accordingly. In short, he keeps a sharp eye out for the opportunities of the times. Finally, Qian was one of the world's first monetary theorists. 
He pointed out that increased quantity and a debased quality of coinage by government depreciates the value of money and makes prices rise. And he saw, too, that government inherently tended to engage in this sort of inflation and debasement. Chapter 2 The Christian Middle Ages 1. The Roman Law property rights, and laissez-faire. One of the most powerful influences in the legal and political thought and institutions of the Christian West during the Middle Ages was the Roman law, derived from the Republic and Empire of ancient Rome. Roman law classically developed in the first to the third centuries A.D., Private law developed the theory of the absolute right of private property and of freedom of trade and contract. While Roman public law theoretically allowed state interference in the life of the citizen, there was little such interference in the late republic and early empire. Private property rights and laissez-faire were therefore the fundamental heritage of the Roman law to later centuries— and much of it was adopted by countries of the Christian West. Though the Roman Empire collapsed in the 4th and 5th centuries, its legal heritage continued, as embodied in two great collections of the Roman law. Influential in the West, the Theodosian Code, promulgated by the Emperor Theodosius in 438 A.D., and in the East, the great four-volume Corpus Juris Civilis, promulgated by the Byzantine Christian Emperor Justinian in the 530s. Both collections emphasized strongly that the just price was simply any price arrived at by free and voluntary bargaining between buyer and seller. Each man has the right to do what he wants with his property, and therefore has the right to make contracts to give away, buy, or sell such property. Hence, whatever price is freely arrived at is just. Thus, in the corpus, several leading Roman jurists of the 3rd century quoted the early 2nd century jurist Pomponius in a classic expression of the morality of laissez-faire. In buying and selling, natural law permits the one party to buy for less and the other to sell for more than the thing is worth. Thus each party is allowed to outwit the other. And it is naturally permitted to parties to circumvent each other in the price of buying and selling. The only problem here is the odd phrase, the thing is worth, which assumes that there is some value other than free bargaining that expresses some true worth, a phrase that would prove to be an unfortunate harbinger of the future. More specifically, the Theodosian Code was crystal clear. Any price set by free and voluntary bargaining is just and legitimate, the only exception being a contract made by children. Force or fraud, as infringements on property rights, were, of course, considered illegal. The Code held explicitly that ignorance of the value of a good by either buyer or seller was insufficient ground for authorities to step in and rescind the voluntarily agreed contract. 
The Theodosian Code was carried forward in Western Europe. For example, the Visigothic Law set forth in the 6th and 7th centuries, and the Bavarian Law of the early 8th century. Bavarian law added the explicit provision that a buyer may not rescind a sale because he later decides that the agreed price was too high. This laissez-faire aspect of the Theodosian Code later became incorporated into Christian canon law by being included in the collection of capitularies, decrees, by St. Benedictus Diaconus in the ninth century A.D., while the Justinian corpus promulgated in the East was equally devoted to laissez-faire, it included a minor element that was later to grow and justify attacks upon free bargaining. As part of the Justinian discussion of how courts can appraise property for payment of damages, the Code mentioned that if a seller has sold his property for less than half the just price, then he suffers great loss, laesio enormous, and the seller is then entitled either to get back the difference between the original price and the just price from the buyer, or else get his property back at that original price. This clause was apparently meant only to apply to real estate and to compensations for damages, where authorities must somehow assess the true price and it had no influence on the laws of the next centuries, but it was to yield unfortunate effects in the future. 2. Early Christian Attitudes Toward Merchants Roman law was not the only influence on economic ideas in the Middle Ages. Ambivalent attitudes in the early Christian tradition also proved highly important. Economic matters were, of course, scarcely central to either the Old or New Testament, and scattered economic pronouncements are contradictory or subject to ambivalent interpretation. Fulminations against excessive love of money do not necessarily imply hostility to commerce or wealth. One remarkable aspect of the Old Testament, however, is its repeated, almost pre-Calvinist extolling of work for its own sake. In contrast to the contemptuous attitude toward labor of the Greek philosophers, the Old Testament is filled with exhortations in favor of work, from the Be Fruitful and Multiply of Genesis to Enjoy Life in Your Toil at Which You Toil Under the Sun of Ecclesiastes. Oddly, these calls to labor are often accompanied by admonitions against the accumulation of wealth. Later, in the second century B.C., the Hebrew scribe who wrote the apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus goes so far as to extol labor as a sacred calling. Manual workers, he writes, keep stable the fabric of the world, and their prayer is in the practice of their trade. Yet the pursuit of money is condemned, and merchants are habitually treated with deep suspicion. A merchant can hardly keep from wrongdoing, and a tradesman will not be declared innocent of sin. And yet, in the same book of Ecclesiasticus, the reader is instructed not to be ashamed of profit or success in business. 
The attitude of the early Christians, including Jesus and the apostles, toward work and trade was colored by their intense expectation of the imminent end of the world and of the coming of the kingdom of God. Obviously, if one expects the impending end of the world, one is inclined to have little patience for such activities as investing or accumulating wealth. Rather, the tendency is to act as the lilies of the field, to follow Jesus and forget about mundane matters. It was in this context that we must understand St. Paul's famous, The love of money is the root of all evil. By approximately 100 A.D., however, the books of the New Testament written by St. John make it clear that the Christian church had abandoned the idea of the imminent end of the world. But the Hellenistic and the gospel heritage fused to lead the early church fathers into a retreatist view of the world and its economic activities, combined with fulminations against wealth and merchants who tend to amass such wealth. The church fathers railed against mercantile activities as necessarily stamped with the sin of greed, and as almost always accompanied by deceit and fraud. Leading the parade was the mystical and apocalyptic Tertullian, 160-240, a prominent Carthaginian lawyer who converted late in life to Christianity and eventually formed his own heretical sect. To Tertullian, attack on merchants and money-making was part and parcel of a general philippic against the secular world, which he expected at any moment to founder on the shoals of excess population, so that the earth would soon suffer from epidemics, famines, wars, and the earth's opening to swallow whole cities, as a grisly solution to the overpopulation problem. Two centuries later, the fiery St. Jerome, circa 340-420, to educated in Rome but also influenced by the Eastern Fathers, took up the theme, proclaiming the fallacy that in trade one man's gain must be achieved by means of the other man's loss. All riches come from iniquity, and unless one has lost, another cannot gain. Hence that common opinion seems to me to be very true. The rich man is unjust, or the heir of an unjust one. And yet there was another contradictory strain even in Jerome, who also declared that a wise man with riches has greater glory than one who is wise only, for he can accomplish more good things. Wealth is not an obstacle to the rich man who uses it well. Probably the most intelligent attitude toward wealth and money-making among the early church fathers was that of the Athenian-born Eastern father Clement of Alexandria, circa 150 to 215. While Clement counseled that property be used for the good of the community, he endorsed private property and the accumulation of wealth. He attacked as foolish the ascetic ideal of divesting oneself of one's possessions. As Clement wisely put it, employing a natural law theme, we must not cast away riches which can benefit our neighbor. Possessions were made to be possessed. Goods are called goods because they do good, 
and they have been provided by God for the good of men. They are at hand and serve as the material, the instruments for a good use in the hand of him who knows how to use them. Clement also took a hard-nosed attitude toward the rootless poor. If living without possessions was so desirable, he pointed out, then that whole swarm of proletarians, derelicts, and beggars who live from hand to mouth, all those wretched cast out upon the streets, though they live in ignorance of God and of His justice, would be the most blessed and the most religious, and the only candidates for eternal life, simply because they are penniless. The early church fathers culminated in the great St. Augustine, 354-430, who, living at the time of the sack of Rome in 410 and of the collapse of the Roman Empire, had to look ahead to a post-ancient world, which he was greatly to influence. Born in Numidia in Africa, Aurelius Augustinus was educated in Carthage and became a professor of rhetoric in Milan. Baptized a Christian at the age of thirty-two, St. Augustine became Bishop of Hippo in his native North Africa. The Roman Empire under Constantine had embraced Christianity a century earlier, and Augustine wrote his great work, The City of God, as a rebuttal to the charge that the embrace of Christianity had resulted in the fall of Rome. Augustine's economic views were scattered throughout the City of God and his other highly influential writings, but he definitely and presumably independently of Aristotle arrived at the view that people's payments for goods, the valuation they placed on them, was determined by their own needs rather than by any more objective criterion, or by their rank in the order of nature. This was at least the basis of the later Austrian theory of subjective value. He also pointed out that it was the common desire of all men to buy cheap and to sell dear. Furthermore, Augustine was the first church father to have a positive attitude towards the role of the merchant. Rebutting the common patristic charges against the merchants, Augustine pointed out that they perform a beneficial service by transporting goods over great distances and selling them to the consumer. Since, according to Christian principle, the laborer is worthy of his hire, then the merchant too deserved compensation for his activities and labor. To the common charge of endemic deceit and fraud in the mercantile trades, Augustine cogently replied that any such lies and perjuries were the fault not of the trade, but of the traitor himself. Such sins originated in the iniquity of the person, not in his occupation. After all, Augustine pointed out, shoemakers and farmers are also capable of lies and perjuries and yet the church fathers had not condemned their occupations as being per se evil. Clearing the merchants of the stain of inherent evil proved enormously influential in the following centuries, and was quoted time and again in the flowering of Christian thought in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. A less tangible but still important contribution to social thought was St. Augustine's recasting of the ancient world's view of the human personality. 
To the Greek philosophers, the individual personality was to be molded to conform to the needs and desires of the polis. Dictation by the polis necessarily meant a static society, with discouragement directed towards any innovating entrepreneurs trying to break out of the contemporary mold. But St. Augustine's stress was on the individual's personality unfolding itself, and therefore progressing over time. Hence Augustine's profound emphasis on the individual at least set the stage indirectly for an attitude favorable to innovation, economic growth, and development. That aspect of Augustine's thought, however, was not really stressed by the 13th century Christian theologians and philosophers who built on Augustine's thought. It is ironic that the man who set the stage for optimism and a theory of human progress should, on his deathbed, find the barbarian hordes besieging his beloved city of Hippo. If St. Augustine looked benignly on the role of the merchant, he was also favorable, though not as warmly, toward the social role of rulers of state. On the one hand, Augustine took up and expanded Cicero's parable, demonstrating that Alexander the Great was simply a pirate writ large, and that the state is nothing but a large-scale and settled robber band. In his famous City of God, Augustine asks, And so, if justice is left out, what are kingdoms except great robber bands? For what are robber bands except little kingdoms? The band also is a group of men governed by the orders of a leader, bound by a social compact, and its booty is divided according to a law agreed upon. If, by repeatedly adding desperate men, this plague grows to the point where it holds territory and establishes a fixed seat, seizes cities and subdues people, then it more conspicuously assumes the name of kingdom, and this name is now openly granted to it, not for any subtraction of cupidity, but by addition of impunity." for it was an elegant and true reply that was made to Alexander the Great by a certain pirate whom he had captured. When the king asked him what he was thinking of, that he should molest the sea, he said with defiant independence, the same as you when you molest the world. Since I do this with a little ship, I am called a pirate. You do it with a great fleet, and are called emperor." Yet Augustine ends by approving the role of the state, even though it is a robber band on a large scale. For while he stressed the individual rather than the polis, in pre-Calvinist fashion Augustine emphasized the wickedness and depravity of man. In this fallen, wicked, and sinful world, state rule, though unpleasant and coercive, becomes necessary. Hence, Augustine supported the forcible crushing by the Christian church in North Africa of the Donatist heresy, which indeed believed, in contrast to Augustine, that all kings were necessarily evil. The likening of the head of state to a large-scale brigand, however, was resurrected in its original anti-state context by the great pope, Gregory VII, 
in the course of his struggle with the kings of Europe over his Gregorian reforms in the late eleventh century. This strain of bitter anti-statism, then, emerges from time to time in the early Christian era and in the Middle Ages. 3. The Carolingians and Canon Law Canon law was the law governing the church, and during the early Christian era and the Middle Ages, the intertwining of church and state often meant that canon law and state law were one and the same. Early canon law consisted of papal decretals, decrees of church councils, and the writings of the church fathers. We have seen that later canon law also incorporated much of the Roman law. But canon law also included something else basically pernicious. The decrees and regulations, capitularies, of the Carolingian Empire in the latter 8th and 9th centuries. From the 5th to the 10th centuries, the economic and political chaos of the Dark Ages prevailed throughout Europe, and there was, consequently, little or no room for the development of political, legal, or economic thought. The only exception was the activities of the Carolingian Empire, which burgeoned in Western Europe. The most important Carolingian emperor was Charlemagne, 742-814, and his rule developed on to his successors during the remainder of the ninth century. In capitulary after capitulary, Charlemagne and his successors laid down detailed regulations for every aspect of economic, political, and religious life throughout the empire. Many of these regulations became incorporated into the canon law of later centuries, thereby remaining influential well after the crumbling of the Carolingian Empire itself. Charlemagne built his despotic network of regulations on a shaky foundation. Thus, the important church council of Nicaea, 325, had forbidden any clergyman from engaging in any economic activities leading to shameful gain, turpe lucrum. In his council at Nijmegen, 806, Charlemagne revived, greatly broadened, and imposed the old doctrine of turpe lucrum. But now the prohibition was extended from the clergy to everyone, and the definition broadened from fraud to all greed and avarice, and included any disobedience of Charlemagne's extensive price regulations. Any market deviations from these fixed prices were accused of being profiteering by either buyers or sellers, and hence turpe lucrum. As a corollary, all speculative buying and selling in foodstuffs was prohibited. Moreover, in foreshadowing the English common law prohibition of forestalling, any sale of goods outside and at higher prices than the regular markets was prohibited. Since the English common law was motivated not by a misguided attempt to aid the poor, but in order to confer monopoly privileges on local owners of market sites, it is highly probable that Charlemagne, too, was trying to cartelize markets and confer privileges on market owners.
Every arbitrary price decree of the Carolingian officialdom was, of course, revered by the Carolingians as the just price. Probably this coerced price was often near what had been a customary or current price in the neighborhood. Otherwise, it would be difficult to conceive how the Carolingian officials would discover what price was supposed to be just. But this meant a futile and uneconomic attempt to freeze all prices on the basis of some past market status quo. The problem, then, is that later canon law incorporated the idea of the just price as being the state-decreed price. The banning of any price higher than the current market price was reimposed by the late Carolingian emperor, Carloman, in 1884, and incorporated into the canon law collection of Regino of Prum in 900, and over a century later into that of Burchard of Worms. Remarkably, the two contradictory legal strains, the laissez-faire theme of the Theodosian Code and the statist Carolingian motif, both found their way into the great collection at the basis of the medieval discipline of the canon law, that of Bishop Evo of Chartres at the turn of the twelfth century. There, in the same collection, we find the view that the just price is any price voluntarily arrived at by buyer and seller, and also the contradictory view that the just price is one decreed by the state, especially if it be the common price in general markets. 4. Canonists and Romanists at the University of Bologna the High Middle Ages were established by the commercial revolution of the 11th to 13th centuries, in which trade, production, and finance flourished, living standards rose markedly, and the institutions of commercial capitalism developed in Western Europe. With the advent of economic growth and prosperity, canon and Roman law, learning and social thought, also began to flourish once again. The fountainhead and great center of both canon and Roman law studies during the High Middle Ages was the University of Bologna in Italy, flourishing from the early 12th century to the latter part of the 13th. During those two centuries, both canon and Roman law, including the Justinian Code, were revived at Bologna, influenced each other, and penetrated to the rest of Western Europe. The great and definitive collection of canon law, the Decretum, was published around the year 1140 by the Italian monk Johannes Gratian, who founded canon law studies at the University of Bologna. The Decretum was the definitive canon law work from that point on, and for the remainder of the twelfth century, Bolognese scholars, known as the Decretists, elaborated, discussed, and wrote glosses on Gratian's work. Gratian himself and his early glossators took a traditional zealous anti-merchant position. Speculation, buying cheap to sell dear, purely mercantile activities, were turpe lucrum, and inevitably involved fraud. The first decretus to begin to take an intelligent position on the activities of the merchant was Rufinus, 
a professor at Bologna, who later became Bishop of Assisi and then Archbishop of Sorrento. In his Summa, 1157-1159, to the Decretum, Rufinus pointed out that artisans and craftsmen could buy materials cheaply, work on them and transform them, and then sell the product at a higher price. This form of buying cheap and selling dear was justified by the craftsman's expenses and labor, and is permissible even to the clergy as well as to the laity. However, another activity, practiced by the pure merchant or speculator who buys cheap and sells dear without transforming the product, is, according to Rufinus, absolutely forbidden to the clergy. The lay merchant, however, could honorably engage in these transactions, provided that he had either made heavy expenditures or was fatigued by hard labor. But a pure entrepreneurial cheap purchase to be followed by a sale when market prices were higher was condemned unconditionally by Rufinus. This partial rehabilitation of the merchant by the Decretists was included in the important Summa of 1188 of Huguccio, professor at Polonia, later chosen bishop of Ferrara. Huguccio repeated the views of Rufinus, but shifted the justification of the merchant from labor or expenses to actions that provide for the needs of the merchant's family. Huguccio's stress, then, was not on objective costs, but on the subjective intentions of the merchant, supposing that they could be discovered. Was it mere greed, or was it a desire to fulfill his family's needs? Clearly, Huguccio allowed considerable room for mercantile activities. Moreover, Huguccio began a radical reconstruction of patristic teachings about private property. From the time of Huguccio, private property was to be considered a sacrosanct right derived from the natural law. The property of individuals and communities was, at least in principle, supposed to be free from arbitrary invasion on the part of the state. As moderator and arbiter of his own goods, an individual owner could use and dispose of them as he saw fit, provided that he did not violate general legal rules. A ruler could only expropriate the property of an innocent subject if public necessity required it. This, of course, was a hole in the system of rights, since public necessity could be and was an elastic concept. But this concept of private property was an enormous advance over patristic teachings. After the late 12th century, the Decretist movement in canon law gave way to the Decretalists, who based themselves on a stream of papal edicts, or Decretals, from the late 12th to the 13th century. Since the Pope is supreme in the Catholic Church, the Decretals pronounced by him and his Vatican Curia automatically became incorporated into the body of canon law. In this way, canon law came to differ from that of Gratian and the Decretists, who built the law chiefly on ancient sources. But the new Decretals were scarcely arbitrary. They built on and elaborated previous canon law. 
The continuity of the building process was greatly aided by the fact that several of these popes were former Bolognese. Thus Pope Alexander III, Roland Bandinelli, who initiated the new decretal process and who enjoyed a long papal reign from 1159 to 1181, had studied both law and theology at Bologna was probably a professor there, and had direct contact with the great Gratian. A distinguished legal scholar, who himself had written an early summa to Gratian's decretum, Alexander became cardinal and chancellor before being elected to the papacy. Another significant papal decretalist, Pope Innocent II, Lothair de Saigny, who reigned from 1198 to 1216, had studied canon law under Huguccio at Bologna. Finally, Pope Gregory IX, Ugolino de Saigny, a pontiff from 1227 to 1241, commissioned and published the momentous Decretals in 1234, incorporating Gratian's decretum of a century before, in addition to the various papal decretals. Gregory IX's decretals became the standard work of canon law from that point on. The decretalists had a far more favorable attitude toward merchants and the free market than had the early decretists, in the first place, instead of the negative patristic attitude toward merchants and trade, the decretalists, beginning with Pope Alexander III and continuing through Gregory IX, incorporated the free market attitude of the Roman law. Unfortunately, it was not the pure laissez-faire attitude of the Theodosian or even Justinian law. For when the Justinian Code came to Bologna and Western Europe at the beginning of the twelfth century, the French author of the Bracologus took up the Laesio Enormous principle of the Justinian Code and greatly changed its meaning. Instead of applying the concept of just price differing from the actual price to the assessment of damages as in the Justinian Code, the Brachilogus expanded the concept from real estate to all goods, and from assessing damages to actual sales. In the hands of the Brachilogus, if any sale, even a voluntary one, had been made at less than half the just price, the seller could present the buyer with the choice, either pay me the difference between the sale price and the just price, or else rescind the contract with the buyer returning the goods and the seller returning the payment. It has been pointed out that this was not a cartelizing device, since neither third parties nor the state could step in to enforce Laesio Enormous. The enforcement had to be done on a charge made by the seller himself. The Roman law developing during the 12th and 13th centuries was largely the product of the University of Bologna, where Roman law studies had been founded by Ernerius in the late 11th century. In the mid-12th century, the Bolognese Roman jurists began to incorporate the broader concept of Laesio Enormus of the Bracologus. About 1150, the Provençal Locodi, 
a popular adaptation of a recent Bolognese summa, added another fateful expansion of Laesio Enormis. For the first time, this Provencal work included buyers as well as sellers as suffering from Laesio Enormis, when the sale price was significantly higher than the just price. In the low Cody, if a buyer had paid more than twice the true value or just price of a product, then the seller had the option either to pay the buyer the difference between the just and the sale price, or else rescind the contract. Remarkably, when the low Cody was translated back into Latin, this new extended restriction on laissez-faire was added to the Roman law, particularly by Albericus, professor of Roman law at Bologna, in his canon law collection at the end of the twelfth century. The burgeoning principle of Laesio Enormis reached its final extension in the late twelfth-century work of the Bolognese-trained Petrus Placentinus. Placentinus lowered the maximum permissible price to 1.5 times the just price, beyond which the principle of Laesio Enormis went into effect. This final expansion was incorporated into the works of the three great Bolognese Roman law professors of the 13th century, Azzo, circa 1210, Azzo's highly influential student and follower, Acrisius, circa 1228 to 1260, a native of Florence, and the culmination of the Bolognese school in Odofredus in the mid-13th century. While it is true that the 12th and 13th century Romanists took the trivial concept of Laesio Enormis and made it a significant restriction on freedom of bargaining and laissez-faire, at least by the late 12th century they also made clear that there was to be full freedom of bargaining and freedom to outwit the other within the matrix of Laesio Enormis. The Decretalists, beginning with Pope Alexander III, incorporated much of this developing Roman law. This meant that church law now included not only the patristic fulminations against merchants per se, but also the contrasting Romanist tradition of full freedom of bargaining within the Laesio Enormis matrix. The Decretalists reached their culmination, after building on and glossing the Decretals of Gregory IX, in the works of Cardinal Henricus Hostiensis de Segusio, first in the late 1250s and finally in 1271, the year of his death. Hostiensis had studied canon and Roman law at Bologna, had taught in England and France, and was Cardinal Archbishop of Ostia. The Decretalists justified speculative buying and selling, freeing it from the sin of turpe lucrum by adopting and expanding the Hugucian line that speculation was permissible if the speculator was acting to fulfill the needs of his family. In the gloss of the French-Dominican canonist William of Rennes, circa 1250, this area of freedom was broadened still further, 
A merchant's or speculator's actions were not considered sinful unless he was driven by a wanton desire for having temporal riches, not for necessary use or utility, but for curiosity, so that the fancy is charmed by such, just as a magpie or a crow is enticed by coins, which they discover and hide away. Surely this kind of stricture, which can only apply to a few persons in the real world, had come very far from the patristic denunciations of merchants and traders per se. Another loosening of restrictions came with Alanus Anglicus, an English-born professor of canon law at Bologna, writing in the first two decades of the thirteenth century. Alanus declared that no torpe lucrum, or usury for that matter, could exist if the future price of a good was uncertain in the mind of the merchant. Not only is uncertainty always present in the market, but also it is impossible for outside courts or authorities to prove that a merchant did not feel uncertain when he bought or sold. In effect, all turpe lucrum restrictions on trade or speculation had now been removed. In analyzing business profits, the later thirteenth-century canonists added to the older justification of profit as covering labor plus expenses. This was the element of risk, present in every business situation. Increase of price as a consequence of risk was first justified in the prominent canon law commentaries of Pope Innocent IV, Sinibaldo Fieschi, published between 1246 and 1253. Before becoming Pope, Innocent had been a native of Genoa and a student of Roman and canon law at Bologna, a professor of Roman law at that university, and finally a cardinal and a famous statesman. If transactions were to be sinful and illegal beyond a certain zone above or below the just price, then the church and the authorities had to find some way of figuring out what the just price was supposed to be. This had not been a problem before the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, since the doctrine of Laesio Enormus had not really been applied before. The Romanist and Canonist solution, reminiscent of Carolingian doctrine, was that the just price was the going, current, common market price, the communis estimatio. This meant either the competitive general market price as contrasted to single isolated transactions, or it could refer to prices fixed by governments or government-privileged guilds, since such controls, by strict legality, would be the going de jure price. Perhaps it would have been beneath the dignity of these jurists to sanction or even recognize any black market prices that violated such regulations. Placentinus used this criterion in late 12th century Roman jurisprudence, as did in particular Azo in the early 13th. Azo was liberal enough to refer to the price of a sale equaling that of any other comparable sale as being a just price. But Accursius, and after him Odofredus, explicitly referred to the general or common market price as being the standard of justice. 
As Acursius put it, a thing was valued at that for which it could be commonly sold. The canon lawyers adopted the same criterion for the just price. Influenced by Carolingian practice and by hints from the 6th century rule of St. Benedict, the late 12th century canonist and student of Gratian, Simon of Bosignano, first described the true value of goods as the price for which they commonly sold. The same position was then taken by the Decretalists in the 13th century. Canonists and Romanists alike were now agreed on the common price of a good as the just one. But still the developed canonists of the 13th century had a problem. On the one hand, they had adopted the Roman law view that all free bargaining was legitimate except for a zone more than a certain degree above or beyond the just price, which they held to be the going common market price. But, on the other hand, they had inherited from the church fathers and the early decretists a hostility toward mercantile, especially speculative, transactions. How could they square this contradiction? Partly, as we have seen, they were able to weaken the extent of shameful speculation. Also, from the thirteenth century on, the church and its canon lawyers largely solved the problem through the highly sensible doctrine of the two forums over which the church exercised jurisdiction. The external forum, the jus fori, judged the social activities of Christians in public ecclesiastical courts. There, the courts judged offenses against the church and her common law in much the same procedures as the secular courts. On the other hand, the internal forum, the jus poli, was the confessional, in which the priest judged individual Christians on the basis of their personal relation to God. The two forums were separate and distinct, the respective judgments on two different levels. While the church presumed to rule over both, the one was external and social, the other private and personal. The doctrine of the two forums enabled the canonists to resolve the seeming contradiction in canon law. The free bargaining, laesio enormis, common market principle, was the realm of external law and the open court, where, in other words, a roughly free market could prevail. On the other hand, the strictures against mercantile profits going beyond labor, costs, and risk were a matter not for the state and external law, but for conscience in the confessional. Even more obviously for the confessional alone were the injunctions against trade or speculation based on avarice as going beyond honorable need to support one's family. Clearly, only the man himself, internally in his conscience, could know his intentions. They were scarcely observable by external law. 5. THE CANONIST PROHIBITION OF USURY The great relaxation of moral and legal restrictions and prohibitions against trade that permeated the canonists and Romanists in the Middle Ages unfortunately did not apply to the stern prohibitions leveled against usury. 
Modern people think of usury as very high interest rates charged on a loan. But this was by no means the meaning until recent times. Classically, usury means any rate whatsoever charged on a loan, no matter how low. The prohibition of usury was a prohibition against any interest charge on a loan. With one exception, no one in the ancient world, whether in Greece, China, India, or Mesopotamia, prohibited interest. That exception was the Hebrews, who, in an expression of narrow tribal morality, permitted charging interest to non-Jews, but prohibited it among Jews. The fierce medieval Christian assault on usury is decidedly odd. For one thing, there is nothing in the Gospels or the early fathers, despite their hostility to trade, that can be construed as urging the prohibition of usury. In fact, the parable of the talents in Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, can easily be taken as approval for earning interest on commercial loans. The campaign against usury begins with the first church council in Nicaea in 325, which itself prohibited only the clergy from charging interest on a loan. But the Nicene Council grabbed on to one phrase of Psalm 14 in the Old Testament. Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? He that hath not put out his money to usury. And this was to become the favorite and virtually the only biblical text against usury during the Middle Ages. The Nicene injunctions were repeated in later 4th century councils at Elvira in Spain and at Carthage, and then in the 5th century Pope Leo I extended the prohibition to the laity as well, condemning lay usurers as indulging in turpe lucrum. Several local councils in Gaul in the 7th century repeated Leo's denunciation, as did Pope Adrian and several English church synods in the 8th century. But the prohibition of all usury enters secular legislation for the first time in the all-embracing totalitarian regime of the Emperor Charlemagne. At the fateful Imperial Synod of Aachen in 789, Charlemagne prohibited usury to everyone in his realm, lay and cleric alike. The prohibition was renewed and elaborated in the later council at Nijmegen in 806, where usury is defined for the first time as an exchange where more is demanded back than what is given so that from the time of Charlemagne usury was intensely held to be a special and particularly malevolent form of turpe lucrum, and attempts to relax this ban were fiercely resisted. The sweeping definition, more demanded than what is given, was repeated intact by canonists from the 10th century Regino of Prum through Evo of Chartres to Gratian. But oddly, though the hostility toward usury continued, and was indeed greatly strengthened among the canonists, the explicit basis for the antagonism changed considerably. 
During the first centuries of the Christian era, usury was shameful as a form of avarice, or lack of charity. It was not yet considered a vicious sin against justice. As commerce began to revive and flourish in 11th century Europe, indeed, denouncing interest-taking as a form of lack of charity began to be considered wide of the mark, since charity had little to do with commercial loans. It was the Italian monk St. Anselm of Canterbury, 1033-1109, who first shifted the ground of attack to rail against usury as theft. This new doctrine was developed by St. Anselm's disciple, Anselm of Lucca, a fellow Italian and native of a city with a burgeoning textile industry. In his collection of canons, made about 1066, Anselm of Lucca explicitly condemned usury as theft and a sin against the seventh commandment, and demanded restitution of usuries to the borrower as stolen goods. This expansion of theft to a voluntary contract where no coercion was used was surely bizarre. And yet this outrageous new concept caught hold, and was repeated by Hugh of St. Victor, 1096-1141, and by the collections of Evo of Chartres. In 1139, the Second Lateran Council of the Church explicitly prohibited usury to all men, laity as well as clergy, and held all usurers to be infamous. The council vaguely declared that the Old and New Testaments mandated such a prohibition, but gave no explicit reference. Nine years later, Pope Eugene III moved against the common practice of monasteries charging interest on mortgages. Finally, the canon law reached mature form with the Decretum of Gratian, Gratian hammers away against usury with whatever weapons he can find, from Psalm 14 to the new view that usury is theft and therefore requires restitution. Expounding on the strict prohibition of usury, Gratian extended it to the loan of goods as well as money, so long as anything is demanded beyond the principle and he expressly declared that in such a case the just price was not the common market price, but zero, that is, the exact equivalent of the goods or money lent. The great decretalist Pope Alexander III might have been inclined towards a free market in other areas, but on the usury question he merely deepened and extended the ban, applying the condemnation to charging higher prices for credit than for cash sales. This practice was denounced as implicit usury, even though it was not explicitly interest on a loan. The Third Lateran Council, presided over by Pope Alexander III in 1179, condemned usury and excommunicated and denied Christian burial to all manifest usurers. The next pope, Urban III, 1185-1187, in his decretal Consoluit, dredged up a previously unused citation from Jesus, Lend freely, hoping nothing thereby. Luke, 
chapter 6, verse 35, which from then on became the centerpiece of the theological condemnation of usury as a mortal sin. And not only that, even the very hope of obtaining usury was supposed to be a virtually equivalent sin. So pervasive was the canonist obsession with usury that Gratian, his predecessors, and his successors largely worked out their theories of sale, profit, or just price in terms of whether or not any particular transaction fell under the dread rubric of usury. Thus, late 12th century decretists like Simon of Bosignano in 1179 and the great Hugucio in 1188 maintained the strict prohibition of any interest charged on a loan as usury, while allowing the renting of a good or buying cheap in order to sell dear as not being cases of usury. Huguccio's tortured moral distinction maintained that a comodatum, a rental contract that transferred only the use of a good, was somehow morally very different from a mutuum, a pure loan where ownership was transferred for a time. Charging for a lease, a comodatum was all right, because the owner retains ownership and charges for the use of his own good. But somehow it becomes sinful when a lender charges for the use of a good which he no longer temporarily owns. Profits on trade, too, could be legitimate and lawful as a reward for risk, but interest on a loan, where the risk is borne by the borrower and not the lender, was always usury. The later decretalists attempting to combat practices of merchants in disguising usury in various contracts pressed on to condemn such contracts as implicit usury, provided, as we have seen in treatment of sales contracts, that there is no uncertainty on the future price in the minds of buyer and seller. The early 13th century canonist Alanus Anglicus declared that if there was uncertainty in such a contract, and buyer and seller stood equal chance to gain or lose, usury did not exist. Providing the first real, if small, loophole in the sweeping prohibition against usury, Anglicus explained that this form of implicit usury could exist only in the mind and could not be subject to legal enforcement. This uncertainty loophole was widened slightly in the decretals of Gregory IX. On the other hand, the canonists persisted in cracking down on evasions of the usury ban, which the market kept creatively inventing. Contracts providing for deferred payment on a sale were treated with suspicion, and very high prices in such a contract were taken by the canonists to prove intent to commit usury beyond a reasonable doubt. The decretals also went so far as to condemn creditors charging interest for loans to traveling merchants, even though the canonists realized that the interest was a direct compensation for risks. Although canonists after Innocent IV began to talk of risks justifying profits, 
so that a profit on risky investments was considered perfectly justified, any interest on a pure loan, or mutuum, was condemned as usury, despite reasonably mitigating circumstances. The usury prohibition was the tragic flaw in the economic views of medieval jurists and theologians. The prohibition was economically irrational, depriving marginal borrowers and high credit risks of any borrowed capital whatever. It had no groundwork in natural law, and virtually none in Old or New Testament teachings. And yet it was clung to fiercely throughout the Middle Ages, so that jurists and theologians had to engage in ingenious and artful twists in reasoning in order to make exceptions from the prohibition and to accommodate the growing practice of lending money and charging interest on a loan. And yet the medievalists, especially the later philosophers and theologians, had a fascinating and important point. For what was the moral or economic justification for interest on a pure loan? As we will see, medieval scholastics came to understand full well the economic and moral justifications for almost every aspect of interest charges, as an implicit profit on risk, as an opportunity foregone for making profits on investments, and many others. But why is there still interest charged on a simple, riskless, non-opportunity foregone loan? That answer was not to come fully until the Austrian school of the late 19th century. Where the scholastics were gravely lacking was in not realizing that if interest was paid as well as charged voluntarily, that in itself is sufficient moral justification and further, that there must have been an economic explanation, even though economic science had not yet discovered it. The first systematic breach in the usury prohibition came with the last of the 13th century canonists, Cardinal Hostiensis. In addition to having been a distinguished law professor, Hostiensis was a worldly cosmopolite, having been the ambassador of Henry III to his friend, Pope Innocent IV. First, Hostiensis reverted to the old, milder tradition that usury is uncharitable, but not a sin against justice. Then he listed no less than thirteen instances in which the usury prohibition could be broken and interest charged on a loan. One is as surety required by the guarantor of a loan. Another, that a seller may charge a higher price for a good sold on credit than for cash, provided that there is uncertainty, as indeed there always is, about the future price of the commodity. Another important exception allowed a creditor to write a penalty clause into a loan, so that the debtor would have to pay a penalty above the principal if he did not repay on the date due. This, of course, paved the way for covert agreement on both sides to delay payment so as to allow the penalty. Another exception was that the creditor might charge for labor which he undertook in making the particular loan. 
These were all some form of penalty or special payment. But, in addition, Hostiensis provided the first path-breaking argument for charging a rate of interest on a loan from the very beginning, a charge that does not involve delay or guarantees. This is lucrum cessans, profit-ceasing, a legitimate interest charge by the creditor to compensate him for profit foregone in investing the money himself. In short, lucrum cessans anticipated the Austrian concept of opportunity cost, of income foregone, and applied it to the charging of interest. Unfortunately, however, Cardinal Hostiensis' use of lucrum cessans was limited to non-habitual lenders who lend money out of charity to a debtor. Thus lenders could not be in the business of charging money on a loan, even on the ground of lucrum cessans. Another exception made by Hostiensis also provided an open channel for the charging of interest on loans. He allowed the debtor to give a free gift to the creditor, so long as the gift was not required by the creditor. But in that case, debtors, in particular Florentine bankers who received deposits, felt obliged to make gifts to their depositors, else the depositors would shift their funds to competitors who habitually made such gifts. The making of a fake gift became an important mechanism in allowing the de facto charging of interest. 6. Theologians at the University of Paris Theology in the Middle Ages was the queen of the sciences, that is, the intellectual disciplines offering truth and wisdom. But theology had fallen on bad times during the Dark Ages, and the Roman and canon lawyers were left to apply ethical systems to law and human affairs. Theology began to flourish again in the early twelfth century at the University of Paris, under the famous Peter Abelard. From then on, Paris was the equivalent center for theology during the High Middle Ages that Bologna was for Roman and canon law. But during the remainder of the twelfth century, the theologians were content to ponder and work out metaphysical and ontological questions, and to leave social ethics to the jurists. It was typical of twelfth-century theologians when Peter of Poitiers, later to become the dominant regent of theology at the Cathedral School of Notre Dame in Paris, declared that such doubtful questions as usury should be left to the canon lawyers. After the turn of the thirteenth century, however, when canon and Roman law theories were already far advanced, the new university-trained philosopher-theologians turned to problems of social ethics with a will. Even before the turn of the thirteenth century, such influential theologians at the University of Paris as Rodolphus Ardant and the Englishman, later Cardinal, Stephen Langton, began to write on problems of justice. 
Unfortunately, in dealing with the concept of just price, the theologians did not follow the Romanists and Canonists in the sensible view that the free bargaining or market price is legitimate so long as it stays within a broad zone of the just price. To the Paris theologians it was immoral, sinful, and illicit for the market price to be anything other than the just price. This, of course, meant that the just price became a weapon of compulsion instead of a broadly held standard. Ardant included a just price as a crucial criterion of a just sale. More emphatically, his colleague and author of the first constitution of the University of Paris, the Englishman and later Cardinal Robert of Courson, died 1219, writing about 1204, termed selling goods above the just price an illicit practice, and the eminent Stephen Langton sternly called any seller who accepts more than the just price guilty of a mortal sin. The theologians were well aware of their profound disagreement with the jurists, but clung to their new and extreme views. Thus, William of Auxerre, 1160-1229, professor of theology at Paris, in 1220 wrote that divine law, which commanded that no sale be higher than the just price, must supersede human law, which followed Laesio Enormus. And his colleague, the Englishman Thomas Chabham, also writing about 1220, fanatically insisted that divine law demanded restitution from the seller, even if the seller were only mistaken, and the mistake was only a penny. If the theologians insisted that the just price must be strictly obeyed, then what in the world was it? While few of the theologians address this critical matter directly, it is clear that what they had in mind was the same just price as the canonists and Romanists, namely the current price at the particular place, either the common market or the government fixed price, if such a regulation existed. The late 12th century Paris theologian Peter Cantor died 1197, in treating the function of royal assessors, asserted that the just value of goods is their current price. More succinctly, the great Franciscan theologian at Paris in the first half of the 13th century, the Englishman Alexander of Hales, 1168-1245, declared concisely that a just estimation of the goods is as it is sold commonly in that city or place in which the sale occurs. Even more clearly, the renowned 13th-century German Dominican professor at Paris, St. Albert the Great, 1193-1280, put it thus, A price is just which can equal the value of the goods sold according to the estimation of the marketplace at that time. While the theologians, in wishing to enforce the current common price, were more restrictive than the canon or Roman jurists, they did constructive work in rehabilitating the image of the merchants from the low level to which they had sunk in the writings of the church fathers. 
As late as Peter Lombard, died 1160, Italian professor of theology at Paris and later bishop of Paris, the theologians had held the older view that a merchant could not perform his duties without sinning. The beginning of the full rehabilitation of the merchant came in the form of commentaries on the sentences of Peter Lombard. Strictly, the Sententiarum Quator Libri, 1150-1151. The commentators, particularly after the turn of the thirteenth century, engaged in a systematic justification of the merchant and of mercantile profit-making. In the first place, the leading sentence commentators, including the Dominican professors at Paris, St. Albert the Great, Commentary 1244-1249, Peter of Tarentes, later Pope Innocent V, died 1276, Commentary 1253-1257, as well as the Italian theologian at Paris, St. Bonaventure, 1221-1274, a student of Alexander of Hales, general of the Franciscan order and later cardinal, commentary 1250-1251, all declared that merchants were essential to society. This conception was strengthened by the rediscovery of the works of Aristotle by the early 13th century and the incorporation of Aristotelian philosophy into theology, first by Albert the Great and most especially by his great student, Thomas Aquinas. To these new Aristotelians and also to the English Franciscan Alexander of Hales, the division of labor was necessary to society, as was the concomitant mutual exchange of goods and services. This was the path of the natural law in society. More specifically, Thomas Chabham, despite his insistence on every penny of the just price, observed correctly that merchants performed the function of taking goods from areas of abundance and distributing them to areas of deficiency. Albert the Great repeated this insight later in the thirteenth century. If trading is a useful and even necessary activity, it follows that profits for maintaining such activity are justifiable. Hence the theologians reiterated the twelfth-century doctrine of the merchant being allowed to gain profits for the support of himself and his family. To the needs justification, the twelfth-century theologians added the lawful nature of making profits in order to give to charity. The Franciscan Alexander of Hales was perhaps the first to call it a just and pious motive for trading to perform works of charity and mercy. It was unworthy, however, echoing the Huguchian doctrine to gain profits for the sake of avarice, or endless and insatiable cupidity. If the laborer in the Christian tradition was worthy of his hire, Luke chapter 10 verse 7, then profits from the useful activities of the merchant could be justified as covering his labor, or rather his labor and expenses, as the jurists had already declared. Aquinas considered the earnings of the merchant a stipend for labor. 
For the theologians, labor consisted of several types, transporting goods, storage and care, and, as had come in with the thirteenth-century canonists, the assumption of risk. Thus mercantile profits were a payment or reward for the merchant's labor of transportation and storage, and his assumption of risk. The risk factor was stressed particularly by Alexander of Hales and St. Thomas Aquinas. It should be noted, in contrast to many later historians, that the purpose of the jurists' and the theologians' discussions of labor, cost, and risk was not to use these factors in determining the just price, which was simply the current common price, but to justify the profits obtained by the merchant. Robert of Courson was the first thirteenth-century theologian to add a natural law angle to the traditional, though flimsily grounded, theological denunciations of usury. Courson simply appropriated the canonist Huguccio's sophistical moral distinction between a lease and a loan, with the former being licit and the latter illicit, because ownership of the money had temporarily been shifted to the borrower. More influential was fellow Parisian theologian William of Auxerre, who added a string of new fallacies to the mounting intensity of the church's assault upon usury. William ranted that usury was intrinsically evil and monstrous, without really explaining why. He also did one better on the standard likening of usury to theft by actually comparing usury to murder, to the detriment of the former. Killing, he said, can sometimes be licit, since only certain forms of killing are sinful. But usury is sinful everywhere and can never be licit. Since usury, according to William of Auxerre, is sinful by its very nature, this made it a violation of the natural law, in addition to its other alleged iniquities. On why usury was a sin against the natural law, William was unclear. One of his innovative arguments in the anti-usury parade was that a man who charges interest on a loan is trying to sell time, which is properly the common property of all creatures. Since time is supposed to be common and free, William of Auxerre and later theologians could therefore use this argument to condemn as usury not merely a loan, but also charging a higher price for credit than for cash sales. In adding the free time argument, William unwittingly touched on the later Austrian solution to the problem of pure interest on a riskless loan. The sale not of time, to be sure, but of time preference, where the creditor is selling the debtor money, a present good, a good useful now, in exchange for an IOU for the future, which is a future good, a good only available at some point in the future. But since everyone prefers a present good to an equivalent future good, the universal fact of time preference, the lender will charge, and the borrower will be willing to pay, interest on a loan. 
Interest is, then, the price of time preference. The failure of the scholastics to understand or arrive at the concept of time preference was to do more than anything else to discredit scholastic economics because of its implacable hostility to and condemnation of the universal practice of usury. William of Ozaire also tried to grapple with the voluntarist argument. How could the usury charge be evil and unjust if paid voluntarily by the borrower? In surely one of the silliest arguments in the history of economic thought, William of Ozaire conceded that the borrower's payment of interest was voluntary, but added that the borrower would have preferred a free loan still more so that, in an absolute rather than a conditional sense, the interest charge was not voluntary. William somehow failed to see that the same could be said of the buyer of any product, since any buyer would prefer a free good to the charge of any price. We could then conclude that all free exchanges are involuntary and sinful in an absolute sense. Despite the manifest absurdity of this argument, the conditional voluntary as well as the other new arguments of William of Ozaire were highly influential and immediately incorporated into the standard theological arguments against usury. The German Dominican St. Albert the Great performed the enormous service to philosophy of bringing Aristotle and Aristotelianism back to Western thought. Born in Bavaria to an aristocratic family, Albert was for a time German provincial of the Dominican order and bishop of Regensburg. But for most of his long life he taught at the universities of Paris and Cologne. Unfortunately, Albert was not nearly as good an economist as he was a philosopher, and in many ways he took scholastic economics down the wrong road. It is true that he performed the service of teaching his great pupil, St. Thomas Aquinas, that the just price is the common market price, and that the merchant is performing a legitimate social role. On the other hand, Albert unfortunately added the Aristotelian attack on usury as an unnatural breeding of a barren metal to the accumulated hodgepodge of all the other arguments against interest. St. Albert did not realize that Aristotle's attack on usury was only part and parcel of the latter's denunciation of all retail trade, since the Latin translation of Aristotle available to Albert rendered the Greek term for retail trade as a Latin word meaning money-changing. Hence Albert adopted this argument by mistake since he would certainly not have gone along with the Aristotelian idea that all retail trade was unnatural and sinful. Albert also did great damage to future thought in another of his misinterpretations of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Somehow he interpreted the Aristotelian determinant of value not as consumer needs or utility, but as labor and expenses, thus at least partially prefiguring the later labor theory of value. 7. The Philosopher-Theologian, 
St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225-1274, was the towering intellect of the High Middle Ages, the man who built on the philosophical system of Aristotle, on the concept of natural law, and on Christian theology, to forge Thomism, a mighty synthesis of philosophy, theology, and the sciences of man. This young Italian was born an aristocrat, son of Landolf, Count of Aquino at Roccosecca, in the kingdom of Naples. Thomas studied at an early age with the Benedictines, and later at the University of Naples. At the age of fifteen he tried to enter the new Dominican order, a place for church intellectuals and scholars, but was physically prevented from doing so by his parents, who kept him confined for two years. Finally, St. Thomas escaped, joined the Dominicans, and then studied at Cologne and finally at Paris under his revered teacher, Albert the Great. Aquinas took his doctorate at the University of Paris and taught there as well as at other university centers in Europe. Aquinas was so immensely corpulent that it was said that a large section had to be carved out of the round dinner table so that he could sit at it. Aquinas wrote numerous works, beginning with his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences in the 1250s, and ending with his masterful and enormously influential three-part Summa Theologica, written between 1265 and 1273. It was the Summa, more than any other work, that was to establish Thomism as the mainstream of Catholic scholastic theology in centuries to come. Until recently, historical studies of the just price typically began with St. Thomas, as if the entire discussion had suddenly leapt into being in the ample person of Aquinas in the thirteenth century. We have seen, however, that Aquinas worked in a long and rich canonist, Romanist, and theological tradition. It is not surprising that Aquinas followed his revered teacher, St. Albert, and the other theologians of the previous century in insisting on the just price for all exchanges, and, not being content with the more liberal legist creed of free bargaining up to the alleged point of laesio enormis, in asserting that divine law, which must take precedence over human law, demands complete virtue, or the precise just price. Unfortunately, in discussing the just price, St. Thomas stored up great trouble for the future by being vague about what precisely the just price is supposed to be. As a founder of a system built on the great Aristotle, Aquinas, following St. Albert before him, felt obliged to incorporate the Aristotelian analysis of exchange into his theory, with all the ambiguities and obscurities that that entailed. St. Thomas was clearly an Aristotelian in adopting the latter's trenchant view that the determinant of exchange value was the need or utility of consumers, as expressed in their demand for products. And so, this proto-Austrian aspect of value based on demand and utility was reinstated in economic thought, 
On the other hand, Aristotle's erroneous view of exchange as equating values was rediscovered, along with the indecipherable shoemaker-builder ratio. Unfortunately, in the course of the commentary to the Nicomachean Ethics, Thomas followed St. Albert in seeming to add to utility, as a determinant of exchange value, labor plus expenses. This gave hostage to the later idea that St. Thomas had either added to Aristotle's utility theory of value a cost-of-production theory, labor plus expenses, or even replaced utility by a cost theory. Some commentators have even declared that Aquinas had adopted a labor theory of value, capped by the notorious and triumphant sentence by the twentieth-century Anglican socialist historian Richard Henry Tawney. The true descendant of the doctrines of Aquinas is the labor theory of value, the last of the schoolmen is Karl Marx. It has taken historians several decades to recover from Tawney's disastrous misinterpretation. Indeed, the scholastics were sophisticated thinkers and social economists who favored trade and capitalism, and advocated the common market price as the just price, with the exception of the problem of usury. Even in value theory, the labor-plus-expenses discussion in Aquinas is an anomaly, for labor-plus-expenses, never just labor, appears only in Aquinas's commentary and not in the Summa, his magnum opus. Moreover, we have seen that labor-plus-expenses was a formula generally used in Aquinas's times to justify the profits of merchants, rather than as a means of determining economic value. It is therefore likely that Aquinas was using the concept in this sense, making the sensible point that a merchant who failed in the long run to cover his costs and not to make profits would go out of business. In addition, there are many indications that Aquinas adhered to the common view of the churchman of his and previous times, that the just price was the common market price. If so, then he could scarcely also hold that the just price equaled cost of production, since the two can and do differ. Thus his conclusion in the Summa was that the value of economic goods is that which comes into human use and is measured by a monetary price, for which purpose money was invented. Particularly revealing was a reply Aquinas made as early as 1262 in a letter to Jacopo da Viterbo, died 1308 a lector of the Dominican monastery in Florence and later Archbishop of Naples. In his letter, Aquinas referred to the common market price as the normative and just price with which to compare other contracts. Moreover, in the Summa, Aquinas notes the influence of supply and demand on prices. A more abundant supply in one place will tend to lower price in that place, and vice versa. 
Furthermore, St. Thomas described without at all condemning the activities of merchants in making profits by buying goods where they were abundant and cheap, and then transporting and selling them in places where they are dear. None of this looks like a cost-of-production view of the just price. Finally, and most charmingly and crucially, Aquinas, in his great Summa, raised a question that had been discussed by Cicero. A merchant is carrying grain to a famine-stricken area. He knows that soon other merchants are following him with many more supplies of grain. Is the merchant obliged to tell the starving citizenry of the supplies coming soon, and thereby suffer a lower price? Or is it all right for him to keep silent and reap the rewards of a high price? To Cicero, the merchant was duty-bound to disclose his information and sell at a lower price. But St. Thomas argued differently. Since the arrival of the later merchants was a future event, and therefore uncertain, Aquinas declared justice did not require him to tell his customers about the impending arrival of his competitors. He could sell his own grain at the prevailing market price for that area, even though it was extremely high. Of course, Aquinas went on amiably, if the merchant wished to tell his customers anyway, that would be especially virtuous, but justice did not require him to do so. There is no starker example of Aquinas's opting for the just price as the current price, determined by demand and supply, rather than the cost of production which, of course, did not change much from the area of abundance to the famine area. A piece of indirect evidence is that Giles of Lessines, died circa 1304, a student of Albert and Aquinas and a Dominican professor of theology at Paris, analyzed the just price similarly, and flatly declared that it was the common market price. Giles stressed, furthermore, that a good is properly worth as much as it can be sold for, without coercion or fraud. It should come as no surprise that Aquinas, in contrast to Aristotle, was highly favorable towards the activities of the merchant. Mercantile profit, he declared, was a stipend for the merchant's labor, and a reward for shouldering the risks of transportation. In a commentary to Aristotle's Politics, 1272, Aquinas noted shrewdly that greater risks in sea transportation resulted in greater profits for merchants. In his Commentary to the Sentences of Peter Lombard, written in the 1250s, Thomas followed preceding theologians in arguing that merchants could ply their trade without committing sin. But in his later work, he was far more positive, pointing out that merchants perform the important function of bringing goods from where they are abundant to where they are scarce. Particularly important was Aquinas's brief outline of the mutual benefit each person derives from exchange. As he put it in the Summa, 
buying and selling seems to have been instituted for the mutual advantage of both parties, since one needs something that belongs to the other, and conversely. Building on Aristotle's theory of money, Aquinas pointed out its indispensability as a medium of exchange, a measure of expression of values, and a unit of account. In contrast to Aristotle, Aquinas was not frightened at the idea of the value of money fluctuating on the market. On the contrary, Aquinas recognized that the purchasing power of money was bound to fluctuate, and was content if it fluctuated, as it usually did, more stably than did particular prices. It was the peculiar fate of the usury prohibition in the Middle Ages that every time it seemed to be weakening in the face of reality, theorists would strengthen the ban. At a time when the highly sophisticated and knowledgeable Cardinal Hostiensis was seeking to soften the prohibition, St. Thomas Aquinas unfortunately tightened it once more. Like his teacher, St. Albert, Aquinas added the Aristotelian objection to the medieval ban on usury, except that Aquinas also inserted something new. In the medieval tradition of starting with the conclusion, the crushing of usury, and seizing any odd argument to hand which might lead to it, Aquinas added a new twist to Aristotelian doctrine. Instead of stressing the barrenness of money as a major argument against usury, Aquinas seized on the term measure, and stressed that since money, in terms of money, of course, has a fixed legal face value, this means that the formal nature of money must be to remain fixed. The purchasing power of money can fluctuate due to changes in the supply of goods, that is legitimate and natural. But when the holder of money sets out to produce variations in its value by charging interest, he violates the nature of money, and is therefore sinful and mindless of the natural law. That such errant nonsense should swiftly assume a central place in all later scholastic prohibitions of usury is testimony to the way that irrationality can seize the thought of even so great a champion of reason as Aquinas and his followers. Why the fixed legal face value of a coin should mean that its value in exchange, at least from the side of money, should not change, or why the charging of interest should be confused with a change in the purchasing power of money, simply testifies to the human propensity for fallacy, especially when prohibiting usury had already become the overriding goal. But Aquinas's argument against usury involved another invention of his own. Money, to him, is totally consumed. It disappears in exchange. Therefore, money's use is equivalent to its ownership. Hence, when one charges interest on a loan, one is charging twice, for the money itself and for its use, although they are one and the same. 
Highlighting this odd thesis was Aquinas' discussion of why it was legitimate for an owner of money to charge rent for someone to display a coin. In that case, there is a bailment, a charge for keeping one's money in trust. But the reason why this charge is licit for Aquinas is that the display of money is only a secondary use, a use separate from its ownership, since money is not consumed or does not disappear in the process. The primary use of money is to disappear in the purchase of goods. There are several grave problems with this new weapon invented by Aquinas with which to beat usury. First, what is wrong with charging twice for ownership and use? Second, even if somehow wrong, this act scarcely bears the weight of sin and excommunication that the Catholic Church had loaded for centuries upon the hapless usurer. And third, if Aquinas had looked beyond the legal formalism of money and at the goods which the borrower purchased with his loan, he might have seen that these purchased goods were, in an important sense, fruitful, so that while the money disappeared in purchases, in an economic sense the goods equivalent of money was retained by the borrower. St. Thomas's stress on consumption of money led to a curious shift on the usury question. In contrast to all theorists since Gratian, the sin now became not charging interest on a loan per se, but only on a good, money, that disappears. Therefore, for Aquinas, charging interest on a loan of goods in kind would not be condemned as usury. But if the usury prohibition on money was tightened with new arguments, Aquinas continued and strengthened the previous tradition of justifying investments in a partnership, societas. A societas was licit because each partner retained ownership of his money and ran the risk of loss. Hence, profit on such risky investments was legitimate. In the late eleventh century, Evo of Chartres had already briefly distinguished a societas from a usurious loan and the distinction was elaborated in the early 13th century by the theologian Robert of Courson, circa 1204, and in John Teutonicus's Gloss on Gratian, 1215. Courson had made it clear that even an inactive partner risked his capital in an enterprise, this, of course, meant that types of inactive partnerships, such as sea loans for specific voyages, slid over into actual loans, and the lines were often fuzzy. Besides, and this was a problem that no one at the time would face, wasn't any lender necessarily risking his capital, since a borrower could always turn out to be unable to repay even the principal of a loan? Aquinas now lent his enormous authority to the view that the societas was perfectly licit and not usurious. He succinctly declared that the investor of money does not transfer ownership to a working partner, 
that ownership is retained by the investor, so that he risks his money and can legitimately earn a profit on the investment. The trouble with this, however, is that Aquinas here abandons his own thesis that the ownership of money is the same thing as its use. For the use of the money was transferred to the working partner, and therefore, on St. Thomas's own grounds, he should have condemned all partnerships, as well as the societas, as illicit and usurious. Confronting a thirteenth-century world in which the societas flourished and was crucial to commercial and economic life, it was unthinkable to Aquinas that he should throw the economy into chaos by condemning this well-established instrument of trade and finance. Instead of ownership going with the use of a consumable item, then, Aquinas now advanced the idea of ownership going with incidents of risk. The investor risks his capital. Therefore, he retains ownership of his investment. A seemingly sensible way out, but flimsy. Not only did Aquinas thereby contradict his own bizarre ownership theory, he also failed to realize that, after all, not all ownership need be particularly risky. Another problem is that the risk-taker is making a profit on the investment of money, which is supposed to be sterile. Instead of stating that all profit should go to the working partner, St. Thomas explicitly says that the capitalist rightly receives the gain coming thence, that is, from the use of his money, as from his own property. It looks very much as if St. Thomas is here treating money as fertile and productive, providing an independent reward to the capitalist. Yet, despite the inner contradictions rife in St. Thomas's treatment of usury and the societas, his entire doctrine continued to be dominant for two hundred years. Finally, Aquinas was a firm believer in the superiority of private to communal property and resource ownership. Private ownership becomes a necessary feature of man's earthly state, it is the best guarantee of a peaceful and orderly society, and it provides maximum incentive for the care and efficient use of property. Thus, in the Summa, St. Thomas keenly writes, Every man is more careful to procure what is for himself alone than that which is common to many or to all since each one would shirk the labor and leave to another that which concerns the community, as happens where there are a great number of servants. Furthermore, developing the Roman law theory of acquisition, Aquinas, anticipating the famous theory of John Locke, grounded the right of original acquisition of property on two basic factors, labor and occupation. The initial right of each person is to ownership over his own self, in Aquinas's view, in a proprietary right over himself. Such individual self-ownership is based on the capacity of man as a rational being. 
Next, cultivation and use of previously unused land establishes a just property title in the land in one man, rather than in others. St. Thomas's theory of acquisition was further clarified and developed by his close student and disciple, John of Paris, Jean Kidor, circa 1250-1306, a member of the same Dominican community of St. Jacques in Paris as Aquinas. Championing the absolute right of private property, Kidor declared that lay property is acquired by individual people through their own skill, labor, and diligence, and individuals as individuals have right and power over it and valid lordship. Each person may order his own and dispose, administer, hold, or alienate it as he wishes, so long as he causes no injury to anyone else, since he is Lord. This homesteading theory of property has been held by many historians to be the ancestor of the Marxian labor theory of value. But this charge confuses two very different things— determination of the economic value or price of a good, and a decision on how unused resources are to go over into private hands. The Aquinas-John-of-Paris-Locke view is the labor theory, defining labor as the expenditure of human energy rather than working for a wage of the origin of property, not a labor theory of value. In contrast to his forerunner Aristotle, labor for Aquinas was scarcely to be despised. On the contrary, labor is a dictate of positive, natural, and divine law. Aquinas is very much aware that God in the Bible gave the dominion over all the earth to man for his use. Man's function is to take the materials provided by nature, and, by discerning natural law, to mold that reality to achieve his purposes. While Aquinas scarcely has any conception of economic growth or capital accumulation, he clearly posits man as active molder of his life. Gone is the passive Greek ideal of conforming to given conditions or to the requirements of the polis. Perhaps St. Thomas's most important contribution concerned the underpinning or framework of economics, rather than strictly economic matters. For in reviving and building on Aristotle, St. Thomas introduced and established in the Christian world a philosophy of natural law, a philosophy in which human reason is able to master the basic truths of the universe. In the hands of Aquinas, as in Aristotle, philosophy, with reason as its instrument of knowledge, became once again the queen of the sciences. Human reason demonstrated the reality of the universe, and of the natural law of discoverable classes of entities. Human reason could know about the nature of the world, and it could therefore know the proper ethics for mankind. Ethics, then, became decipherable by reason. This rationalist tradition cut against the fideism of the earlier Christian church. 
the debilitating idea that only faith and supernatural revelation can provide an ethics for mankind. Debilitating because if the faith is lost, then ethics is lost as well. Thomism, in contrast, demonstrated that the laws of nature, including the nature of mankind, provided the means for man's reason to discover a rational ethics. To be sure, God created the natural laws of the universe, but the apprehension of these natural laws was possible whether or not one believed in God as Creator. In this way, a rational ethic for man was provided on a truly scientific rather than on a supernatural foundation. In the subset of natural law theory that deals with rights, St. Thomas led a swing back from the twelfth-century concept of a right as a claim on others rather than as an inviolable area of property right of the dominion of an individual, to be defended from all others. In a brilliant work, Professor Richard Tuck points out that early Roman law was marked by an active property right dominion view of rights, while the later twelfth-century Romanists at Bologna converted the concept of right to the passive listing of claims on other men, this passive as opposed to active concept of rights reflected the network of interwoven customary and status claims that marked the Middle Ages. This is, in an important sense, the ancestor of the modern assertion of such claim rights as the right to a job, the right to three square meals a day, etc., all of which can only be fulfilled by coercing others to obtain them. At 13th century Bologna, however, Accursius began a swing back to an active property rights theory, with the property of each individual a dominion which must be defended against all others. Aquinas adopted the idea of a natural dominion without, however, going all the way to a genuine natural rights theory, which asserts that private property is natural and not a convention created by society or government. Aquinas was moved to adopt the dominion theory because of the mighty late 13th century ideological battles between the Dominican and Franciscan orders. The Franciscans, committed to total poverty, claimed that their subsistence use of resources was not really private property. This pleasant fiction enabled the Franciscans to claim that, in their state of voluntary poverty, they had risen above the ownership or possession of property. They maintained, oddly, that purely consumption use of resources, such as they engaged in, did not imply the possession of property. Supposedly, the sale or giving away of a resource was necessary to qualify it as property. Self-sufficiency or isolation did not, according to the Franciscan view, allow property to exist. The rival Dominicans, including Aquinas, understandably upset by this claim, began to insist that all use necessarily implied dominion, 
the possession and control of resources, and, therefore, property. 8. Late 13th Century Scholastics Franciscans and Utility Theory The first victory in the struggle over property right concepts was won by the Franciscans, whose theory was upheld by their protector, Pope Nicholas III, in his bull, Exeat, issued in 1279. This dominant theory was elaborated by the first great critic of Thomism, the British Franciscan scholastic John Duns Scotus, 1265-1308, professor of theology at Oxford and later at Paris. Aquinas had maintained that neither private nor communal property was a necessary feature of the state of nature, so that one condition was no more natural than the other. Scotus, on the contrary, boldly maintained that in a state of natural innocence, both natural and divine law decree that all resources be held in common, so that no private property or dominion may exist. In this supposedly idyllic primitive communism, each person may take what he needs from the common store. Wright's theory was scarcely the only Franciscan deviation from mainline Thomism. As fideists, the Franciscans harked back to earlier Christian tradition before it had been superseded by the rationalism of St. Thomas. They began, therefore, to deprecate the idea of a rational ethics, and hence of natural law. In the matter of rights theory, at least, the Franciscans were soon smashed. Reacting against the Franciscans, Pope John XXII issued his famous bull, Quia Vir Reprobus, 1329. Quia asserted, trenchantly, that God's dominion over the earth was reflected in man's dominion, or property, over his material possessions. Property rights, therefore, were not, as even Aquinas had believed, a product of positive law or social convention, they were rooted in man's nature, as created by divine law. Property rights were therefore natural and coextensive with man's actions in the material world. The Franciscans were effectively routed on this point. It was now established, as Richard Tuck puts it, that property was a basic fact about human beings, on which their social and political concepts had to be posited. In more strictly economic matters, Franciscans could either adhere to or deviate from the mainline Thomist concept of the just price. Scotus himself set forth a deviationist view— in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences, Scotus elaborated a minority view that many historians have wrongly attributed to scholasticism as a whole, that the just price was the merchant's cost of production plus compensation for the industry, labor, and risk involved in bringing his product to market. The compensation, furthermore, was supposed to provide adequate support for the family of the merchant. 
In this way, labor plus expenses plus risk, previously employed to justify whatever profits the merchant might obtain, was now transformed into the determinant of the just price. Scotus made this cost of production a theory of just price, in contrast to the long-standing mainstream scholastic view that the just price was the common price on the market. Although a Franciscan, the British scholastic at the University of Paris, Richard of Middleton, circa 1249 to 1306, followed the economic doctrine of Aquinas and stressed need and utility as the determinants of economic value, the just price, following the main scholastic line, was equivalent to the common market price determined by these needs. Middleton also underlined Aquinas's vitally important concept that both parties to an exchange benefit. Becoming more precise than Aquinas, Middleton pointed out that, say, when a horse is sold for money, both the buyer and the seller gain from the transaction, since the buyer demonstrates that he needs the horse more than the money, while the seller prefers the money to the horse. In addition to developing this crucial concept of mutual benefit, Richard of Middleton was the first to apply that concept to international trade. International trade, as well as individual exchange, brings mutual benefits. Middleton illustrated this idea by postulating two countries— Country A, which has a superabundance of grain but a dearth of wine, and Country B, which has an abundance of wine but little grain. Both countries will then benefit by exchanging their respective surpluses. The merchants will also profit by transporting grain from Country A, where it is abundant and its price is therefore cheap, to Country B, where it is scarce and commands a high price. Merchants will also profit by the reverse traffic, shipping wine from country B, where its price is low, to A, where its price is high. By buying and selling at current market prices, the merchants are trading at the just price, and make a profit, yet exploit no one. The merchants are justly compensated for performing a useful service, and for taking trouble and risks. The only point missed by Middleton in this sophisticated analysis is that the actions of the various merchants will move toward equalizing prices in the two countries. An even more dazzling contribution to economic thought was made by a Provençal Franciscan friar, for many years lector at Florence. Pierre de Jean Olivy, 1248 to 1298, in two treatises on contracts, one on usury and the other on purchases and sales, pointed out that economic value was determined by three factors, scarcity, raritas, usefulness, virtuositas, and desirability, or desiredness, complacibilitas. The effect of scarcity, or what we would now call supply, is clear. The scarcer a product, the more valuable it is, and therefore the higher the price. 
The more abundant the product, the greater the supply, on the other hand, the lower the value and the price. Olivier's remarkable contribution was to investigate the previously vague concept of need or utility. Aquinas's student and disciple, the Dominican Giles of Lessine, teaching at the University of Paris, had taken the utility concept a step further by stating that goods are more or less valuable on the market according to the degree of their utility. But now Olivier separated utility into two parts. One was virtuositas, or the objective utility of a good, the objective power it has to satisfy human wants. But, as Olivier explains, the important factor in determining price is complacibilitas, or subjective utility, the subjective desirability of a product to the individual consumers. Furthermore, Olivier squarely confronted the paradox of value which would later confound Adam Smith and the classical economists, and did far better than they at solving it. The value paradox is that a good such as water or bread, essential to life, and therefore, according to the classical economists, having a high use value, should be very cheap and have a low value on the market. At the same time, in contrast, gold or diamonds, non-essential luxuries, and therefore of far lower use value, have far higher exchange value on the market. The classical economists of the 18th and 19th centuries simply threw up their hands at this paradox, and unsatisfactorily posed a sharp dichotomy between use and exchange value. Olivier, on the other hand, pointed to the solution. Water, though necessary to human life, is so highly abundant and easily available that it commands a very low price on the market, while gold is far more scarce and therefore more valuable. Utility in the determination of price is relative to supply and not absolute. The complete solution to the value paradox had to wait for the Austrian school of the late 19th century. The marginal utility, the value of each unit of a good, diminishes as its supply increases. Thus a superabundant good, such as bread or water, will have a low marginal utility, while a rare good, such as gold, will have a high one. The value of a good on the market, and therefore its price, is determined by its marginal utility, not the philosophical utility of the good as a whole or in the abstract. But, of course, before the Austrians, the marginal concept was lacking. The marketplace for Olivier, then, was an arena in which prices for goods are formed out of the interaction of individuals with differing subjective utilities and valuations of the good. Just market prices, then, are not determined by referring to the objective qualities of the good, but by the interaction of subjective preferences on the market.
In addition to his monumental achievement in being the first to discover subjective utility theory, Olivier was the first to bring into economic thought the concept of capital, capitale, as a fund of money invested in a business venture. The term capital had appeared in numerous business records since the mid-twelfth century, but this is the first time it was conceptualized. The concept of capital was used by Olivier to show that it was possible to use money in a fruitful way, to gain a profit. Olivier retained the usury ban where capital was invested without being altered in some way by the labor and industry of the investor. However, Olivier was one of the minority of scholastics to adopt the hostiensis allowance of lucrum cessans permitting an interest charge on a loan wherever the profit on an investment was foregone in the process. Unfortunately, Olivier continued Hostiensis' careful limitation of confining lucrum cessans to loans granted out of charity, so that the activities of a professional moneylender could still in no way be justified. It is a notable irony in the history of economic thought that the discoverer of the subjective utility theory, a highly sophisticated analyst of how the market economy worked, a believer in the just price as the common market price, the initiator of the concept of capital, and a defender of at least the partial use of lucrum cessans as a way of justifying interest that this great market thinker should have been the leader of the rigorist wing of the Franciscan order that believed in living in extreme poverty. Perhaps one explanation is that Olivier was born in the highly important market town of Narbonne. He was the main intellectual leader of the spiritual Franciscans, who believed devoutly in following faithfully the rule of total poverty laid down by the founder of the order, St. Francis of Assisi, 1182-1226. It is a further irony that Olivier's opponents, the conventual Franciscans, who believed in a far laxer interpretation of the rule, hurled anathemas at Olivier and other spirituals, and managed to destroy many physical as well as intellectual traces of Olivier's work. In 1304, six years after his death, a chapter general of the Franciscan order commanded the destruction of all Olivier's works, and fourteen years later the unfortunate Olivier's body was disinterred and his bones scattered. Not only were many physical copies of Olivier's writings destroyed, but it became unhealthy for Franciscans, at least, to refer to his works. As a result, when, nearly a century and a half later, Olivier's forgotten work was rediscovered by the great Franciscan saint, San Bernardino, Saint Bernardine of Siena, Bernardino thought it prudent not even to refer to the heretic Olivier even though he used the latter's theory of utility virtually word for word in his own work. This reticence was necessary, because Bernardino belonged to the strict observant wing of the Franciscans, in a way descendants of Olivier's spirituals. 
Indeed, it has only been since the 1950s that the illuminating economic writings of Olivi and their appropriation by San Bernardino have come to light. Perhaps another reason for the hysteria with which the mainstream Franciscans greeted the religious views of Pierre Olivi was his continuing dalliance with the Joachimite heresy. One of the founders of mystical Christian messianism was the Calabrian hermit and abbot Joachim of Fior, 1145-1202. In the early 1190s, Joachim adopted the thesis that there had been in history not just two ages, pre-Christian and post-Christian, but a third age, of which he himself was the prophet. The pre-Christian epoch was the age of the Father, of the Old Testament, the Christian era the age of the Son, of the New Testament, and now was coming the fulfillment, the new third age, the apocalyptic age of the Holy Spirit, in which history was soon to come to an end. The third age, which for Joachim was to be ushered in during the next half-century, in the early or mid-thirteenth century, was to be an age of pure love and freedom. The knowledge of God would be revealed directly to all men, and there would be no work or property, because human beings would possess only spiritual bodies, their material bodies having disappeared. There would be no church or Bible or state, but only a free community of perfect spiritual beings who would spend all their time in mystical ecstasy praising God until this millennial kingdom of the saints would usher in the last days, the days of the last judgment. Seemingly tiny divergences in premises often have grave social and political consequences, and such was true of disagreements among Christians on the apparently recondite question of eschatology, the science or discipline of the last days. Since St. Augustine, the Orthodox Christian view has been amillennialist, that is, that there is no special millennium or kingdom of God in human history except the life of Jesus and the establishment of the Christian Church. This is the view of Catholics, of Lutherans, and probably of Calvin himself. The ideological or social conclusion is that Jesus will return to usher in the last judgment and the end of history in his own time, so that there is nothing that human beings can do to speed the last days. One variant of this doctrine is that after Jesus' return, he will launch a thousand years of the kingdom of God on earth before the last judgment. In practical terms, however, there is little of a significant difference here, since Christianity remains in place, and there is still nothing man can do to usher in the millennium. The crucial difference comes with Kiliastic ideas, such as those of Joachim of Fior, where not only was the world coming to the end soon, but man must do certain things to usher in the last days, to prepare the way for the last judgment. 
These are all post-millennial doctrines, that is, that man must first set up a kingdom of God on earth as a necessary condition either for Jesus' return or for the last judgment. Generally, as we shall see further in the Protestant Reformation, post-millennial views lead to some form of theocratic coercion of society to pave the way for the culmination of history. For Joachim of Fior, the path to the last days would be blazed by a new order of highly spiritual monks, from whom would come twelve patriarchs, headed by a supreme teacher, who would convert the Jews to Christianity, as foretold in Revelation, and would lead all mankind away from the material and towards the love of things of the Spirit. Then, for a brief, blazing three and a half years, a secular king, the Antichrist, would chastise and destroy the corrupt Christian church. The swift overthrow of the Antichrist would then usher in the total age of the Spirit. In view of the radical and potentially explosive nature of Joachim's heresy, it is remarkable that no less than three contemporary popes expressed great interest in his doctrine. By the middle of the thirteenth century, however, Joachimism was neglected and little known. It is small wonder that the Joachimite heresy was revived by the spiritual Franciscans, who were tempted to see in their own flourishing new order, and in their devotion to poverty, the very monastic order that had been foretold by Joachim to bring about the last days. Chapter 3 From Middle Ages to Renaissance 1. THE GREAT DEPRESSION OF THE FOURTEENTH CENTURY Most people, historians not excepted, are tempted to think of economic and cultural progress as being continuous. In every century, people are better off than in the one preceding. This comforting assumption had to be given up quite early when the Dark Ages ensued after the collapse of the Roman Empire, but it was generally held that after the Renaissance of the eleventh century, progress in Western Europe was pretty well linear and continuous from that point to the present day. It took heroic efforts over many decades for economic historians like Professors Armando Sapori and Robert Sabatino Lopez to finally convince the historical profession that there was a grave secular decline in most of Western Europe from approximately 1300 to the middle of the 15th century, a period which might be called the Late Middle Ages or the Early Renaissance. This secular decline, mistitled a depression, permeated most parts of Western Europe with the exception of a few Italian city-states. The economic decline was marked by a severe drop in population. Since the 11th century, economic growth and prosperity had pulled up population figures— Total population in Western Europe, estimated at 24 million in the year 1000 A.D., had vaulted to 54 million by the year 1340. 
In little over a century, from 1340 to 1450, however, the Western European population fell from 54 million to 37 million, a 31% drop in only a century. The successful battle to establish the fact of the great decline has done little, however, to establish the cause or causes of this debacle. Focus on the devastation caused by outbreaks of the Black Death in the mid-14th century is partially correct, but superficial, for these outbreaks were themselves partly caused by an economic breakdown and fall in living standards which began earlier in the century. The causes of the Great Depression of Western Europe can be summed up in one stark phrase— the newly imposed domination of the state. During the medieval synthesis of the High Middle Ages, there was a balance between the power of church and state, with the church slightly more powerful. In the fourteenth century that balance was broken, and the nation-state came to hold sway, breaking the power of the church, taxing, regulating, controlling, and wreaking devastation through virtually continuous war for over a century, the Hundred Years' War, from 1337 to 1453. The first and critically most important step in the rise in the power of the state at the expense of crippling the economy was the destruction of the fairs of Champagne, during the High Middle Ages, the fairs of Champagne were the main mart for international trade and the hub of local and international commerce. These fairs had been carefully nurtured by being made free zones, untaxed or unregulated by the French kings or nobles, while justice was swiftly and efficiently meted out by competing private and merchants' courts. The fairs of Champagne reached their peak during the 13th century and provided the center for land-based trade over the Alps from northern Italy, bearing goods from afar. Then, in the early 14th century, Philip IV, the fair, king of France, 1285 to 1314, moved to tax, plunder, and effectively destroy the vitally important fairs of Champagne. To finance his perpetual dynastic wars, Philip levied a stiff sales tax on the Champagne fairs. He also destroyed domestic capital and finance by repeated confiscatory levies on groups or organizations with money. In 1308, he destroyed the wealthy Order of the Templars, confiscating their funds for the royal treasury. Philip then turned to impose a series of crippling levies and confiscations on Jews and northern Italians, Lombards, prominent at the fairs. In 1306, 1311, 1315, 1320, and 1321. Furthermore, at war with the Flemings, Philip broke the long-time custom that all merchants were welcome at the fairs, and decreed the exclusion of the Flemings. The result of these measures was a rapid and permanent decline of the fairs of Champagne, and of the trading route over the Alps. 
Desperately, the Italian city-states began to reconstitute trade routes and sail around the Straits of Gibraltar to Bruges, which began to flourish even though the rest of Flanders was in decay. It was particularly fateful that Philip the Fair inaugurated the system of regular taxation in France. Before then, there were no regular taxes. In the medieval era, while the king was supposed to be all-powerful in his own sphere, that sphere was restricted by the sanctity of private property. The king was supposed to be an armed enforcer and upholder of the law, and his revenues were supposed to derive from rents on royal lands, feudal dues, and tolls. There was nothing that we would call regular taxation. In an emergency such as an invasion or the launching of a crusade, the prince, in addition to invoking the feudal duty of fighting on his behalf, might ask his vassals for a subsidy, but that aid would be requested rather than ordered, and be limited in duration to the emergency period. The perpetual wars of the fourteenth and the first half of the fifteenth centuries began in the 1290s, when Philip the Fair, taking advantage of King Edward I of England's war with Scotland and Wales, seized the province of Gascony from England. This launched a continuing warfare between England and Flanders on the one side and France on the other, and led to a desperate need for funds by both the English and the French crowns. The merchants and capitalists at the fairs of Champagne might have money, but the largest and most tempting source for royal plunder was the Catholic Church. Both the English and French monarchs proceeded to tax the Church, which brought them into a collision course with the Pope. Pope Boniface VIII, 1294-1303, stoutly resisted this new form of pillage, and prohibited the monarchs from taxing the church. King Edward reacted by denying justice in the royal courts to the church, while Philip was more militant, by prohibiting the transfer of church revenue from France to Rome. Boniface was forced to retreat and to allow the tax, but his bull, Unum Sanctum, 1302, insisted that temporal authority must be subordinate to the spiritual. That was enough for Philip, who boldly seized the Pope in Italy and prepared to try him for heresy, a trial only cut off by the death of the aged Boniface. At this point Philip the Fair seized the papacy itself and brought the seat of the Roman Catholic Church from Rome to Avignon, where he proceeded to designate the Pope himself. For virtually the entire fourteenth century, the Pope, in his Babylonian captivity, was an abject tool of the French king. The Pope only returned to Italy in the early fifteenth century. In this way, the once mighty Catholic Church, dominant power and spiritual authority during the High Middle Ages, had been brought low and made a virtual vassal of the royal plunderer of France. The decline of church authority, then, was matched by the rise in the power of the absolute state. 
not content with confiscating, plundering, taxing, crushing the fairs of Champagne, and bringing the Catholic Church under his heel, Philip the Fair also obtained revenue for his eternal wars by debasement of the coinage, and thereby generated a secular inflation. The wars of the fourteenth century did not cause a great deal of direct devastation. Armies were small, and hostilities were intermittent. The main devastation came from the heavy taxes and from the monetary inflation and borrowing to finance the eternal royal adventures. The enormous increase of taxation was the most crippling aspect of the wars. The expenses of war, recruitment of the modestly sized army, payments of its wages, supplies and fortifications, all cost from two to fourfold the ordinary expenses of the crown. Add to that the high costs of tax assessment and enforcement, and the cost of the loans, and the crippling burden of war taxation becomes all too clear. The new taxes were everywhere. We have seen the grave effect of taxes on the church. On a large monastic farm they often absorbed over forty percent of the net profits of the farm. A uniform poll tax of one shilling, levied by the English crown in 1380, inflicted great hardship on peasants and craftsmen. The tax amounted to one month's wages for agricultural workers and one week's wages for urban laborers. Moreover, since many poor workers and peasants were paid in kind rather than money, amassing the money to pay the tax was particularly difficult. Other new taxes levied were ad valorem on all transactions, taxes on wholesale and retail beverages, and levies on salt and wool. To combat evasion of the tax, the governments established monopoly markets for the sale of salt in France and staple points for English wool. The taxes restricted supply and raised prices, crippling the critical English wool trade. Production and trade were hampered further by massive requisitions levied by the kings, thus causing a drastic fall of income and wealth, as well as bankruptcies among the producers. In short, consumers suffered from artificially high prices and producers from low returns, with the king bleeding the economy of the differential. Government borrowing was scarcely more helpful, leading to repeated defaults by the kings and consequent heavy losses and bankruptcies among the private bankers unwise enough to lend to the government. Originating as a response to wartime emergency, the new taxes tended to become permanent, not only because the warfare lasted for over a century, but because the state, always on the lookout for an increase in its income and power, seized upon the golden opportunity to convert wartime taxes into a permanent part of the national heritage. From the middle to the end of the fourteenth century, Europe was struck with the devastating pandemic of the Black Death, the bubonic plague, which in the short span of 1348 to 1350 wiped out fully one-third of the population. 
The Black Death was largely the consequence of people's lowered living standards, caused by the Great Depression and the resulting loss of resistance to disease. The plague continued to recur, though not in such virulent form, in every decade of the century. Such are the great recuperative powers of the human race that this enormous tragedy caused virtually no lasting catastrophic social or psychological effects among the European population. In a sense, the longest-lasting ill effect from the Black Death was the response of the English crown in imposing permanent maximum wage control and compulsory labor rationing upon English society. The sudden decline of population and consequent doubling of wage rates was met by the government's severe imposition of maximum wage control in the Ordinance of 1349 and the Statute of Laborers of 1351. Maximum wage control was established at the behest of the employing classes, large, middle, and small landlords and master craftsmen, the former groups in particular alarmed at the rise of agricultural wage rates. The ordinance and the statute defied economic law by attempting to enforce maximum wage control at the old pre-plague levels. The inevitable result, however, was a grave shortage of labor, since at the statutory maximum wage the demand for labor was enormously greater than the newly scarce supply. Every government intervention creates new problems in the course of vain attempts to solve the old. The government is then confronted with the choice. Pile on new interventions to solve the inexplicable new problems, or repeal the original intervention. Government's instinct, of course, is to maximize its wealth and power by adding new interventions. So did the English Statute of Laborers, which imposed forced labor at the old wage rates for all men in England under the age of sixty, restricted the mobility of labor, declaring that the lord of a particular territory had first claim on a man's labor, and made it a criminal offense for an employer to hire a worker who had left a former master. In that way, the English government engaged in labor rationing to try to freeze laborers at their pre-plague occupations at pre-plague wages. This forced rationing of labor cut against the natural inclination of men to leave for more employment at better wages, and so the inevitable rise of black markets for labor made enforcement of the statutes difficult. The desperate English crown tried once again in the Cambridge Statute of 1388 to make the rationing more rigorous. Labor mobility of any sort was prohibited without written permission from local justices, and compulsory child labor was imposed in agriculture. But there was continual evasion of this compulsory buyer's cartel, especially by large employers who were particularly eager and able to pay higher wage rates. The cumbersome English judicial machinery was totally ineffective in enforcing the legislation, although the monopolistic urban guilds, monopolies enforced by government, 
were able to partially enforce wage control in the cities. 2. Absolutism and Nominalism – The Breakup of Thomism Along with the rise of the absolute state, theories of absolutism arose and began to throw natural law doctrines into the shade. The adoption of natural law theory, after all, meant that the state was bound to limit itself to the dictates of the natural or the divine law. But new political theorists arose, asserting the dominance of the temporal over the spiritual, and of the state's positive law over the natural or divine order. The first and most influential of such late medieval champions of absolutism was Marsiglio of Padua, circa 1275 to 1342, in his famous Defense of the Peace, 1324. The son of a Paduan lawyer, Marsiglio rose to become rector of the University of Paris. The state, opined Marsiglio, is supreme and must be obeyed in and for itself. This glorification of the state went hand in hand with a denial that human reason could come to know any natural law outside of positive edicts of the state. For Marsiglio, reason had to be separated from justice or human society. Justice has no rational foundation. It is purely mystical and solely a matter of faith. God's commands are purely arbitrary and mysterious, and not to be understood in terms of rational or ethical content. As a corollary, positive law has nothing to do with right reason. It is promulgated to advance the life and health of the state. According to Marsiglio, the nation is an organism, with the state functioning as its head. As Professor Rothkrug writes, Marsiglio says the state is a living organism, not subject to reason, because, like a plant, it develops in accord with inborn impulses. The practical conclusion Marsiglio derived from his political philosophy is that the state, whether kingdom or Italian city republic, must have absolute power within its domain, and must not be subject to any temporal check or jurisdiction by the church. Thus, while religiously a Catholic, Marsiglio anticipated the politiques in France and elsewhere two centuries later by insisting that the church may have no temporal power as against the state. Marsiglio thereby foreshadowed and helped to bring about the breakup of the medieval order in Europe. Also destructive of the achievements of the High Middle Ages was the ideological breakup of Thomism, ushered in by the 14th century. This decline emerged out of Franciscan fideism, begun by St. Thomas's great English rival John Duns Scotus. It used to be thought that this destruction was brought to a logical conclusion by the 14th-century Franciscan Oxford philosopher William of Ockham, circa 1290 to 1350. 
Akamite nominalism, it has been held, denied the power of human reason to arrive at the essential truths about man and the universe, and therefore negated the power of reason to arrive at a systematic ethic for man. Only God's will, discernible by faith in revelation, could yield truths, laws, or ethics. It should be clear that nominalism paved the way for modern skepticism and positivism, for if faith in divine will is abandoned, reason no longer has the power to arrive at scientific or ethical truths. Politically, nominalism failed to provide a natural law standard to set against the state, and it therefore fitted with the growing state absolutism of the Renaissance. Recent scholarship, however, casts grave doubt on whether Occam and his followers were really nominalists, or were rather essentialists and believers in natural law. Thus it turns out that the eminent Augustinian contemporary of Occam, the Italian Gregory of Rimini, died 1358, was not really a nominalist, but a staunch champion of essentialism, reason, and natural law. In contrast to the usual view of Occam and his followers, Gregory held that natural law comes not from God's will, but from the dictates of right reason, and he even went further towards an all-out rationalist position, generally thought to have been invented three centuries later by the Dutch Protestant philosopher and jurist Hugo Grotius. This position held that even if God did not exist, the system of natural law would be given to us by the dictates of right reason, the violation of which would still be a sin. Thus, as Gregory put it, if, per impossibile, the divine reason or God himself did not exist, or that that reason were mistaken, still, if one were to act against right reason, angelic, human, or any other, if such there be, he would sin. 3. Utility and Money Buradin and Orem Being a Franciscan and a student of William of Ockham did not prevent the great French philosopher-scientist Jean Buridan de Béthune, 1300-1358, born in Picardy, to become rector of the University of Paris, from making the next important contribution to economic thought in the essentialist Thomist tradition. In his Questiones, a thorough commentary on Aristotle's ethics, Buridan continued the Aristotle-Thomas analysis of the exchange value of goods being determined by consumer need or utility. But Buridan also pressed on to point out that a house would never exchange for one garment, since the builder would have to forego a year's worth of food for a much less valuable good. In short, Buridan was groping towards an opportunity-cost concept of cost of production and influence on supply. More importantly, Buridan advanced beyond the initiative of Richard of Middleton in analyzing the mutual benefit that each party necessarily derives from an exchange. 
In discussing exchange, Buridan notes that both parties benefit, and that trade is not, as many people believe, a type of warfare in which one party benefits at the expense of another. Furthermore, Buridan proceeds to a sophisticated analysis in which he dramatically shows that two parties to a too-good exchange can both benefit, even if the exchange is itself immoral and is to be condemned on ethical or theological grounds. Thus Buridan poses the rather provocative hypothetical— Because Socrates gave his wife willingly and with her consent to Plato to commit adultery in exchange for ten books, which one of them suffered a loss and which one gained? Both suffered injury as far as their soul was concerned, but with regard to the external good, each gained since he has more than he needs. For Buridan, as for most other scholastics, the just price was the market price. Buridan also provided a sophisticated analysis of how common human need and utility resulted in market prices. The greater the need, and hence the greater the demand, the greater the value. Also, a reduction in the supply of a product will cause its price on the market to rise. Furthermore, a good is more expensive where it is not produced than where it is, since there is a greater demand for it in the former place. Again, the marginal concept is all that is needed to complete the analysis of demand, supply, and price. There are also intimations in Buridan of different valuations by market participants resulting in a single price, with varying consumer and producer psychic surpluses for each participant. But the main great leap forward in economics contributed by Jean Buridan was his virtual creation of the modern theory of money. Aristotle had analyzed the advantages of money and its overcoming of the double coincidence of wants problem of barter, but his outlook was clouded by his fundamental hostility to trade and money-making. To Aristotle, therefore, money was not natural, but an artificial convention, and therefore basically a creature of the state, or polis. Aquinas' theory of money was basically confined within the Aristotelian shackles. It was Jean Bourdon who broke free of those shackles and founded the metalist or commodity theory of money, that is, that money originates naturally as a useful commodity on the market, and that the market will pick the medium of exchange, almost always a metal if available, possessing the best qualities to serve as a money. Money, then, for Bourdin, is a market commodity, and the value of that money, just as in the case of other market commodities, must be measured by human need. Just as the values of exchangeable goods are proportionate to human need, so they will be proportionate to money, itself proportionate to human need. Thus Bourdin remarkably set the agenda for determining the value or price of money, on the same principles of utility that determine the market prices of goods.
an agenda which would only be fulfilled six centuries later in 1912 by the Austrian Ludwig von Mises in his Theory of Money and Credit. Foreshadowing the Austrians, Menger and von Mises, Bourdon insisted that an effectively functioning money must be composed of a material possessing a value independent of its role as money. That is, it must consist of a market commodity originally useful for non-monetary purposes. Bourdon then went on to catalog those qualities that lead the market to choose a commodity as a medium of exchange, or money, such as portability, high value per unit weight, divisibility, and durability, qualities possessed most strikingly by the precious metals, gold and silver, in that way, Bourdon began the classification of monetary qualities of commodities, which was to constitute the first chapter of countless money and banking textbooks down to the end of the gold standard era in the 1930s. Thus not only did Jean Bourdon found the theory of money as a market phenomenon, he thereby took money out of the mystique of being solely a creation of the state, and put it on a par with other goods as a product of the marketplace. A not very happy modern spin-off of Bourdon's theory of volition emerged in the 1930s as part of the indifference curve analysis. Bourdon postulated a perfectly rational ass who found himself equidistant between two equally attractive bundles of hay. Indifferent between the two choices, and therefore unable to choose, the perfectly rational ass could choose neither, and thereby starve to death. What this example overlooked is that there is a third choice, which presumably the ass liked the least, starving to death so that it was therefore perfectly rational not to starve to death, but rather to choose one of the two bundles even at random, and then to proceed to the second bundle. Until recent years, conventional texts on the history of economic thought, if they dealt with anyone at all before the mercantilists or Adam Smith, briefly mentioned only two people— St. Thomas Aquinas and Nicole Orem, 1325-1382. Although Orem, a noted French mathematician, astronomer, and physicist, was one of the most important European intellectuals of the 14th century, his contributions to economic thought scarcely deserve such exclusive attention. Orem was a pupil and follower of Jean Bourdin a scholastic commenting on Aristotle and teaching in his turn at the University of Paris and going on to become Bishop of Lisieux. Orem was moved to write his well-known booklet, A Treatise on the Origin, Nature, Law, and Alterations of Money, in the 1350s, applying the teachings of his hard-money mentor to the rash of monetary debasements indulged in by the kings of France in the first half of the 14th century. 
In the centuries before paper money and central banking were founded in the late 17th century, the only way in which kings could gain revenue through monetary manipulation was by debasement, changing the definition of the money unit by lightening its weight in terms of the basic money, gold or silver, If, for example, the money unit had been defined as ten ounces of silver, the government could use its monopoly of the coinage to redefine the money unit as nine silver ounces, and then pocket the difference in the course of recoinage. The extra ounces would be employed to mint new coins for the king to use in wars, for the building of palaces, and for other allegedly worthy causes. The British currency unit, the pound sterling, got its name centuries ago by originally being defined as simply one pound of silver. The process of debasement in Britain has proceeded so far that the pound is now equal to less than one-fourth a silver ounce. Before the advent of paper money and central banking, then, debasement was the only process by which the ruler could alter the currency to create a greater supply of money, in terms of the money unit, and thereby cause price inflation. The king was able to use his compulsory monopoly of the coinage to manipulate repeated debasements for his own gain, at the expense of the rest of the public. Orem's most important contribution to monetary theory was to enunciate clearly for the first time what came to be known as Gresham's Law, that is, the insight that if two or more monies are legally fixed in relative value by the government, then the money overvalued by the government will drive the undervalued money out of circulation. Thus, if the government decrees that, say, one ounce of gold is legally worth ten ounces of silver, whereas on the free market it is worth fifteen, the people will stick their creditors and vendors with the legally overvalued money, silver, the bad money, while they hoard the undervalued, gold, the good money, or export it out of the country where it can be sold at its market value, Gresham's law has often been boiled down in common parlance into bad money drives out good, but stated that way it is paradoxical and unsatisfying, for it implies that while in all other market products the good will outcompete the bad, there is some deep flaw in the free market that causes it to prefer bad money to good. But, as Ludwig von Mises clarified in the early twentieth century, Gresham's law is the product not of the free market, but of government monetary control. Its fixing of relative money value is a special case of the general consequence of any price control, that is, shortage of a good in which maximum prices are imposed, and a surplus where a minimum price is enforced. In the case of money, in our example, gold suffers a maximum price control, and therefore a shortage, while the value of silver is kept up artificially, and therefore goes into surplus relative to gold. 
The first formulation of Gresham's Law was that of the satiric ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes, who in The Frogs states characteristically, In our republic, bad citizens are preferred to good, just as bad money circulates while good money disappears. Orem, however, put the law in a cogent and correct manner, emphasizing that the monetary disruption is a function of government price-fixing. If the fixed legal ratio of the coins differs from the market value of the metals, the coin which is underrated entirely disappears from circulation, and the coin which is overrated alone remains current. In his treatise, Nicole Orem was moved to apply his mentor Bourdon's metalist monetary theory to attack the debasement policy of the French kings. Orem did not go so far as to denounce the king's coinage monopoly per se, but he did accomplish the feat of taking the whole matter out of the king's carefully propounded mystique of sovereignty converting the entire coinage question to a matter of practical convenience. Since the king was not entitled to cloak coinage in the mystique of royal prerogative and absolute royal will, he was duty-bound to govern according to the best interests of the community. He is therefore obliged to maintain the standards of weight and of coinage, Frequent alterations in such standards destroy respect and breed scandal and murmuring among the people and risk of disobedience. The definition of the currency unit should therefore be a fixed ordinance. Frequent alterations and debasements, Orem pointed out, will cause money and coins to lose their character as measures of value, and internal and external trade will be crippled. Foreign merchants will be repelled, since they will no longer have good, safe money to work with, while domestic traders will no longer have any firm means of communication. Money could no longer be loaned out safely, and there would be no way of correctly valuing money incomes. Furthermore, since debased money will have a lower value at home, gold or silver will be sent abroad, where they will now have a higher market value. Thus Orem was perhaps the first to point out that money will tend to flow to those areas and countries where its value is highest, and to leave those countries where its value is lowest. Nicole Orem had no illusions about the reasons for the king's repeated debasements. As Orem put it, if the king should tell the tyrant's usual lie that he applies the profit from debasement to the public advantage, he must not be believed, because he might as well take my coat and say he needed it for the public service. Orem also adds to Bourdon's analysis of how commodities become money on the market. He stresses easy portability and that it should be of high value per unit weight. He also points out that after a period of gold or silver being weighed out in precise quantities for each transaction, people started to coin the precious metals with an inscription and a head on the coin to guarantee a certain quantity of gold or silver in each coin. 
Gold, being a more valuable money, will generally be used for larger transactions, while silver and even copper may be used for smaller purchases. 4. The Odd Man Out Heinrich von Langenstein One nominalist and student of Bourdon, Heinrich von Langenstein the Elder, also known as Henry of Hesse, 1325-1397, while an uninfluential and minor scholastic philosopher in his own and later centuries, made great mischief for modern interpretations of the history of economic thought. Langenstein, who taught first at the University of Paris and then at Vienna, began in his Treatise on Contracts by analyzing the just price in the mainstream scholastic manner, just price is the market price, which is a rough measure of the human needs of consumers. This price will be the outcome of individuals' calculations about their wants and values, and these in turn will be affected by the relative lack or abundance of supply, as well as by the scarcity or abundance of buyers. Having said this, Langenstein proceeded to contradict himself completely. In a highly unfortunate contribution to the history of economic thought, Langenstein urged local government authorities to step in and fix prices. Price-fixing would somehow be a better path to the just price than the interplay of the market. Other scholastics had not exactly opposed price-fixing. For them, the market price was just whether it was set by the common estimate of the market or by the government. But it was at least implicit in their writings that the free market was a better, or at the very least an equally good path to discovering the just price. Langenstein was unique in positively advocating government price-fixing. Moreover, Langenstein added another economic heresy. He counseled the authorities to fix the price so that each seller, whether merchant or craftsman, could maintain his status or station in life in the society. The just price was the price which maintained everyone's position in the style to which he had become accustomed. No more and no less. If a seller tried to charge a price to advance beyond his station, he was guilty of the sin of avarice. Langenstein was the odd man out among the scholastics and late medieval thinkers. No one has been found to second the station-in-life concept of the just price. Indeed, St. Thomas Aquinas himself effectively demolished this view when he trenchantly declared, In a just exchange the medium does not vary with the social position of the persons involved, but only with regard to the quantity of the goods. For instance, whoever buys a thing must pay what the thing is worth whether he buys from a pauper or a rich man. In short, on the market, prices are the same to all, rich or poor, and furthermore, this is a just method of establishing prices. In the bizarre Langenstein view, of course, a wealthy seller of the same product would be obliged to sell it for a far higher price than a poor seller in which case it is unlikely that the wealthy man would last long in the business.
As far as can be determined, no medieval or Renaissance thinker adopted the station-in-life theory, and only two followers adopted the price-fixing position. One was Matthew of Krakow, circa 1335 to 1410, professor of theology at Prague and later rector at the University of Heidelberg, and Archbishop of Worms, and particularly Jean de Gerson, 1363 to 1429, nominalist and French mystic who was chancellor of the University of Paris. Gerson, however, ignored the station-in-life notion and reverted to the thirteenth-century view of John Duns Scotus that the just price is the cost of production plus compensation for labor and risk incurred by the supplier. Gerson therefore urged that the government fix prices to force them to conform to the allegedly just price. Indeed, Gerson was a fanatic on price-fixing, advocating that it be extended from its customary sphere in wheat, bread, meat, wine, and beer to embrace all commodities whatsoever. Fortunately, Gerson's view also had little influence. Von Langenstein was scarcely important in his own or at a later day. His great importance is solely that he was plucked out of well-deserved obscurity by late nineteenth-century socialist and state corporatist historians, who used his station-in-life fatuity to conjure up a totally distorted vision of the Catholic Middle Ages. That era, so the myth ran, was solely governed by the view that each man can only charge the just price to maintain him in his presumably divinely appointed station in life. In that way, these historians glorified a non-existent society of status in which each person and group found himself in a harmonious hierarchical structure, undisturbed by market relations or capitalist greed. This nonsensical view of the Middle Ages and of scholastic doctrine was first propounded by German socialist and state corporatist historians Wilhelm Roscher and Werner Sombart in the late 19th century, and it was then seized upon by such influential writers as the Anglican socialist Richard Henry Tawney and the Catholic corporatist scholar and politician Amintore Fanfani. Finally, this view, based only on the doctrines of one obscure and heterodox scholastic, was enshrined in conventional histories of economic thought, where it was seconded by the free market but fanatically anti-Catholic economist Frank Knight and his followers in the now highly influential Chicago School. The much-needed corrective to the older view has at last become dominant since World War II, led by the enormous prestige of Joseph Schumpeter and by the definitive research of Raymond de Rouvet. 5. Usury and Foreign Exchange in the Fourteenth Century The charging of interest on a loan continued to be condemned totally as usury by the mainstream of scholastic writing. Only a minority followed Cardinal Hostiensis and Olivier in allowing lucrum cessans, return on investment foregone, 
and then only for a charitable loan, and not for professional moneylenders. Foreign exchange transactions fared no better. The mainstream of scholastics, including St. Thomas, simply condemning them outright as usurers, and as trying to charge interest on barren money. By the 13th and 14th century, however, bills of exchange were coming into prominence as credit instruments, particularly in foreign exchange dealings. Sophisticated forms of foreign exchange transactions developed, in which dealers could charge and pay interest on credit, but such transactions were formally disguised as purchases or sales of foreign currencies. Again, most scholastics continued to condemn exchange dealings, but a courageous minority arose during the 14th century to champion these now pervasive transactions, in which the church itself had for a long time been engaged. It started weekly with Aquinas's chief personal disciple, Giles of Lessine, who, while confused about the foreign exchange market, did speak of risk as justifying these credit transactions, and also showed that the exchange dealer gives something of more utility to his customer than what the customer pays, entitling him to an extra charge. The main defense of the foreign exchange market was launched by the distinguished Franciscan Alexander Bonini, also known as Alexander of Alexandria, or Alexander Lombard. Bonini had an academic career at the University of Paris, then lectured at the papal court in theology, and finally served as the Franciscan provincial in his native Lombardy, the site of the most notorious usurers of the day. In his Treatise on Usury, a lecture given at Genoa in 1307, Alexander, while attacking usury in the usual way, presented a thoroughgoing defense of the foreign exchange transactions with which he was familiar. Attacking the Aristotelians, Alexander pointed out that money cannot have only one function of serving as a barren medium of exchange, since there are many coins and these coins must be exchanged. The value of the coins thus traded, furthermore, is properly determined not by law, but by the weight and the content of the coins. Alexander also adopted Giles of Lessines' insight that the dealer provides more utility to his customer than he receives in the money transactions. As for credit transactions in foreign exchange, Alexander Lombard did not defend them all, but provided a lucrum cessans defense for the changes in the value of a money between the beginning and the end of the transaction. Indeed, Alexander was one of the first to point out that the demand for money can and does vary over time, giving rise to changes in the value of money. Lucrum Cessans provided the entering wedge for the scholastic justification of the main method by which the usury prohibition was evaded during and after the High Middle Ages. It is illuminating that Alexander had begun his defense with the practical point that the Church always condemns and pursues usurers, but it does not condemn and pursue the exchange dealers, but rather 
fosters them, as is apparent in the Roman Church. Alexander Lombard's defense of the foreign exchange market was repeated verbatim by his disciple and successor as Franciscan Provincial of Lombardy, Astasanus, died 1330. Astasanus, like his mentor, came from Lombardy, specifically from Asti, one of the principal locations of the leading international usurers. His main work was his Summa, 1317. Like his predecessor, Astasanus was impressed by the fact that the Roman Church fosters the exchange dealers. Furthermore, he adds to Alexander's reasoning a frank defense of Lucrum Sessans, which he was one of the first theologians, as distinct from canonists, to embrace. Among the prominent fourteenth-century writers we have already discussed, Heinrich von Langenstein, as we might expect, denounced all foreign exchange dealers as usurers per se. Even Nicole Orem simply repeated the Aristotelian shibboleth that the trade of money for money is unnatural because money is barren. While not precisely declaring exchange transactions to be usurious per se, Orem, in a flight of hate, denounced foreign exchange as vile, as an occupation that stains the soul, just as cleaning sewers stains the body. In contrast, however, Jean Bourdon, Orem's mentor, engaged in a defense of foreign exchange, distinguishing two kinds of exchange, one where the dealer gets only as much as he gives, perfectly worthy according to the Aristotelian Thomas tradition, and another where the dealer takes more than he gives. But here Bourdon makes another mighty leap in tearing down some of the irrational barriers that the scholastics had drawn up against monetary transactions. For even the latter kind of transaction, declared Bourdon, may be legitimate, even if there is no equivalent in exchange, provided the exchange promotes the common good. While not used for ordinary usury, Bourdon's new concept sowed the seeds for total justification of the foreign exchange bankers. At the turn of the fifteenth century, a thoroughgoing defense of exchange contracts was set forth by the sophisticated Florentine lay canon lawyer Lorenzo di Antonio Ridolfi, 1360-1442. Ridolfi was a lecturer at the Athenaeum in Florence, and was at one time ambassador of the Florentine Republic. Just as Lombard was unwilling to condemn a practice encouraged by the Church, so Ridolfi declared his unwillingness to condemn an occupation pervasive in his native Florence. Developing the insight of Lombard, Ridolfi, in his 1403 treatise on usury, emphasized that the value of money can differ from one place to another as well as over time. These differences are the result of changes in the demand for money, fluctuations of the demand relative to the supply, and alterations in the metallic content of the coinage. These variations justify foreign exchange dealings as well as credit transactions within them. 
Thus Ridolfi developed the theory which showed that the value of money, like any other commodity, is determined by the interactions of its demand and supply, and that it too can vary in value over time and place. 6. The Worldly Ascetic, San Bernardino of Siena The great mind and the great systematizer of scholastic economics was a paradox among paradoxes. A strict and ascetic Franciscan saint, living and writing in the midst of the sophisticated capitalist world of early 15th century Tuscany, while St. Thomas Aquinas was the systematizer of the entire range of intellectual endeavor, his economic insights were scattered in fragments throughout his theological writings. San Bernardino of Siena, 1380-1444, was the first theologian after Olivi to write an entire work systematically devoted to scholastic economics. Much of this advanced thought was contributed by San Bernardino himself, and the highly advanced subjective utility theory was cribbed word for word from the Franciscan heretic of two centuries earlier, Pierre de Jean Olivy. San Bernardino's book, written as a set of Latin sermons, was entitled On Contracts and Usury, and was composed during the years 1431 to 1433. The treatise began, quite logically, with the institution and justification of the system of private property, proceeded to the system and the ethics of trade, and continued to discuss the determination of value and price on the market. It ended with a lengthy discussion of the tangled usury question. San Bernardino's chapter on private property was nothing remarkable. Property was considered artificial rather than natural, but still vital for an efficient economic order. One of Bernardino's great contributions, however, was the fullest and most cogent discussion yet penned on the functions of the business entrepreneur. In the first place, the merchant was given an even cleaner bill of health than had been given by Aquinas. Sensibly, and in contrast to early doctrines, San Bernardino pointed out that trade, like all other occupations, could be practiced either licitly or unlawfully. All callings, including that of a bishop, provide occasions for sin— these are scarcely limited to trade. More specifically, merchants can perform several kinds of useful service, transporting commodities from surplus to scarce regions and countries, preserving and storing goods to be available when the consumers want them, and, as craftsmen or industrial entrepreneurs, transforming raw materials into finished products. In short, the businessman can perform the useful social function of transporting, distributing, or manufacturing goods. In his justification of trade, San Bernardino finally managed to rehabilitate the lowly retailer, who had been scorned ever since ancient Greece. 
Importers and wholesalers, Bernardino pointed out, buy in large quantities and then break bulk by selling by the bale or load to retailers, who in turn sell in minute quantities to consumers. Realistically, Bernardino did not condemn profits. On the contrary, Profits were a legitimate return to the entrepreneur for his labor, expenses, and the risks that he undertakes. San Bernardino then goes into his trenchant analysis of the functions of the entrepreneur. Managerial ability, he realized, is a rare combination of competence and efficiency, and therefore commands a large return. San Bernardino lists four necessary qualifications for the successful entrepreneur. Efficiency, or diligence, industria. Responsibility, solicitudo. Labor, labores. And assumption of risks, pericula. Efficiency, for Bernardino, meant being well informed about prices, costs, and qualities of the product and being subtle in assessing risks and profit opportunities, which, Bernardino shrewdly observed, indeed very few are capable of doing. Responsibility meant being attentive to detail, and also keeping good accounts, a necessary item in business. Trouble, toil, and even personal hardships are also often essential. For all these reasons, and for the risk incurred, the businessman properly earns enough on successful investments to keep him in business and compensate him for all his hardships. On determination of value, San Bernardino continued in the mainstream scholastic tradition, with value and the just price being determined by the common estimation of the market. Price will fluctuate in accordance with supply, rising if supply is scarce and falling if abundant. Bernardino also has a penetrating discussion of the influence of cost. Cost of labor, skill, and risk do not affect price directly, but will affect the supply of a commodity, and ceteris paribus, other things being equal, a phrase used by San Bernardino, things requiring greater effort or ingenuity to produce will be more expensive and command a higher price. This insight prefigures the Jevons Austrian analysis of supply and cost over five centuries later. As in the case of other scholastics, the common estimation of the market was held to be the common market price, but not a price set by individual free bargaining. The government was considered able to fix a common market price by compulsory regulation, but this possibility, as in the case of most other scholastics, was dismissed quickly. As we have seen, San Bernardino took over word for word the remarkable subjective utility theory of value published and previously neglected by the Franciscan Pierre de Jean-Olivier. Bernardino's significant contribution to the theory of the just-as-market price was to apply it to the just wage. 
Wages are the price of labor services, Bernardino pointed out, and therefore the just or market wage will be determined by the demand for labor and the available supply of labor on the market. Wage inequality is a function of differences of skill, ability, and training. An architect is paid more than a ditch digger, Bernardino explained, because the former's job requires more intelligence, ability, and training, so that fewer men will qualify for the task. Skilled workers are scarcer than unskilled, so that the former will command a higher wage. In a sophisticated discussion of foreign exchange, Bernardino put his imprimatur on transactions that were the dominant way in which hidden interest was charged for a credit transaction. Here, Bernardino followed the latitudinarian view of his master, Alexander Lombard. Generally, exchange transactions were conversions of currencies and not loans. Furthermore, usury was only a certain and riskless interest on a loan. Foreign exchange rates fluctuated and were therefore unpredictable. This was technically true, but generally lenders received interest on exchange transactions, since the money market was structured to favor the lender in this way. Bernardino also pointed out that conversion of currencies was necessary because of the great diversity of currencies, and because the coinage of one country was not acceptable elsewhere. The money exchangers, therefore, performed a useful function by enabling foreign trade, which is essential to the support of human life and by transferring funds from one country to another without requiring the actual shipping of specie. San Bernardino of Siena was a fascinating and paradoxical combination of brilliant, knowledgeable, and appreciative analyst of the capitalist market of his day, and an emaciated ascetic saint fulminating against worldly evils and business practices. Bernardino was born in 1380 to a high official of Siena. His father, Albertolo degli Abizzecci, was governor of the town of Massa for the Republic of Siena. Bernardino's mother also belonged to a prominent local family. Joining the strictly ascetic order of the observant Franciscans, Bernardino soon became noted as a persuasive and highly popular traveling orator, preaching throughout northern and central Italy. In the 1430s, Bernardino was appointed vicar general of the observant Franciscans. Three times in his lifetime San Bernardino was offered bishoprics in Siena, Urbino, and Ferrara, and each time he refused this honor since he would have had to give up his preaching. Some of Bernardino's anti-worldly preaching dwelt on problems of personal morality. Thus he deplored the practice of traveling merchants staying away from home for long periods, and then defiling themselves by living in carnal sin or even sodomy, which the saint habitually referred to as filth. Indeed, in his youth, Bernardino punched a man who had made homosexual overtures. 
But Bernardino's main contradiction between sophisticated analyst of business and denouncer of business practice lay in his fulmination against usury. Surrounded by the home of usury in Tuscany, San Bernardino, in common with so many scholastics, found that realism stopped short at the usury door. On the usury question, the saint's brilliant analysis and benign view of the free market failed him, and he fulminated almost in a frenzy. Usury was a vile infection permeating business and social life. Whereas other scholastics had taken seriously the objection that church and society depended upon usury, Bernardino did not care. No, it could not be. All those holding that usury was economically necessary were committing the sin of blasphemy, since they would therefore be saying that God had bound them to an impossible course of action. Abolish the charge of interest, Bernardino opined, and people would then lend freely and gratuitously. And besides, far too much is being borrowed now, for frivolous and vicious purposes. Usury, the saint thundered, destroys charity. It is a contagious disease. It stains the souls of all in society. It concentrates all the money of the city into a few hands, or drives it out of the country. And, what is more, it justly brings the wrath of God upon the city, and invites the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One can only stand in awe at the fury of unreason in which this truly great thinker indulged himself on the usury issue. Ranting about the usurer daring to sell time, Bernardino went further than his predecessors in insisting that only Jesus Christ knows the time and the hour. If, therefore, it is not ours to know the time, much less is it ours to sell it. Is keeping watches and clocks therefore a mortal sin? Bernardino winds up in a fit of almost hysterical frenzy at the hapless usurer. Accordingly, all the saints and all the angels of paradise cry then against him, the usurer, saying, To hell! To hell! To hell! Also the heavens with their stars cry out, saying, To the fire! To the fire! To the fire! The planets also clamor, to the depths, to the depths, to the depths. And yet, despite all this, San Bernardino added his great weight to the concept that would eventually scuttle the usury prohibition, lucrum cessans. Following Hostiensis and a minority of fourteenth-century scholastics, Bernardino admits lucrum cessans. It was all right to charge interest on a loan which would be the return sacrificed, the opportunity foregone, for a legitimate investment. It is true that Bernardino, like his predecessors, limited lucrum cessans strictly to a charitable loan, and refused to apply it to professional moneylenders. But he made an important analytic advance by explaining that lucrum cessans is legitimate, because in that situation money is not simply barren money, but capital. 
As Bernardino put it, when a businessman lends from balances which would have gone into commercial investment, he gives not money in its simple character, but he also gives his capital. More fully, he writes that money, then, has not only the character of mere money or a mere thing, but also, beyond this, a certain seminal character of something profitable, which we commonly call capital. Therefore, not only must its simple value be returned, but a super-added value as well. In short, when money functions as capital, it is no longer barren or sterile. As capital, it deserves to command a profit. There is something more. In the course of lengthy arguing against hidden usury in various forms of contracts, the brilliant mind of San Bernardino stumbles, for one of the first times in history, upon what later would be called time preference, that people prefer present goods to future goods, that is, the present prospect of goods in the future. But he failed to recognize its importance and dismiss the point. It was left to the late eighteenth-century Frenchman Turgot, and then to the great Austrian economist Eugen von Bumbawerk, to discover the principle in the 1880s, and hence finally solve the age-old problem of explaining and justifying the existence and height of the rate of interest. 7. The Disciple, Sant'Antonino of Florence San Bernardino's major disciple was the highly influential and slightly younger Sant'Antonino of Florence, 1389-1459. Much of Antonino's influence came from his prolific writings, especially his enormous Thomistic Summa Moralis Theologiae, 1449, the first treatise in the new science of moral theology. In moral theology, or casuistry, the theologian takes the abstract principles of theology and ethics and applies them to the detailed empirical data of daily life. In short, theology and morality were brought from the abstractions of the study and applied to the details of everyday life. Sant'Antonino's pioneering summa of moral theology proved to be extraordinarily influential. It was frequently consulted for the next 150 years, and went through 24 printings in that period. His shorter Confessionals, 1440, a guidebook for confessors, was reprinted 30 times in the same century and a half. There are striking parallels in the lives and personalities of Antonino and his master, Bernardino. Sant'Antonino was born the son of a minor official, the notary of Florence, Ser Niccolò de Pierozzo de Forsiglioni. The son's first name was Antonio, but he was universally called by the diminutive Antonino because of his short stature and the nickname is listed in the official church calendar of saints. 
Although in frail health, Antonino early joined the strict observant branch of the Dominican order. His administrative talents were unusual and spotted quickly, and he soon became prior of the Dominican friary of Cortona, and was then transferred to similar posts in Naples and Rome. After that, Antonino was appointed vicar-general of the Dominican friaries of Lombardy in 1433, and, four years later, also of all central and southern Italy. In addition to his vicarate, Antonino continued as prior of San Marco in Florence. In 1445, Pope Eugene IV appointed Sant'Antonino to the archbishopric of Florence, possibly on the advice of the great Renaissance painter Fra Angelico. A humble man, Antonino followed Bernardino in stubbornly refusing to accept the post. The Pope issued stern commands for Antonino to accept, and the story of a contemporary asserts that he only took the office under penalty of excommunication. In any event, Sant'Antonino refused for the rest of his life to wear episcopal robes, and continued to wear the white habit and black cloak of a simple Dominican friar. Ironically, upon his death in 1459, Antonino was buried in full pomp and ceremony. Despite his reluctance, Antonino became a distinguished administrator and judge, daily making countless economic decisions. In Florence, he became steeped in knowledge of the financial and economic practices of the most advanced capitalist center of his day. Sant'Antonino is habitually bracketed with Bernardino as two great scholastic thinkers and economists. But Antonino was merely a popularizer and casuist. In his analysis, he simply repeated the views of the truly great and creative thinker, San Bernardino. Both men were thoroughly familiar with the economic practices of their day, and Antonino came from Florence, the great banking center of Europe. Yet both men were humble ascetics, and the same tension and contradiction of worldly asceticism appeared in their works and lives. Generally, Antonino simply repeated Bernardino's analysis. In his discussion of value theory, however, Antonino further stressed Aquinas's crucial point that any exchange on the market is for the mutual benefit of both parties since each is better off than he was before. A voluntary sale is a just one. And yet, Antonino seems more sympathetic than his mentor to government price regulation, which, where it exists, must be morally binding. Any black market price over a legal maximum is a sin. On the just wage, Antonino echoes Bernardino and adds material based on his extensive knowledge of the great Florentine woolen industry. The wage of a laborer is properly determined by common market estimation, and any attempt to form a union of workers would be harmful interference. This view implicitly endorsed the Florentine practice of outlawing wool-worker unions as unlawful conspiracies.
The monopolistic wool guild of clothiers, however, was legal. Not surprisingly, since it controlled the government of Florence. The word guild does not appear in Antonino's work on labor conditions. Perhaps he felt it more prudent to ignore this controversial issue. Despite the discipleship, there were definite, though subtle, differences between the two worldly saints. Even though Antonino was more knowledgeable of the business world, he was, paradoxically, considerably more moralistic. Thus, one of Antonino's numerous works was a pamphlet on women's fashions, De Ornate Mulierum, in which he fulminated at great length against women's use of rouge, false hair, fancy hairdos, and other fripperies. His talent for moralism was, of course, reinforced by his pioneering work in casuistry. Likewise, he sounded off on artists, condemning all except religious art, especially exempting the work of his friend Fra Angelico. Antonino was particularly upset because paintings of non-religious subjects gave artists the opportunity to depict nude women, not for the sake of beauty, but to arouse libidinous feelings. Antonino did make the intelligent observation, however, that the price of paintings is determined by the artist's skill rather than by the amount of labor involved. Antonino's censorious views also reached into music, where he called for going back to the austere Gregorian chant and eliminating the sinful introduction of counterpoint and popular and even lewd ballads. In more strictly economic concerns, Antonino's heightened moralism was also evident. In contrast to his master, Antonino largely fulminated against foreign exchange transactions as implicit usury. As Raymond de Rouvet wonderingly remarks, this advice, if followed, would have abolished banking altogether, a rather strange attitude on the part of the archbishop of the leading banking center in Western Europe. Most of the theologians were more lenient, although less consistent. Antonino's ranting against usury was fully as exuberant as Bernardino's, and was heightened by the fact that he served as the apostolic commissary for the repression of usury in Tuscany. Antonino is the all-out denouncer of usury, drawing together all possible arguments with their most severe interpretation. As Professor Noonan states, by being more systematic, Antonino is more severe than many of his predecessors. Antonino draws together all the strict rules of the early usury teaching into a tight set of rules. No later writer of note will be as severe, as uncompromising, as true to the logic of the earlier conceptions as he. Furthermore, Antonino took no back seat to Bernardino in his hysterical ranting against usury. Usury is diabolic. It is the great harlot of Apocalypse 17, who sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Not only direct usurers, but all who cooperate in usury are worthy of eternal death. 
Usury to Antonino is a worse sin than adultery or murder, because it continues on and on, whereas the former sins are only intermittent. The usurer is in a state of perpetual sin. Not only that, usury damns the heirs of the sinner, since the sin is not wiped out until the usurer or his estate makes restitution by giving back the interest charge. Usury, to Antonino, is everywhere, all-pervasive. And yet Antonino too admits lucrum cessans as a legitimate source of an interest charge. He is so worried about hint of usury, however, that he declares that in practice lucrum cessans must never be advised. Tragically, the subjective theory of utility developed by Pierre de Jean Olivier in the 13th century rediscovered by San Bernardino two centuries later, and spread far and wide by his disciple Sant' Antonino, died with the worldly Florentine saint. With minor exceptions, even the late Spanish scholastics of the sixteenth century, so much in the Thomist and utility tradition, did not regain these heights. It was left to the Austrian school of the late nineteenth century to independently replicate and go beyond the subjective theory of value of Olivier, and it was left to the nineteen fifties for this line of scholastic thought to be rediscovered. 8. The Swabian Liberals and the Assault on the Prohibition of Usury at about the same time that San Bernardino was developing his great work, a relatively obscure German Dominican was independently setting forth a similar analysis. Johannes Nieder, 1380-1438, was a Swabian who taught theology at the University of Vienna and led a reform of the Dominican order in southern Germany. Nieder's brief treatise on the contracts of merchants, De Contractibus Mercantorum, was written about 1430 and published posthumously in Cologne about 1468. It was reprinted frequently for the rest of the 15th century. Nieder begins by justifying the profits of merchants. Recognizing the entrepreneurial role of the merchant, Nieder stressed that trade requires market knowledge, and securing that knowledge requires industry, diligence, and luck. Business incomes are justified by expenses, care, and risks. In analyzing market price, Nieder emphasizes subjective utility as the determinant. Nieder, like Olivier and Bernardino, distinguished between the objective utility inherent in a good and subjective utility, the status of that good in the estimation of men. Nieder was clear that only the latter decisively determined the just market price. Anticipating Jevons four centuries later, Nieder suggests that a change in supply will alter price by changing the utility assigned to it. That common market price determines the just price is clear in Nieder. 
the proper value of a thing depends upon the ways buyers or sellers may think about prices. Yet, where there is no common market, Nieder joins previous scholastics in stating that sellers may adopt a cost-plus approach to find out the just price that they may ask for. While only subjective utility is treated in determination of price, there are disquieting signs in Nieder of Langensteinian status arguments in justifying business income. For businessmen's incomes, in addition to being determined by the economic factors mentioned above, must also be decided in proportion to the nobility of the effort. A prelude to Nieder's making clear that the work of the soldier is nobler than that of the merchant, and therefore deserves a higher reward. This is a throwback not just to Langenstein, but to ancient Greek veneration of the martial as against the productive arts. In discussing money, Nieder is firm in justifying the activities of money changers. There is no nonsense about usury here. Nieder points out that the exchange of currency is a kind of selling and buying, and demonstrates even more cogently that the value of money, like the value of other commodities, also varies in the common estimation of the market. While following Aquinas, the value of money usually changes less radically than the value of a particular good. Change it does, nevertheless merchants incurring legitimate profits or losses from such variation. Nieder writes trenchantly of the conversion or exchange of money, or of other things, which is, as it were, a kind of selling and buying of one currency for another, and presents, so to speak, the same moral problems as does commerce in goods. Far more significant than Nieder was the great 15th-century scholastic and fellow Swabian Gabriel Beale, 1430-1495, professor of theology at the new University of Tübingen in southwest Germany. Beale was a distinguished nominalist and Akamite. In fact, the German Akamites of the 15th century were known as Gabrieliste. And yet, recent research has discovered that Beale was essentially a Thomist in his belief in a rational and objective natural law ethic. Indeed, he echoed the belief of his fellow Akamite of the previous century, Gregory of Rimini, in the highly rationalistic belief that the natural law was eternal and would exist even if God did not. Furthermore, man, by his unaided reason, can discern this natural law and reach the right conclusions on his proper conduct. One of Beale's contributions was to deliver a crystal-clear statement of the scholastic insight that each party to an exchange engaged in the action for mutual subjective benefit. Following Jean Bourdin, his fellow nominalist of the previous century, Beale's analysis was cogent and concise. For the buyer who desires a good would not buy unless he hoped for greater satisfaction from the good than from the money he paid over. 
nor would the seller sell unless he hoped for a profit from the price. There had been no clearer demonstration before Beale that every exchange involves an expected mutual benefit by each party to that transaction, and that the satisfaction of the buyer, at least, is purely subjective though the sellers may be translated into a monetary profit. There would be no real improvement upon Beale until the advent of the Austrian school in the late nineteenth century. A follower of his fellow Achamites, Jean Bourdon and Nicole Orem, Beale, in his Treatise on the Power and Utility of Moneys, repeated their metalist insights about the value of money and their attack on governmental debasement. Beale also insists with Bourdon that a sound money must be composed of material with a use independent of its service as money. Beale regards debasement by a king as equivalent to theft, if a prince should reject valid money in order that he may buy it up more cheaply and melt it, and then issue another coinage of less value, attaching the value of the former currency to it, he would be guilty of stealing money, and is required to make restitution. Furthermore, Beale provided a more sophisticated explanation and justification than previously available of the workings of the foreign exchange market. In his Commentary on the Sentences, 1484, Beale noted that a bank that accepts a bill of exchange permits the drawer of the bill to obtain cash in another city, and thereby provides the important service of virtual transportation of the money. The drawer of the bill is relieved of the cost and the risk of moving the money himself. It is therefore licit for the banker, as lender, to profit on purchasing a foreign bill of exchange. In this way, Beale greatly widened the legitimacy of exchange transactions for lender as well as borrower, thus strengthening the theoretical insight that the value of money varies, as do particular goods. But the great significance of Gabriel Beale in the history of economic thought was that he began the smashing of the usury prohibition that had held economic thought in thrall since the early centuries of the Christian era. In addition to completing the liberation of the foreign exchange market from the taint of usury, Beale launched the justification of insurance contracts. For if it was sinful and usurious to own property or a right without bearing risk, such as the grantor of a pure loan, then what of a man who had purchased an insurance contract, and therefore was able to transfer risk to the insurer? The defense of insurance Beale takes over from Angelus Carletus de Clavasio, vicar general of the observant Franciscans, who had defended riskless insurance contracts in his Summa Angelica at the same time that Beale was writing his treatise. Beale's main contribution in weakening the usury prohibition was his justification of the census contract, the purchase of an annuity, and justifying it in its widest possible form. 
Thus, purchase of an annuity was considered licit as a right to fruitful money, as was an insured or guaranteed annuity. Also, the buyer was allowed to redeem the annuity, a concession very close to permitting a lender to reclaim the principal of his loan after he has received a return in installments. Thus Beale came very close to justifying credit transactions charging interest, explaining the fact that the seller of an annuity will often be willing to pay a high annual charge in order to get ready cash, that is, pay interest on a loan, Beale points out with great cogency that both parties to this, as any other transaction, expect to benefit. For a buyer desiring merchandise, unless he hoped for more advantage from the merchandise than from the money he gave, would not buy. Nor would a seller sell, unless he hoped for profit from the price. But the most comprehensive and systematic assault on the usury prohibition came from Gabriel Beale's most distinguished student and his successor in the theology chair at the University of Tübingen, Conrad Zumenhart, 1465-1511, who had also been a student at the University of Paris. The critique came in Zumenhart's massive Treatise on Contracts, Tractatus de Contractibus, 1499. Zumanhart's contribution was twofold. First, in enormously widening all the possible exceptions to the usury prohibition, for example, the census and lucrum cessans. And second, in launching a blistering direct assault on all the time-honored arguments against whatever usury contracts remained. On the first, Zumanhart developed the argument for insured or guaranteed partnerships far more subtly and extensively than before. He also widened the lucrum cessans exception far more than anyone had ever done. Money is fruitful, Zumanhart declared boldly. It is the merchant's tool, which he can make fruitful by the use of his labor. Consequently, the merchant should be compensated for loss of the use of his money, just as a farmer should be recompensed for the loss of his fields. Unfortunately, however, Zumanhart's widening of lucrum cessans was still limited, as among the earlier scholastics, to loans made out of charity. The boldest loosening of the usury bonds by Zumanhart was in his radical defense of the widest possible interpretation of census contracts. Here, Zumanhart justified many of the credit transactions then used in Germany. Coupled with his development of the idea of the changeable value of money, this meant the emptying of the usury prohibition of all practical significance. Money, declared Zumanhart, may licitly be trafficked in for profit. Furthermore, he asserted that a census is not a sinful loan, because the right to money is a good of another kind than the money exchanged. But in that case, Zumanhart asks himself, couldn't a usurer say the same thing? 
and simply state that the right to money he was demanding in exchange was a good of a different kind than the money loaned? Astonishingly, Zumanhart replied, this was all right, provided that the lender did not intend this to be usury, and was himself really convinced that he was buying the right to money, which was a different good than the money itself. But if usury was only subjective intention, and not the objective fact of a loan-charging interest, then there was no objective way of identifying or enforcing the prohibition against usury. In this way alone, Zumanhart effectively destroyed the prohibition against usury. But this was not all. For Zumanhart explicitly declared that the purchase by someone of a discounted debt is not a usurious loan, because it is only the purchase of a right to money. The purchase of a debt was licit in the same way as a census. Furthermore, the purchase of a debt could be that of a newly constituted debt, and not simply the purchase of a previous debt. This, too, effectively ended the usury prohibition. Moreover, in approving debt purchase contracts, Zumanhart came close to understanding the primordial fact of time preference, the preference of present over future money. When someone pays $100 for the right to $110 at a future date, both parties estimate present money more highly than money payable at a future date. The buyer, lender, furthermore, doesn't really profit usuriously from the loan, because he values the future $110 as worth $100 at the present time, so that the price and the merchandise are equal in fact and in the estimation of the buyer. Then, tackling the arguments for usury directly, Zumanhart presents twenty-three standard natural law arguments against usury and demolishes them all, leaving only two shaky formal arguments. While he also puts forth strong objections of his own against the usury ban, as Professor Noonan concludes, Zumanhart's examination ends in a rejection of the past. Usury is left assailed in name alone. The early scholastic theory of usury is abandoned. Zumanhart's argument for usury is comprehensive. Contrary to St. Thomas, the usurer is charging not for the borrower's use of his money, but for his own lack of use. If it is replied that the borrower's restoring of the principal restores to the lender the power of use, Zumanhart cogently replies, again sensing time preference, but he does not restore to him, the lender, the use of the intervening time, so that he will be able to use it, the money, for that intervening time. Thus interest on a loan becomes a legitimate charge for the foregone use of money during the time period of a loan. It is clear, at least implicitly, that Conrad Zumanhart has magnificently demonstrated the justice of usury, of interest on a loan.
On the fixed value of money as an argument against usury, Zumanhart repeats and develops the argument of earlier critics that the value of money varies over time. Furthermore, on the charge of risklessness of a money loan, Zumanhart originates an argument potentially fatal to the usury ban. He points out correctly that the lender is never without risk he always bears the risk of the borrower going bankrupt. The borrower also has the opportunity of earning more profits from the loan than the interest he has to pay the lender. Furthermore, Zumanhart neatly smashed the Aristotelian argument that money by its nature was meant to be used only as a medium of exchange and not to command interest. Zumanhart boldly declares that the argument is simply absurd. Does one then commit sin by using wine to put out a fire, or by storing money in a shoe? There is nothing in the natural law that demonstrates that a material good must always be used for one particular purpose rather than for another. We are left, after Zumanhart, with only two very weak arguments against usury. The mere fact that Aristotle said it was unnatural, an argument which Zumanhart could only have meant sardonically, and the divine prohibition. But since usury is really natural, Zumanhart, as we have seen, is willing to construe the divine prohibition so narrowly that it virtually disappears. After Zumanhart, the usury ban is finished. Unfortunately for the credibility of scholastic economics, however, the sixteenth-century scholastics, superb as they were in many areas of economics, did not accept the bold challenge of Conrad Zumanhart to scrap the usury ban completely. In some cases, particularly in his justification of the guaranteed partnership contract, Zumanhart held back from full approval, counseling prudentially against contracts, though licit, which might scandalize the community. It was left to Zumanhart's eminent student, Johann Eck, to carry the Zumanhartian revolution through to its completion. Eck, professor of theology at the University of Ingolstadt, near the financial center of Augsburg in Bavaria, was soon to find his greatest fame in arguing the Catholic case against Martin Luther. Augsburg was then the leading financial center of Germany, and the home of the great bankers, the Fuggers, who had captured the lucrative papal banking business from the city of Florence. In 1514, the 28-year-old Eck, a friend of the Fuggers, criticized his cautious fellow theologians for concealing the truth that the guaranteed partnership contract was fully licit, scandal or no scandal. Arguing his case before a favorable audience of canonists at the University of Bologna, Eck pointed out that merchants generally solicit the guaranteed investment contract and therefore profit by it. Furthermore, this contract had been in general use for forty years, so that it should be assumed that the guaranteed contract is licit unless proven otherwise. 
Also, Eck added the modern, sophisticated note that, after all, most capitalist investors in this contract are widows and orphans. It should be noted that the eminent Scottish nominalist theologian John Major, 1478-1548, dean of the Faculty of Theology at the University of Paris, clearly assented to the controversial Eck Zumanhart defense of the guaranteed investment contract. 9. Nominalists and Active Natural Rights The Dominicans, as we have seen, triumphed over the Franciscans on the property rights question with Pope John XXII's great bull, Quia Vir Reprobus, 1329. Individual property rights were now officially established as natural, stemming from God's granting man dominion over the earth. Despite William of Ockham's attempt to refute John XXII, his nominalist followers took the lead in developing this active natural property rights theory. Pierre Delis, 1350-1420, and particularly his student and successor as Chancellor of the University of Paris, Jean Gerson, 1363-1429, developed the theory. Thus, as Gerson put it trenchantly in his De Vita Spirituale Anime, 1402, There is a natural dominion as a gift from God, by which every creature has a use, right, directly from God, to take inferior things into its own use for its own preservation. Each has this use as a result of a fair and irrevocable justice, maintained in its original purity or a natural integrity. In this way, Adam had dominion over the fowls of the air and the fish in the sea. To this dominion, the dominion of liberty can also be assimilated, which is an unrestrained faculty given by God. It is odd that this nominalist and mystic, after setting forth the view of human rights as a dominion, should also hold among a minority of scholastics that any mercantile profit over and above costs and risk is immoral, and that the government should fix all prices to assure a just price. The active rights theory was championed by the Gersonian Conrad Zumanhart, and then advanced further by the nominalist John Major. In his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, 1509, Major, a century after Gerson, drew the logical conclusion that not only man's right and dominion were natural, but so too was private property. Major's student, Jacques Almain, put it clearly, Aurea Apuscula, circa 1525. Natural dominion is thus the dispositional power or faculty of using things which people can employ in their use of external objects, following the precepts of the law of nature, by which everyone can look after their own bodies and preserve themselves. Throughout the fifteenth century and into the sixteenth, the active theory of natural rights seemed to reign unchallenged.
7. The Learned Extremist, Juan de Mariana One of the last Spanish scholastics was a Jesuit, but not a Salamancan. He was the extremist contemporary of Molina and Suarez, Juan de Mariana, 1536-1624. Mariana was born near Toledo of poor and humble parents. He entered the great University of Alcala in 1553, shown as a student, and a year later was received into the new Society of Jesus. After completing his studies at Alcala, Mariana went to the Jesuit college at Rome in 1561 to teach philosophy and theology, and after four years moved to Sicily to set up the theology program at the Jesuit college there. In 1569, Mariana moved to teach theology at the great University of Paris at the remarkably young age of 33. After four years, ill health forced him to retire to live in Toledo. Ill health, however, often does not necessarily mean a short life, and Mariana lived to the then phenomenally ripe old age of eighty-eight. Fortunately, Mariana's retirement was an active one, and his great learning and erudition drew numerous persons, from private citizens to state and ecclesiastical authorities, to ask for his advice and guidance. He was able to publish two great and influential books. One was a history of Spain, written first in Latin and then in Spanish, which went into many volumes and many editions in both languages. The Latin version was eventually published in eleven volumes, and the Spanish in thirty. The Spanish edition has long been considered one of the classics of Spanish style, and it went into many editions until the mid-nineteenth century. The other notable work of Mariana, De Rega, on kingship, was published in 1599, written at the suggestion of King Philip II of Spain and dedicated to his successor, Philip III. But monarchy did not fare well at the hands of the hard-hitting Mariana. A fervent opponent of the rising tide of absolutism in Europe, and of the doctrine of such as King James I of England, that kings rule absolutely by divine right, Mariana converted the scholastic doctrine of tyranny from an abstract concept into a weapon with which to smite real monarchs of the past. He denounced such ancient rulers as Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar as tyrants, who acquired their power by injustice and robbery. Previous scholastics, including Suarez, believed that the people could ratify such unjust usurpation by their consent after the fact, and thereby make their rule legitimate. But Mariana was not so quick to concede the consent of the people. In contrast to other scholastics who placed the ownership of power in the king, he stressed that the people have a right to reclaim their political power whenever the king should abuse it. Indeed, Mariana held that in transferring their original political power from a state of nature to the king, the people necessarily reserved important rights to themselves. 
In addition to the right to reclaim sovereignty, they retained such vital powers as taxation, the right to veto laws, and the right to determine succession if the king has no heir. It should already be clear that it was Mariana, rather than Suarez, who might be called the forebear of John Locke's theory of popular consent, and the continuing superiority of the people to the government. Furthermore, Mariana also anticipated Locke in holding that men leave the state of nature to form governments in order to preserve their rights of private property. Mariana also went far beyond Suarez in postulating a state of nature, a society previous to the institution of government. But the most fascinating feature of the extremism of Mariana's political theory was his creative innovation in the scholastic theory of tyrannicide. That a tyrant might be justly killed by the people had long been standard doctrine. But Mariana broadened it greatly in two significant ways. First, he expanded the definition of tyranny— a tyrant was any ruler who violated the laws of religion, who imposed taxes without the people's consent, or who prevented a meeting of a democratic parliament. All the other scholastics, in contrast, had located the sole power to tax in the ruler. Even more spectacularly, to Mariana, any individual citizen can justly assassinate a tyrant, and may do so by any means necessary. Assassination did not require some sort of collective decision by the entire people. To be sure, Mariana did not think that an individual should engage in assassination lightly. First, he should try to assemble the people to make this crucial decision. But if that is impossible, he should at least consult some erudite and grave men, unless the cry of the people against the tyrant is so starkly manifest that consultation becomes unnecessary. Furthermore, Mariana added, in phrases anticipating Locke's and the Declaration of Independence's justification of the right of rebellion, that we need not worry about the public order being greatly disrupted by too many people taking up the practice of tyrannicide. For this is a dangerous enterprise, Mariana sensibly pointed out, and very few are ever ready to risk their lives in that way. On the contrary, most tyrants have not died a violent death and tyrannicides have almost always been greeted by the populace as heroes. In contrast to the common objections to tyrannicide, he concluded, it would be salutary for rulers to fear the people, and to realize that a lapse into tyranny might cause the people to call them to account for their crimes. Mariana has given us an eloquent description of the typical tyrant at his deadly work. He seizes the property of individuals and squanders it, impelled as he is by the unkingly vices of lust, avarice, cruelty, and fraud. Tyrants indeed try to injure and ruin everybody, but they direct their attack especially against rich and upright men throughout the realm. They consider the good more suspect than the evil, and the virtue which they themselves lack is most formidable to them. 
They expel the better man from the commonwealth on the principle that whatever is exalted in the kingdom should be laid low. They exhaust all the rest so that they cannot unite by demanding new tributes from them daily, by stirring up quarrels among the citizens, and by joining war to war. They build huge works at the expense and by the suffering of the citizens. Whence the pyramids of Egypt were born. The tyrant necessarily fears that those whom he terrorizes and holds as slaves will attempt to overthrow him. Thus he forbids the citizens to congregate together, to meet in assemblies, and to discuss the commonwealth altogether, taking from them by secret police methods the opportunity of free speaking and freely listening, so that they are not even allowed to complain freely. This erudite and grave man, Juan de Mariana, left no doubt what he thought of the most recent famous tyrannicide, that of the French king Henry III. In 1588, Henry III had been prepared to name as his successor Henry of Navarre, a Calvinist who would be ruling over a fiercely Catholic nation. Facing a rebellion by the Catholic nobles, headed by the Duc de Guise, and backed by the devoted Catholic citizens of Paris, Henry III called the Duke and his brother the Cardinal to a peace parley into his camp, and then had the two assassinated. The following year, on the point of conquering the city of Paris, Henry III was assassinated in turn by a young Dominican friar and member of the Catholic League, Jacques Clément. To Mariana, in this way, blood was expiated with blood, and the Duc de Guise was avenged with royal blood. Thus perished Clément, concluded Mariana, an eternal ornament of France. The assassination had similarly been hailed by Pope Sixtus V and by the fiery Catholic preachers of Paris. The French authorities were understandably edgy about Mariana's theories and at his book De Rega. Finally, in 1610, Henry IV, formerly Henry of Navarre, who had converted from Calvinism to the Catholic faith in order to become king of France, was assassinated by the Catholic resistor Ravaillac, who despised the religious centrism and the state absolutism imposed by the king. At that point, France erupted in an orgy of indignation against Mariana, and the Parliament of Paris had de Rega burned publicly by the hangman. Before executing Ravaillac, the assassin was questioned closely as to whether reading Mariana had driven him to murder, but he denied ever having heard of him. While the king of Spain refused to heed French pleas to suppress this subversive work, the general of the Jesuit order issued a decree to his society forbidding them to teach that it is lawful to kill tyrants. This truckling, however, did not prevent a successful smear campaign in France against the Jesuit order, as well as its loss of political and theological influence. Juan de Mariana possessed one of the most fascinating personalities in the history of political and economic thought. Honest, gutsy, and fearless, Mariana was in hot water almost all of his long life, even for his economic writings. 
Turning his attention to monetary theory and practice, Mariana, in his brief treatise De Monetae Mutatione, on the alteration of money, 1609, denounced his sovereign, Philip III, for robbing the people and crippling commerce through the debasement of copper coinage. He pointed out that this debasement also added to Spain's chronic price inflation by increasing the quantity of money in the country. Philip had wiped out his public debt by debasing his copper coins by two-thirds, thereby tripling the supply of copper money. Mariana noted that debasement and government tampering with the market value of money could only cause grave economic problems. Only a fool would try to separate these values in such a way that the legal price should differ from the natural. Foolish, nay, wicked, the ruler who orders that a thing the common people value, let us say at five, should be sold for ten. Men are guided in this matter by common estimation founded on considerations of the quality of things and of their abundance or scarcity. It would be vain for a prince to seek to undermine these principles of commerce. Tis best to leave them intact, instead of assailing them by force to the public detriment. Mariana begins De Monetae with a charming and candid apologia for writing the book, reminiscent of the great Swedish economist Knut Wicksell, over two and a half centuries later. He knows that his criticism of the king courted great unpopularity, but everyone is now groaning under the hardships resulting from the debasement, and yet no one has had the courage to criticize the king's action publicly. Hence justice requires that at least one man, Mariana, should move in to express the common grievance publicly. When a combination of fear and bribery conspire to silence critics, there should be at least one man in the country who knows the truth and has the courage to point it out to one and all. Mariana then proceeds to demonstrate that debasement is a very heavy hidden tax on the private property of his subjects, and that, Pache, his political theory, no king has the right to impose taxes without the consent of the people. Since political power originated with the people, the king has no rights over the private property of his subjects, nor can he appropriate their wealth by his whim and will. Mariana notes the papal bull Coena Domini, which had decreed the excommunication of any ruler who imposes new taxes. Mariana reasons that any king who practices debasement should incur the same punishment, as should any legal monopoly imposed by the state without the consent of the people. Under such monopolies the state itself, or its grantee, can sell a product to the public at a price higher than its market worth and this is surely nothing but a tax. Mariana also set forth a history of debasement and its unfortunate effects, and he pointed out that governments are supposed to maintain all standards of weight and measure, not only of money, and that their record in adulterating those standards is most disgraceful. 
Castile, for example, had changed its measures of oil and wine in order to levy a hidden tax, and this led to great confusion and popular unrest. Mariana's book attacking the king's debasement of the currency led the monarch to haul the aged 73-year-old scholar into prison, charging him with the high crime of Lee's majesty. The judges convicted Mariana of this crime against the king, but the pope refused to punish him, and Mariana was finally released from prison after four months on the condition that he would cut out the offensive passages in his work, and that he would be more careful in the future. King Philip and his minions, however, did not leave the fate of the book to an eventual change of heart on the part of Mariana. Instead, the king ordered his officials to buy up every published copy of De Monetae Mutatione they could get their hands on, and to destroy them. Not only that, after Mariana's death, the Spanish Inquisition expurgated the remaining copies, deleted many sentences, and smeared entire pages with ink. All non-expurgated copies were put on the Spanish index, and these in turn were expurgated during the 17th century. As a result of this savage campaign of censorship, the existence of the Latin text of this important booklet remained unknown for 250 years, and was only rediscovered because the Spanish text was incorporated into a 19th century collection of classical Spanish essays. Hence, few complete copies of the booklet survive, of which the only one in the United States is in the Boston Public Library. The Venerable Mariana was apparently not in enough trouble. After he was jailed by the king, the authorities seized his notes and papers, and found there a manuscript attacking the existing governing powers in the Society of Jesus, an individualist unafraid to think for himself, Mariana clearly took little stock in the Jesuit ideal of the society as a tightly disciplined, military-like body. In this booklet, Discurso de las Enfermedades de la Compañía, Molina smote the Jesuit order fore and aft, its administration and its training of novices, and he judged his superiors in the Jesuit order unfit to rule. Above all, Mariana criticized the military-like hierarchy. The general, he concluded, has too much power, and the provincials and other Jesuits too little. Jesuits, he asserted, should at least have a voice in the selection of their immediate superiors. When the Jesuit general, Claudius Aquaviva, found that copies of Mariana's work were circulating in a kind of underground zamisdat, both inside and outside the order, he ordered Mariana to apologize for the scandal. The feisty and principled Mariana, however, refused to do so, and Aquaviva did not press the issue. As soon as Mariana died, the legion of enemies of the Jesuit order published the Discurso simultaneously in French, Latin, and Italian. 
As in the case of all bureaucratic organizations, the Jesuits then and since were more concerned about the scandal and not washing dirty linen in public than in fostering freedom of inquiry, self-criticism, or correcting any evils that Mariana might have uncovered. The Jesuit order never expelled their eminent member, nor did he ever leave. Still, he was all his life regarded as a feisty troublemaker, and as unwilling to bow to orders or peer pressure. Father Antonio Astrain, in his History of the Jesuit Order, notes that, above all, we must bear in mind that his, Mariana's, character was very rough and unmortified. Personally, in a manner similar to the Italian Franciscan saints San Bernardino and Sant'Antonino of the fifteenth century, Mariana was ascetic and austere. He never attended the theater, and he held that priests and monks should never degrade their sacred character by listening to actors. He also denounced the popular Spanish sport of bullfighting, which was also not calculated to increase his popularity. Gloomily, Mariana would often stress that life was short, precarious, and full of vexation. Yet, despite his austerity, Father Juan de Mariana possessed a sparkling, almost Menconesque wit. Thus his one-liner on marriage— Someone cleverly said that the first and the last day of marriage are desirable, but that the rest are terrible. But probably his wittiest remark concerned bullfighting. His attack on that sport met with the objection that some theologians had defended the validity of bullfighting. Denouncing theologians who palliated crimes by inventing explanations to please the masses— Mariana delivered a line closely anticipating a favorite remark by Ludwig von Mises on economists over three and a half centuries later. There is nothing howsoever absurd which is not defended by some theologian. 8. The Last Salamancans, Lessius and De Lugo one of the last great Salamancans was a Jesuit, but not a Spaniard. Leonard Lessius, 1554-1623, was a Fleming, born at Brecht, near the great city of Antwerp. During the sixteenth century, Antwerp had become the outstanding commercial and financial center of northern Europe, a focus of trade from the Mediterranean. Lessius' parents had originally planned for him to become a merchant, but he entered the University of Louvain and was received into the Jesuit order in 1572. He taught philosophy for six years at the English College at Douai in France, and then went to Rome for two years to study under Francisco Suarez. It was at Rome that Lessius became a Salamancan in spirit, and from then on struck up a friendship with Luis de Molina. Returning to Flanders, Lessius assumed a chair in philosophy and theology at the University of Louvain. In theology, Lessius took up the great Molinist cause of free will against a pro-determinist wing of theologians at Louvain. There he confronted the crypto-Calvinist Dr. Michael Debye, Chancellor of the University of Louvain, who had adopted the concept of predestination and salvation of the elect. 
Lessius also advanced the Suarezian view that original political power was conferred by God on the people, and hence he attacked the growing adherence to the divine right of kings, especially as put forth by King James I of England. Lessius' most important work was De Justitia et Jure, 1605, the same title as the works of Molina and de Bañez. The book was enormously influential, being published in nearly forty separate editions in Antwerp, Louvain, Lyon, Paris, and Venice. Not only was Lessius' knowledge of his predecessors encyclopedic, but he was renowned for his knowledge and analysis of contemporary commercial practices and contracts, and for his applications of moral principles to such practices. Lessius was consulted frequently on these matters by statesmen and church leaders. On the theory of price, Lessius, like his scholastic forebears, held the just price to be that determined by the common estimate of the market. A legally fixed price could also be the just price, but in contrast to many of his fellow scholastics, for whom the legal price took precedence, Lessius pointed out several cases in which the market price would have to be chosen over the legal price. Following Juan de Medina, these were, first, when the market price is lower, and, second, when, in change of circumstances of increasing or diminishing supply and similar factors, the authorities were notably negligent in changing the legal price. Even more strongly, even a private individual may request a price above the legal ceiling when the authorities are ill-informed about the commercial circumstances, which is likely, of course, to happen a good deal of the time. Attacking the cost-of-production theory of price, Lessius points to market demand as the determinant of price, regardless of a merchant's expenses. But if the merchant's expenses have been greater, that is his hard luck, and the common price may not be increased for that reason, just as it need not be decreased even if he had no expenses at all. This is the merchant's situation, just as he can make a profit if he has small expenses, so he can lose if his expenses are very large or extraordinary. Leonard Lessius had an insight into how all economic markets are interrelated, and he analyzed and defended in turn the workings of foreign exchange, speculation, and the value of money and prices. In particular, Lessius engaged in the most sophisticated analysis yet achieved of the workings of wages and the labor market. Like other scholastics, he saw that wages were governed by the same supply and demand principles, and therefore by the same canons of justice, as any price. In asking, what is the minimum justifiable wage for any given occupation, Lessius declared that the existence of other people willing to perform the work at any given wage shows that it is not too low. In short, if a supply exists for the labor at that wage, how can it be unjust? Lessius also discovered and set forth the concept of psychic income as part of a money wage. 
a worker can be paid in psychic benefit as well as money. If the work brings with it social status and emoluments, the pay can be low, because status and associated advantages are, so to say, a part of the salary. Lessius also advanced the view that workers are hired by the employer because of the benefits gained by the latter, and those benefits will be gauged by the worker's productivity. Here are certainly the rudiments of the marginal productivity theory of the demand for labor, and hence of wages, which was set forth by Austrians and other neoclassical economists at the end of the nineteenth century. Indeed, Lessius' sophisticated analysis of wages and the labor market were lost to mainstream economics until they were independently rediscovered in the late nineteenth century. Lessius also stressed the importance of entrepreneurship in determining income. This quality of entrepreneurial industry, of efficiently combining jobs, is rare, and therefore the able entrepreneur can acquire a much higher income than his fellows. Lessius also provides a sophisticated analysis of money, demonstrating that the value of money is dependent on its supply and demand. More abundant money will make it less valuable either for buying goods or for an exchange, and a greater demand for money will cause the value of the currency to rise. For example, if great princes are in urgent need of money for war or other public purposes, or if a large quantity of goods come onto the market, for whenever money is urgently needed for matters of great moment, so is it more highly esteemed in terms of goods. In his application of moral principle to trade practice, Lessius had a liberating effect on trade. This was particularly true of usury, where Lessius, while formally continuing the traditional prohibition, was actually a highly influential force in its ongoing destruction. Lessius provided the most sweeping defense so far of the guaranteed investment contract, and he treated benignly even high rates of return on capital. He also removed all the remaining restrictions on lucrum cessans. First, he widened the doctrine to apply not only to specific loans that would otherwise have been invested, but to any funds, since they are liquid assets that always might have been invested. Thus the pool of funds can as a whole be considered opportunity cost foregone of investment and therefore interest may be charged on a loan to that extent. As Lessius puts it, although no particular loan separately considered be the cause, all, however, collectively considered are the cause of the whole lucrum sessans. For in order to lend indiscriminately to those coming by, you abstain from business, and you undergo the loss of the profit which would come from this. Therefore, since all collectively are the cause, the burden of compensation for this profit can be distributed to single loans, according to the proportion of each. But this meant that Leonard Lessius justified not only businessmen or investors planning to invest their money, but also 
any people with liquid funds, including professional moneylenders. For the first time among scholastics, all loans by moneylenders were now justified. With Leonard Lessius, then, the last of the barriers to interest or usury were smashed, and only the hollow shell of the formal prohibition remained. Lessius adds that the lender may charge interest even though a reserve of money is kept out of fear, and even if that fear is irrational. Note that to Lessius the important point was the reality of the lender's subjective fears, not whether the fears are objectively correct. Furthermore, Lessius takes the Medina-Molina assumption of risk argument for interest, about which they had tended to hedge in practice, and widens it greatly. All loans, he points out, carry risks of non-payment. A personal right is almost always joined with some difficulties and dangers. In a careful analysis of lenders' risk, Lessius pointed out that a greater risk and a greater charge would be incurred by lending to someone not known to the lender, or whose credit is doubtful. But that is not all. For Leonard Lessius contributed his own new and powerful weapon against the usury ban, a new title or justification for interest, the new justification, prefigured only by the neglected Zumenhart, was carentia pecuniae, charging for lack of money. Lessius pointed out quite cogently that the lender suffers the lack of his money, the lack of his liquidity during the term of the loan, and therefore he is entitled to charge interest for this economic loss. In short, Lessius saw perceptively that everyone derives utility from liquidity, from the possession of money, and that being deprived of this utility is a lack for which the lender may and will demand compensation. Lessius pointed out that unexpected situations can and do arise, which could be met far more effectively if one's money were in one's possession, and not absent for a period of time. Time, in short, can and should be charged for for that reason, for it can never be obtained that the merchants do not value a long-term concession higher than a short-term one and those who are deprived of their money value more the lack of their money for five months than the lack of it for four, and the lack of it for four more than three. And this is partly because they lack the opportunity of gaining with that money, partly because their principal is longer in danger. Furthermore, Lessius points out that bills of exchange or rights to future money are always at a discount compared to cash. This discount is, of course, the rate of interest. Lessius explains, This is a matter of common experience in that money provides the means to a multitude of things which those rights do not provide. Therefore, they may be bought at a lower price. Lessius also notes that merchants and exchangers daily determine the price of the lack of money on the Antwerp Bourse, averaging about 
and foreign exchanges of inestimable value to the economy would perish if such prices could not be charged. Thus, for Lessius, the price for a lack of money is established on organized loan markets. But to the extent that a loan market exists, there is no need to justify each merchant's loan on the basis of his particular opportunity cost or deprivation of funds. That price, which becomes the just price, is set on the loan market. As Lessius puts it, Moreover, any merchant seems able to demand this price, even though there is no gain of his that stops because of his loan. This is the just price for the privation of money among merchants, for the just price of an article or obligation in any community is that which is put upon it by that community in good faith for the sake of the common good in view of all the circumstances. Therefore, even if through the privation of money for a year there is no gain of mine that stops, and no risk of capital, because such a price for just causes has been put upon this privation, I may demand it, just as the rest do. With Carentia Pecunii, therefore, Leonard Lessius delivered the final blow to smash the usury prohibition while unfortunately still retaining the prohibition in a formal sense. It is no wonder that Professor Noonan, the great scholar of the scholastics on usury, holds Lessius to be the theologian whose views on usury most decidedly mark the arrival of a new era. More than any predecessor, he would probably have felt completely at ease in the modern financial world. The last Salamancan was the Jesuit Cardinal Juan de Lugo, 1583-1660. De Lugo takes the Salamancans into the 17th century, the century of the decline of Spanish power in Europe. After studying law and theology at Salamanca, de Lugo went to Rome to teach at the great Jesuit college. After teaching theology in Rome for twenty-two years, de Lugo was made a cardinal and became a member of various influential church commissions in Rome. A learned and comprehensive theoretician, de Lugo has been called the greatest moral theologian since Aquinas. Author of a book on psychology and another on physics, de Lugo's masterwork in the area of law and economics was De Justitia et Jure, published in 1642. This work went through numerous editions during the 17th and 18th centuries, its last edition having appeared as late as 1893. In his theory of value, this culminating work of the Salamancan school displayed a subtle and advanced subjective utility explanation. The prices of goods, de Lugo pointed out, fluctuate on account of their utility in respect of human need, and then only on account of estimation, for jewels are much less useful than corn in the house, and yet their price is much higher. Here de Lugo once again comes very close to the late nineteenth-century marginal utility explanation of value, and to solving the value paradox. Corn is higher than jewelry in use value, but is cheaper in price. 
The answer to this paradox is that subjective estimates or valuations differ from objective use value, and these in turn are affected by the relative scarcities of supply. Again, only the marginal concept is needed to complete the explanation. Subjectivity, de Lugo goes on, means that the estimation or valuation is going to be conducted by imprudent as well as prudent men. No rationality or economic man assumptions here. In short, the just price is the market price determined by demand and consumer valuations. And if the consumers are foolish or judge differently than we do, then so be it. The market price is a just price all the same. In his discussion of merchants' activities, de Lugo adds to the previous opportunity cost concept of mercantile expenses. For a merchant will only continue to supply a product if the price covers his expenses and the rate of profit he could earn in other activities. In his theory of money, Cardinal de Lugo follows his confrères. The value or purchasing power of money is determined by the quality of the metal content of coins, the supply of and the demand for money. De Lugo also set forth the idea that money moves from the area of its lower to that of its higher value. On usury, De Lugo provided a mixed bag. On the one hand, he draws back from the clear implications of Lessius and others that the usury ban should become a hollow shell. For that reason, he refuses to accept Lessius' willingness to have the lender charge for lack of money during the period of the loan. On the other hand, de Lugo widens still further the powerful pro-usury weapons of risk and lucrum cessans. He broadens the concept of risk to include explicitly every loan, for, as he puts it with remarkable bluntness, where today is there to be found a debt so placed in safety that in security it equals ready cash? But that, of course, justifies the charging of interest on every loan. De Lugo also widens lucrum cessan still further, for he allows the lender to include not only probable profit foregone from a loan, but also the expectation of remote profit foregone. Also, the lender, in charging interest, may calculate the profit he would have made by reinvesting the lost profit on a loan. In sum, de Lugo asserts sweepingly that lucrum cessans is the general title for purging usury. 9. The Decline of Scholasticism Sixteenth-century Spain has well been called the Indian summer of scholasticism. After that, its decline, not only in Spain but throughout Europe, was rapid. Part of the reason was a stubborn clinging to the form of the prohibition of usury, a ban which had made little sense either by natural or divine law, and which entered Christian thought quite late in the day, was clung to and strengthened in an almost perpetual irrational frenzy. 
The systematic weakening of the usury ban by some of the finest minds in Christendom had the beneficial effect of sanctioning the charging of interest, but at the long-run cost of discrediting the scholastic method itself. By clinging to the outer husk of banning usury as a mortal sin, while at the same time finding increasingly sophisticated ways of allowing merchants and finally professional moneylenders to get around the ban, the scholastics opened themselves to unfair charges of evasion and hypocrisy. The deadly assault on scholasticism came from two contrasting but allied camps— One was the rising groups of Protestants without, and crypto-Calvinists within, the Church, who denounced it for its alleged decadence and moral laxity. Protestantism, after all, was in large part a drive to cast off the sophisticated trappings and refined doctrine of the Church, and to go back to the alleged simplicity and moral purity of early Christianity. Made the very emblem of this hostility was the Jesuit order, the devoted spearhead of the Counter-Reformation, that order which had taken up from the faltering Dominicans the torch of Thomism and Scholasticism. The second camp of enemies of scholasticism was the rising group of secularists and rationalists, men who might be Catholics or Protestants in their private lives, but who mainly wanted to get rid of such alleged excrescences on modern life as the political application of religious principles or the prohibition of usury. Consequently, the crypto-Calvinists attacked the Jesuits for weakening the prohibition of usury, while the secularists attacked them for keeping it. Neither wing of the opposition was impressed with the brilliance of the scholastic arguments to justify usury, nor with the entire scholastic and Jesuit enterprise of casuistry, that is, of applying moral principles, both natural and divine, to concrete problems of daily life. One might think that the task of casuistry should be deemed an important and even noble one, If general moral principles exist, why shouldn't they be applied to daily life? But both sets of opponents rapidly succeeded in making the very word casuistry a smear term. For the one, a method of weaseling out of strict moral precepts. For the other, a method of imposing outdated and reactionary dogmas upon the world. Why, despite the great work of Zumanhart and others, did the Catholic Church persist in keeping the formal ban on usury for two centuries thereafter? Probably for the same reason that the Church has always tended to maintain stoutly that it never changes its doctrines, while it keeps doing so. Changing content within an unchanging formal shell has long been characteristic, not only of the Catholic Church, but of any long-lived bureaucratic institution, whether it be the Church or the constitutional interpretations of the Supreme Court of the United States. The two-pronged alliance against scholasticism outside and within the Catholic Church cut far deeper than the quarrel over usury. 
At the root of Catholicism as a religion is that God can be approached or apprehended through all the faculties of man, not simply through faith, but through reason and the senses. Protestantism, and especially Calvinism, sternly put God outside man's faculties, considering, for example, sensate embodiments of man's love for God in painting or sculpture as blasphemous idolatry to be destroyed in order to clear the path for the only proper communication with God, pure faith in revelation. The Thomists stress on reason as a means of apprehending God's natural law and even aspects of divine law was reviled by a sole Protestant emphasis on faith in God's arbitrary will. While some Protestants adopted natural law theories, the basic Protestant thrust was opposition to any natural law attempts to derive ethics or political philosophy from the use of man's reason. For Protestants, man was too inherently sinful and corrupt for his reason or his senses to be anything but an embodiment of corruption. Only pure faith in God's arbitrary and revealed commands was permissible as a groundwork for human ethics. But this meant that for Protestants there was also very little natural law groundwork from which to criticize actions of the state. Calvinism and even Lutheranism provided little or no defenses against the absolutist state which burgeoned throughout Europe during the 16th century and triumphed in the 17th century. If Protestantism opened the way for the absolute state, the secularists of the 16th and 17th centuries embraced it. Shorn of natural law critiques of the state, new secularists, such as the Frenchman Jean Baudin, embraced the state's positive law as the only possible criterion for politics. Just as the anti-scholastic Protestants extolled God's arbitrary will as the foundation for ethics, so the new secularists raised the state's arbitrary will to the status of unchallengeable and absolute sovereign. On the deeper level of the question of how we know what we know, or epistemology, Thomism and scholasticism suffered from the contrasting but allied assaults by the champions of reason and empiricism. In Thomist thought, reason and empiricism are not separated but allied and interwoven. Truth is built up by reason on a solid groundwork in empirically known reality. The rational and empirical were integrated into one coherent whole. But in the first part of the seventeenth century, two contrasting philosophers managed between them the fatal sundering of the rational and the empirical that continues to plague the scientific method until the present day. These were the Englishman Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, and the Frenchman René Descartes, 1596-1650. Descartes was the champion of a desiccated mathematical and absolutely certain reason divorced from empirical reality, while Bacon was the advocate of sifting endlessly and almost mindlessly through the empirical data. 
both the distinguished English lawyer who rose to become Lord Chancellor, Lord Verulam, Viscount of the Realm, and corrupt judge, and the shy and wandering French aristocrat agreed on one crucial and destructive point, the severing of reason and thought from empirical data. Hence from Bacon there stemmed the English empiricist tradition, steeped mindlessly in incoherent data, and from Descartes the purely deductive and sometimes mathematical tradition of continental rationalism. All this was, of course, an assault on natural law, which had long integrated the rational and the empirical. As a corollary to, and intermingled with, this basic and systematic change in European thought in the early modern period, the sixteenth and especially seventeenth centuries, was a radical shift in the locus of intellectual activity away from the universities. The theologians and philosophers who wrote and thought on economics, law, and other disciplines of human action during the medieval and Renaissance periods were university professors. Paris, Bologna, Oxford, Salamanca, Rome, and many other universities were the milieu and arena for intellectual output and combat during these centuries and even the Protestant universities in the early modern period continued to be centers of natural law teaching. But the major theorists and writers of the seventeenth and then the eighteenth centuries were almost none of them professors. They were pamphleteers, businessmen, wandering aristocrats such as Descartes, minor public officials such as John Locke, churchmen such as Bishop George Barclay, this shift of focus was greatly facilitated by the invention of printing, which made the publication of books and writings far less costly and created a much wider market for intellectual output. Printing was invented in the mid-15th century, and by the early 16th century it became possible for the first time to make a living as an independent writer, selling one's books to a commercial market. This shift from university professors to private lay citizens meant, at least for that era, a move away from traditional modes of learning and thought towards a more diverse spectrum of idiosyncratic individual views. In a sense, this acceleration of diversity went hand in hand with one of the most important impacts of the Protestant Reformation on social and religious thought. For in the long run, far more important than such theological disputes as over free will versus predestination and over the significance of communion, was the shattering of the unity of Christendom. Luther and even Calvin had no intention of fragmenting Christendom. On the contrary, each set out to reform a unified Christian church, but the consequences of their revolution was to open Pandora's box. Whereas frictions and heresies had before been either stamped out or accommodated within the church, now Christianity split apart in literally hundreds of different sects, some quite bizarre, each propounding different theologies, ethics, and prescriptions for social life. 
While the variegated strains of social thought stemming from this break within Christianity included rationalists and individualist groups, such as the levelers, as well as absolutists, the value of the resulting diversity must be offset by the unfortunate fading away of scholasticism and Thomism from Western thought. The severing of the unity of European thought was intensified by the shift during these centuries of written literature from Latin to the vernacular in each country. During the Middle Ages, all intellectuals, jurists, and theologians in Europe wrote in Latin, even though, of course, the spoken language in each country was the vernacular. This meant that for scholars and intellectuals there was only one language, and, in a sense, one country, so that Englishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, etc. could easily read and be influenced by each other's books and articles. Europe was truly one intellectual community. In the Middle Ages, only Italian authors wrote from time to time in Italian as well as Latin, but the Protestant Reformation gave tremendous impetus toward the abandonment of Latin, since Protestants felt it vital for the Christian masses to read and study the Bible in language they could understand. Martin Luther's famous translation of the Bible into German in the 16th century inspired a rapid change toward writing in the national language. As a result, since the 16th and 17th centuries, economic, social, and religious thought began to be isolated in each national language. Later, continuing influences of scholastic economic thought became confined to writers in Catholic countries. 10. Parting Shots The Storm Over the Jesuits While the inspiration for creative and outstanding scholastics was played out, the 17th century saw the influence of scholasticism continue in Spain and spread to other countries. The great champion and disseminator of the Salamanca school was, of course, the Jesuit order. In Spain and elsewhere, the Jesuits produced a huge number of manuals on moral theology for the use of confessors, in which they discussed, among other matters, the application of theological and moral principles to the ethics of business. The most important instance was the pious Father Antonio de Escobar y Mendoza's 1589-1669 Theologiae Moralis, 1652. This extremely popular work was reprinted in 37 editions in a brief period of time, and was also translated and published in France, Belgium, Germany, and Italy. Escobar's work was basically a restatement of two dozen previous books on moral theology, mainly by such Spanish writers as Molina, Suarez, and De Lugo. He repeated the Salamancan emphasis on common estimation, scarcity, and the supply of money as determinants of market price. The Salamanca school was particularly influential in Italy. There, the Genoese philosopher and jurist Sigismundo Scaccia, circa 1568-1618, published a Tractatus de Commercius et Cambius in 1618, 
which was reprinted often in Italy, France, and Germany down to the middle of the 18th century. Scotia's Tractatus repeated the price and foreign exchange theories of the Salamancans, including Covarrubias, Aspilqueta, and Lesius. Other prominent Neo-Salamancans in Italy were the Jesuit Cardinal Giambattista de Luca, 1613-1683, who published his multi-volume Theatrum Veritatis et Justitiae in Rome in the 1670s, Martino Bonassina, circa 1585-1631, and Antonino Diana, 1585-1663. In France, however, the influential Escobar manual ran into a storm of abuse for its sophisticated permissive attitude toward usury. The abuse was led by an influential crypto-Calvinist group within the French Catholic Church that raised a furious row about the alleged moral laxity of the Jesuit order. The assault on the Jesuits and on their devotion to reason and the freedom of the will had begun in Belgium, and was accelerated towards the end of the 16th century by Dr. Michael Debye, Chancellor of the Great University of Louvain. Bay and Bayanism launched a furious intramural warfare within Louvain against Leonard Lessius and the Jesuits on the faculty. Chancellor Debay managed to convert most of the Louvain faculty to his creed, which adopted the Calvinist creed of predestination of an elect. In France, the absolutist pro-royalists began a bitter campaign against the Jesuit order, which they linked with the Catholic leaguers and the assassination of the centrist and pro-Calvinist Henrys. In particular, the attorney Antoine Arnault, defending royal absolutism to the hilt, petitioned for the expulsion of the Jesuits from France, angrily declaiming that they were the worst enemies of the sacred doctrine of the divine right of kings. Arnault was originally employed to press the case against the Jesuits by the University of Paris and its theological faculty of the Sorbonne, which had also been swept by the crypto-Calvinist tide. In the early 17th century, two disciples of Michael Debye, both former students of the Jesuits, took up the cudgels for his cause. Most important was Cornelius Jansen, founder of the neo-Calvinist Jansenist movement, which became extremely powerful in France. Jansen, like many openly Protestant theologians, demanded to go back to the moral purity of St. Augustine and of the Christian doctrines of the 4th and 5th centuries. If Jansen was the theoretician of the movement, his friend, the Abbe saint Cyron, was the brilliant tactician and organizer. With the help of Mère Angélique, superior of the nuns of Port-Royal, saint Cyron gained control of these influential nuns. Mère Angélique was the daughter of Antoine Arnault, and indeed a dozen of the Port-Royal nuns were members of the powerful Arnault family. One of the Port-Royal nuns was the sister of the brilliant young philosopher, mathematician, and French stylist Blaise Pascal, 
and young Pascal took up the Jansenist cause with a witty and blistering attack on the Jesuits, particularly Escobar, for his alleged moral failure in being soft on usury. Pascal even coined a popular new term, Escobardery, with which he denounced the important discipline of casuistry as being evasive quibbling. Another victim of Pascal's poison pen was the austere French Jesuit Etienne Bonny. In his Somme de Péché, 1639, Bonny extended the weakening of the usury ban by going so far as to justify interest charges higher than the maximum rate permitted by royal decree. For, after all, the debtors entered into them willingly. Moreover, Bonny's trenchant voluntarism defended the usury contract on another incisive ground. Since it is licit for a lender to hope for a borrower to give him a free gift, it should also be licit for the lender and the borrower to make such a definite pact beforehand. How can making a contract for something be evil if hoping for the result is permissible? Once permit such justifications by voluntary choice, and then, of course, all assaults on usury and other free market activities must go by the board. Although the Jansenists were eventually condemned by the Pope, Pascal's scurrilous rampage against the Jesuits had considerable effect in helping to end the reign of scholastic thought, at least in France. Chapter 4 The Late Spanish Scholastics 1. THE COMMERCIAL EXPANSION OF THE SIXTEENTH CENTURY The great secular depression of the fourteenth and first half of the fifteenth century began to give way to economic recovery in the second half of the fifteenth. The overland trade from the Mediterranean to northern Europe, cut off by the French king's depredations against the fairs of Champagne, was increasingly replaced by sea trade off the Atlantic coast. Vessels now went through the Straits of Gibraltar and up the coast, increasingly sailing to Antwerp and making that city the big trading center in northern Europe during the 16th century. Commerce moved away from the restrictions and high taxation of Flemish Bruges and shifted to and expanded in free-market Antwerp, whose business and trade could flourish free of hampering legislation, privileges, and high taxes. In addition, Atlantic ships headed south and west, and the famous explorations and discoveries of the late fifteenth century changed the face of world history by making European countries world powers, and began to integrate Africa and the New World into the European economy. Spain and Portugal, the leading explorers of the new continents, became the dominant nation-states and empires of the sixteenth century. Slowly but surely, the Italian city-states, which had been in the forefront of economic advance and the spearhead of Renaissance culture, began to be left behind in the advance of economic and political power. 
Along with commercial expansion came inflation, fueled by the immense increase of gold and silver brought to Europe by the Spaniards from the newly found mines of the Western Hemisphere. An approximate tripling of the stock of specie in Europe resulted in a century of inflation, with prices tripling during the 16th century. The new money flowed first into the main Spanish port of Seville, then into the rest of Spain, and finally into other countries of Europe, and the geography of price rises followed accordingly. As Atlantic powers, England and France grew in strength along with the other Atlantic nations of Western Europe. They were greatly aided by the end of the destructive Hundred Years' War between the two nations in 1453. The doctrines of the absolute state, previously limited largely to theorists and rulers of the Italian city-states, now spread to all the nation-states of Europe. Absolutism eventually triumphed throughout Europe by the early 17th century. The victory was fueled, as we shall see below, by the rise of Protestantism, and a bit later, of secularism, beginning in the 16th century. 2. Cardinal Cajetan, Liberal Thomist Late scholasticism was the product of the 16th century, the century that ushered in the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. If the 13th century was well described as the golden age of scholastic philosophy, then the 16th century was its silver age, the era of a shining renaissance of scholastic thought before the shades of night closed in for good. As we have seen, the 14th and 15th centuries saw the emergence of nominalism, and at least the weakening of the idea of a rational, objective natural law, including a natural law ethics, discoverable by man's reason. The 16th century witnessed a renascent Thomism, spearheaded by one of the greatest churchmen of his age, Thomas de Vio, Cardinal Cajetan, 1468-1534. Cardinal Cajetan was not only the preeminent Thomist philosopher and theologian of his day, he was also an Italian Dominican who became general of the Dominican order in 1508. A cardinal of the church, he was the pope's favorite upholder of the faith in debates with the great founder of Protestantism, Martin Luther. In his commentary on Aquinas Summa, Cajetan, of course, endorsed the standard scholastic view that the just price is the common market price, reflecting the estimation of the buyers and held that that price will fluctuate upon changing conditions of demand and supply. In attempting to purge scholastic economics of any trace of Langensteinian station-in-life theory, however, Cajetan went further to criticize Aquinas for denouncing accumulation of wealth beyond one's status as suffering from the sin of avarice. On the contrary, declared Cajetan, 
It is legitimate for highly able persons to move up the social ladder in a way that matches their attainments. This candid endorsement of upward mobility in a free market was the broadest attempt yet to rid scholasticism of all traces of the ancient contempt for trade and economic gain. In his comprehensive treatise on foreign exchange, De Cambius, 1499, the great Cajetan set forth the fullest and most unqualified defense yet penned of the foreign exchange market. Sweeping aside the dithering indecisiveness of his fellow Dominican, Fra Santi Rucellai, 1437-1497, himself a former exchange banker and the son of a banker, the cardinal was firm and hard-hitting, since the role of the merchant has long since been established as legitimate, then so should that of the exchange banker, who is simply engaging in a kind of commodity transaction. Besides, modern trade could not function without the foreign exchange market, and cities could not exist without trade. Hence it is needful and right that the exchange market exist. As in other markets, the customary market price is the just price. In the course of his defense of the exchange market in De Cambius, Cajetan proceeded to advance the state of the art in monetary theory. He showed trenchantly that money is a commodity, particularly when moving from one city to another and is therefore subject to the demand and supply laws governing the prices of commodities. At this point, Cajetan made a great advance in monetary theory, indeed in economic theory generally. He pointed out that the value of money depends not only on existing demand and supply conditions, but also on present expectations of the future state of the market. Expectation of wars and famines, and of future changes in the supply of money, will affect its current value. Thus Cardinal Cajetan, a sixteenth-century prince of the Church, can be considered the founder of expectations theory in economics. Furthermore, Cajetan distinguished between the two kinds of value of money, its purchasing power in terms of goods, so that gold or silver are equated with goods being bought and sold, and the value of one coin or currency in terms of another on the foreign exchange market. Here, each kind of coin tends to move to that region where its value is highest, and away from wherever its value is lowest. On the vexed usury question, though Cajetan was not as radical as his German contemporary Zumenhardt in virtually eradicating the usury prohibition, he did join Zumenhardt on the doctrine of implicit intention, and was even more radical in the one area where Zumenhardt had hung back, lucrum sessans. Implicit intention meant that if someone really believed his contract not to be a loan, then it was not usurious, even though it might be a loan in practice. 
This, of course, paved the way for the practical elimination of the ban on usury. In addition, Cajetan also joined his fellow liberals in endorsing the guaranteed investment contract. But Cardinal Cajetan's great breakthrough on the usury front was his vindication of Lucrum Sessans. Wielding the mighty authority of being the greatest Thomist since Aquinas himself, Cajetan offered a point-by-point critique of his master's rejection of this exception to the usury ban. He then vindicates not indeed all of Lucrum Sessans, but any loan to businessmen. Thus a lender may charge interest on any loan as payment for profit foregone on other investments, provided that loan be to a businessman. This untenable split between loans to businessmen and to consumers was made for the first time as a means of justifying all business loans. The rationale was that money retained its high profit foregone value in the hands of business, but not of consumer borrowers. Thus, for the very first time in the Christian era, Cardinal Cajetan justified the business of money-lending, provided they were loans to business. Before him, all writers, even the most liberal, even Conrad Zumenhardt, had justified interest charges on lucrum sessans only for ad hoc charitable loans. Now the great Cajetan was justifying the business of money-lending at interest. 3. The School of Salamanca, the First Generation If the newly burgeoning liberal Thomism began with Cardinal Cajetan in Italy, the torch was soon passed to a set of sixteenth-century theologians who revived Thomism and scholasticism and kept them alive for over a century, the School of Salamanca in Spain. It is no more than fitting that Spain should be the center of scholastic learning in the sixteenth century. That century was preeminently the century of Spain. Spain, the leader in the explorations and conquests in the New World. Spain, the nation that brought the treasures of gold and silver across the Atlantic to Europe. Spain, along with Italy and Portugal, the nation in Europe that remained resoundingly Catholic and proved immune to the spread of Protestantism. The acknowledged founder of the School of Salamanca was the great legal theorist and pioneer in the discipline of international law, Francisco de Vitoria, circa 1485 to 1546. A Basque raised in Burgos in northern Spain and born into a prosperous family, Vitoria became a Dominican and went to study and then teach in Paris. There, in one of the ironies of the history of thought, he became a disciple of a Fleming who had been a pupil of one of the last of the Achamites, John Major. This man, Pierre Croquer, circa 1450 to 1514, had become a student and then teacher of theology late in life. 
Turning away from his teacher major, Croquer abandoned nominalism and moved to Thomism, entering the Dominican order and coming to teach at the Dominican College of Saint-Jacques in Paris. After spending over seventeen years imbibing and then teaching Thomism in Paris, Vittoria returned to Spain to lecture in theology at Valladolid, finally coming to Salamanca. Then the Queen of Spanish Universities, as Prime Professor of Theology in 1526. A brilliant and highly influential teacher and lecturer, Vittoria set the framework for the Salamanca School for the rest of the century. Even though he did not publish any writings, his lectures have come down to us as transcribed by his students, much as in the case of Aristotle. Much of the glory of the University of Salamanca was the result of reforms instituted by Vittoria himself. Consequently, the university soon had no less than seventy professorial chairs filled by the best scholars of the day, providing instruction not only in the traditional medieval curriculum, but also in such newfangled disciplines as navigational science and the Chaldean language. Vittoria's lectures were largely commentaries on Aquinas' moral theory. In the course of the lectures, Vittoria founded the great Spanish scholastic tradition of denouncing the conquest and particularly the enslavement by the Spanish of the Indians in the New World. In an age when thinkers in France and Italy were preaching secular absolutism and the power of the state, Vittoria and his followers revived the idea that natural law is morally superior to the mere might of the state. Vittoria did not expound much on economic topics, but he was interested in commercial morality, and his views followed the mainstream scholastic tradition. The just price was the common market price, even though if there were a legally fixed price, it would also be considered just. In short, legal price edicts are to be obeyed. However, for those goods without a common market, say with only one or two sellers, Vittoria advanced beyond his forebears. Instead of having cost of production determinate, Vittoria, while stating that cost could well be considered, returned to the old, nearly forgotten laissez-faire Roman law tradition of free individual bargaining as providing the just price. For in this situation, Vittoria maintained, the price had to be settled by the exchanging parties themselves. Vittoria, however, then added a curious distinction between luxury and non-luxury goods. Luxuries could be sold for a fancy price, since the buyer pays the high price voluntarily and out of his free will. Why this free will should disappear with non-luxury items, Vittoria unfortunately does not explain. Vittoria's most eminent student and fellow theologian at Salamanca was the Dominican Domingo de Soto, 1494 to 1560. 
Born in Segovia of comfortable but not wealthy parents, DeSoto studied at the University of Alcala near Madrid, and then went to Paris, where he studied under Vittoria, and later became a professor. Returning to Spain, de Soto became professor of metaphysics at Alcala, and then entered the Dominican order, joining his mentor as a theology professor at Salamanca in 1532. Though a shy personality, de Soto was repeatedly involved in university administration, and was several times prior of the College of Esteban in the university. De Soto's work in physics is also considered outstanding. In 1545, the Emperor Charles V honored De Soto by naming him as his representative at the Great Council of Trent, the mighty council of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Soon De Soto became confessor to the Emperor, but gave it up in a few years to return to his professorship at Salamanca. De Soto's fame rested on his treatise De Justitia et Jure, published in 1553 and based on lectures given originally at Salamanca in 1540 and 1541. De Justitia et Jure was reprinted no less than 27 times before the end of the century, and was read and quoted by jurists and moralists until the mid-eighteenth century. Unfortunately, on economics, de Soto was a reactionary thinker, and set back some of the liberal gains of the previous scholastics. Thus, while de Soto conceded that the price of goods is not determined by their nature, but by the measure in which they serve the needs of mankind, this utility analysis was weakened by vague concessions to the labor, trouble, and risk involved in a sale. Worse than that, de Soto was not content to concede the propriety of government fixing the price of goods and letting it go at that. Instead, he declared flatly that a fixed price is always superior to the market price and that, ideally, all prices should be fixed by the state. And even lacking such control, prices for de Soto should be set by the opinion of prudent and fair-minded men, whoever they might be, who have nothing to do with any transactions. They should not be determined by the free bargaining of the buyers and sellers involved. Thus de Soto, more than any other scholastic thinker, called for statism rather than market determination of price. On foreign exchange, de Soto's influence was confusing, cutting both for and against that market. In its favor, he contributed perhaps the first cogent explanation of the movements of currencies and exchange rates on the foreign exchange market what would later be called the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates. The economy of the 16th century was marked by an inflation which first hit Spain, in response to gold and silver discoveries in the New World, and the consequent importation of specie into Spain. Inflation first struck in Spain and then spread to the rest of Europe, 
as the Spaniards spent the increased supply of money. The result was the first large-scale secular inflation in history, prices in Europe doubling over the first half of the 16th century. De Soto was concerned to explain the curious fact that more abundant specie in Spain caused it to have an unfavorable balance of payment, with money flowing out of Spain and into the rest of Europe. As he put it, the more plentiful money is in Medina, the more unfavorable are the terms of exchange and the higher the price that must be paid by whoever wishes to send money from Spain to Flanders, since the demand for money is smaller in Spain than in Flanders. And the scarcer money is in Medina, the less he need pay there, because more people want money in Medina than are sending it to Flanders. In short, more abundant money in one place causes money to flow out and lowers the exchange rate relation to other currencies. A more abundant money supply means that money is less wanted there, a primitive way of pointing to the supply increasing along a given falling demand curve for money, so that each unit or coin is less valued. Here is also a rudimentary purchasing power parity analysis of exchange rates. But despite this subtle advance in analyzing the workings of the market, De Soto backslid on usury to such an extent that he advocated banning the foreign exchange market as usurious. In fact, De Soto managed to influence the court in 1552 to outlaw all internal currency exchange at anything other than the legal par. As can be seen, De Soto exercised a reactionary influence on the usury ban and managed to block any general acceptance of the revolutionary contributions of Zumanhart and Kajitan on the usury issue. Attempting to turn back the tide, De Soto went so far as to declare the standard guaranteed or insured investment contract as sinful and usurious, on the old discredited medieval ground that risk and ownership must never be separated. He tried to roll back lucrum cessans, and in general was more rigorously anti-usury than almost any of the medieval scholastics, insisting anachronistically that money is sterile and bears no fruit, and therefore cannot lawfully command interest. Ironically, however, while anxious to reverse the tide of liberalization of usury, De Soto himself contributed to the long-run demise of the usury ban. We remember that Pope Urban III, in his decretal consuluit in the late 12th century, had suddenly pulled a forgotten quotation from Luke, chapter 6, verse 35, out of the hat. Lend freely hoping nothing thereby, and used this vague counsel to charity as a stick with which to prohibit all interest on loans. More remarkably, all later scholastics had followed this dubious divine ban on interest-taking, 
even the radical Zumanhart had conceded the divine injunction against interest and simply narrowed it down to virtually nothing. It paradoxically now fell to the conservative de Soto to cast the first stone. The Luke statement, he declared contemptuously, has no relevance to lending at interest, and Christ most definitely did not declare usury to be sinful. Therefore, he concluded, if usury is not against the natural law, it is perfectly licit. Theologically, there is no problem with usury. 4. The School of Salamanca Azpilqueta and Medina. Fortunately, de Soto's reactionary and statist influence was at least partially offset by another of Vitoria's distinguished students, Martin de Azpilqueta Navarras, 1493-1586. Renowned for his saintly life and vast learning, the gaunt, hook-nosed Dominican Azpilqueta was regarded as the most eminent canon lawyer of his day. After teaching canon law in Cahors and Toulouse in France, Azpilqueta returned to take up a chair at Salamanca, where his overflowing lectures featured a new method of teaching civil law by combining it with canon law. In 1538, Azpilqueta was sent by Emperor Charles V to be rector of the new University of Coimbra in western Portugal. There he developed the principles of international law originally set forth by his master, Vittoria. Azpilqueta spent his last years in Rome, a trusted advisor to three popes, dying at the advanced age of ninety-three. Azpilqueta used his great influence to advance economic liberalism farther than it had ever gone before, among the scholastics or anywhere else. In sharp contrast to de Soto's admiration for comprehensive price control, Azpilqueta was the first economic thinker to state clearly and boldly that government price-fixing was imprudent and unwise. When goods are abundant, he sensibly pointed out, there is no need for maximum price control, and when goods are scarce, controls would do the community more harm than good. But Azpilqueta's outstanding contribution to economics was his theory of money, published in his Commentario Resolutoio de Usuras, 1556, as an appendix to a manual on moral theology. The manual and the commentaries in the appendix were translated into Latin and Italian, and proved to be influential for Catholic writers for many years. As Pilqueta built on the analysis of Cardinal Cajetan to present the first clear and unambiguous presentation of the quantity theory of money. Or, rather, he breaks firmly with the tradition that money can, in any sense, be a fixed measure of value of other goods. In contrast to older emphasis on foreign exchange, or money in terms of other monies, Azpilqueta clearly identified the value of money as its purchasing power in terms of goods. 
Once Azpilcueta grasped these two points firmly, then the quantity theory followed directly. For then, like other goods, the value of money varied inversely with its supply, or quantity available. As Azpilcueta put it, all merchandise becomes dearer when it is in great demand and short supply, and that money, in so far as it may be sold, bartered, or exchanged by some other form of contract, is merchandise, and therefore also becomes dearer when it is in great demand and short supply. It should be noted that this splendid and concise analysis of the determinants of the purchasing power of money does not make the mistake of later quantity theorists in stressing the quantity or supply of money while ignoring the demand. On the contrary, demand and supply analysis was applied correctly to the monetary sphere. Gold and silver flooded into Spain, and then the rest of Europe in the 16th century, driving up prices first in Spain and then in the other countries. Prices doubled by the middle of the century. Historians of economic thought have held the first quantity theorist, the first thinker to attribute the price rise to the influx of specie, to be the French absolutist political theorist Jean Baudin, but Baudin's famous reply to the paradoxes of Monsieur Malestroit, 1568, was anticipated by twelve years by Azpilcueta's work, and since the erudite Baudin probably had read the Spanish Dominican, his announced claim to originality seems in unusually bad taste. And since Spain was the first recipient of the flow of specie from the New World, it is certainly not surprising that a Spaniard should be the first person to decipher the new phenomenon. Thus, as Pilqueta wrote, Other things being equal, in countries where there is a great scarcity of money, all other saleable goods, and even the hands and labor of men, are given for less money than where it is abundant. Thus we see by experience that in France, where money is scarcer than in Spain, bread, wine, cloth, and labor are worth much less. And even in Spain, in times when money was scarcer, saleable goods and labor were given for very much less than after the discovery of the Indies, which flooded the country with gold and silver. The reason for this is that money is worth more where and when it is scarce than where and when it is abundant. Martin de Azpilcueta, in this case influenced by his colleague de Soto, also developed the latter's purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates at the same time that he worked out the quantity theory, supply and demand analysis of the value of money. The two, of course, go hand in hand. One of Azpilcueta's most important contributions was to revive the vital concept of time preference, perhaps under the influence of the works of its discoverer, San Bernardino of Siena. Azpilcueta pointed out, more clearly than Bernardino, that a present good, such as money, will naturally be worth more on the market than future goods 
that is, goods that are now claims to money in the future. As Aspilqueta put it, a claim on something is worth less than the thing itself, and it is plain that that which is not usable for a year is less valuable than something of the same quality which is usable at once. But if a future good is naturally less valuable than a present good on the market, then this insight should automatically justify usury as the charging of interest not on time, but on the exchange of present goods, money, for a future claim on that money, an IOU. And yet this seemingly simple deduction, simple to us who come after, was not made by Aspilqueta Navarras. On the foreign exchange market, as Pilqueta struck a blow for economic liberalism by reviving the Cajetan line and repudiating the statist fulminations of his colleague de Soto, who had called for the prohibition of all foreign exchange transactions as usurious. In addition to repeating Cajetanian arguments, the Spanish-Dominican and trusted advisor to three popes injected practical considerations. As Pilqueta pointed out that an infinite number of decent Christian merchants, aristocrats, widows, and even churchmen commonly invest in foreign exchange. As Pilqueta insisted that he refuses to damn the whole world by imposing overly rigorous standards. Furthermore, he warned, to abolish foreign exchange markets would be to plunge the realm into poverty, a step he was clearly not willing to take. On most other aspects of the usury question, however, Aspilqueta Navarras was surprisingly conservative, and a big step backward from the advanced free market position of Conrad Zumenhardt. On the census or annuity contract, Aspilqueta Navarras was far harsher than De Soto, who was liberal on this particular aspect of usury. Instead, Aspilqueta was the main influence on Pope Pius V's issue in 1569 of the bull Cum Onus, in which all census is declared illegal, except on a fruitful, immobile good, for which status money, of course, cannot qualify. The Pope had been goaded into issuing the bull by Cardinal San Carlo Borromeo, who, as newly appointed Archbishop of Milan, professed to find usury everywhere in that sinful city. Borromeo was one of the leaders of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and his prodding led to cum onus. But it was too late. The census contract was too ingrained in European practice, and too many theologians had adopted the liberal approach. The majority of Catholic theologians rejected this new attempt and simply stated that the Pope's arguments were matters of positive rather than natural law, and therefore that the papal bull had to be accepted by the government or be the common practice of a particular country for it to carry the force of law in that country. Interestingly enough, not a single country in Europe accepted cum onus. Not Spain, not France, nor Germany, not southern Italy, nor even Rome itself. 
The contempt with which cum onus was received throughout Europe is strikingly revealed in its treatment by the recently founded Jesuit order. The Society of Jesus was founded in 1537 by an invalided Spanish ex-army officer, Ignatius Loyola, born in the Basque country. The rapidly expanding society was installed on rigorous discipline along consciously military lines. Loyola's original title for the society was The Company of Jesus. Under vow of absolute obedience to the Pope and to the general of the order, the Jesuits became the shock troops of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Despite their vow to the Pope, the Jesuit General Congregation of 1573, only four years after cum onus, validated the mutually redeemable census contract and in 1581 the Jesuit congregation went the whole way and validated every type of census contract. When some German Jesuits became restive at this liberality, the general of the Jesuit order, Claude Aquaviva, in 1589, ordered that the validity of the census contract be upheld by German Jesuits with no further dissent. So much for the Pope's census prohibition. In the following century, the census loophole was widely used to camouflage interest on loan contracts, particularly in Germany. As Noonan points out, it is certainly significant that the German word for interest on a loan is zins, derived from the Latin census. The Zumanhart Kajitan doctrine of implicit intention, that if someone did not intend a contract to be a loan, then it was licit, was carried even further by the remarkable Jesuit congregation of 1581. The congregation justified virtually every contract. As Noonan concludes, in practice it meant that only loans to aged or infirm persons without property or loans bearing a rate of interest beyond that obtainable in a guaranteed investment contract or census were to be regarded as true usurious loans. If Azpilcueta Navarras was conservative on most aspects of usury, he did, however, become the first writer to justify interest charged on lucrum sessans, investment profit foregone, for all loans, not just ad hoc loans made out of charity, previous writers, or even only for loans to business, Cajetan. Now any profit foregone could be charged as interest, even by professional moneylenders. The only restriction remaining, a feeble one in practice, is that the lender would actually have used his money to make the foregone investment. Of this first generation of late Spanish scholastics, approximately those who were born in the 1480s and 1490s, the final noteworthy writer was Juan de Medina, 1490-1546. Medina, a Franciscan, did not, however, teach theology at Salamanca, but at the Collegium at Alcala. 
Medina's distinction comes from being the first writer in history to advance the view clearly that charging interest on a loan is legitimate if in compensation to the lender for risk of non-payment. Medina's reasoning was impeccable. Exposing one's property to the risk of being lost is sellable and purchasable at a price, nor is it among those things which are to be done gratuitously. Furthermore, Medina pointed out, theologians now admit that someone who guarantees a debtor's loan can licitly charge for that service. But in that case, if the borrower cannot find a guarantor, why cannot the lender charge the borrower for assuming the risk of non-repayment? Isn't his charge similar to the charge of the guarantor? The argument was sound, but the shock to the scholastics was severe, no less so because Medina weakened his risk justification by banning interest on riskless loans and restricting the charge to cases where the borrower could not find a guarantor. Domingo de Soto, in horror, correctly pointed out that to admit a charge for risk of non-payment would destroy the entire usury prohibition, since a charge could be made for a loan above the principal. The usually more liberal Azpilcueta gave Medina even shorter shrift, objecting correctly, if insufficiently, that every theologian, canon lawyer, and natural lawyer disagreed with Medina's innovation, and that was supposed to be the end of the matter. Medina's discussion of value theory, however, was not nearly so cogent. In discussing the just market price, Medina throws in higgledy-piggledy a host of factors, costs, labor, industry, and risk for suppliers, need or utility for buyers, and scarcity or abundance of the good. Clearly, there was much less of a coherent analysis of supply than in the hands of San Bernardino of Siena, on the other hand, whereas the scholastic tradition held that the legal price would have to take precedence over the market price, Medina cited two cases where the market price should be followed, where the market price is lower, and where the authorities were too slow in adjusting the legal edict to a higher market price. 5. The School of Salamanca, the Middle Years the institution and the structure of thought of the school of Salamanca was established then, in the first half of the sixteenth century, by three great Dominicans, Francisco de Vitoria and his followers, Domingo de Soto and Martin de Azpilcueta Navarras. The latter two theologians were the founders of the economic aspect of the systematic theology and philosophy of the Salamanca school. The middle generation of Salamancans were those men born in the first decades of the 16th century, and writing near and after mid-century. The oldest of these second-generation members was the eminent Diego de Covarrubias y Leva, 1512-1577, whose handsome and distinguished features grace a stunning portrait by the great Spanish painter El Greco, now hanging in the Greco Museum in Toledo. 
Acknowledged as the greatest jurist since Vittoria, Covarrubias was the most prominent student of Azpilcueta. After ten years as professor of canon law at the University of Salamanca, Covarrubias was made auditor of the Chancellor of Castile by the Emperor, after which he became Bishop of Ciudad Rodrigo and Bishop of Segovia. In 1572, Covarrubias became president of the Council of Castile. As did so many other scholastics of the time, Covarrubias' writings ranged over theology, history, numismatics, and other disciplines of human action, as well as the law. The theory of value had lain in the doldrums ever since San Bernardino and Johannes Nieder in the 15th century, and now, a century later, it was revived by Covarrubias. In his Variarum, 1554, Covarrubias gets value theory back on the right track. The value of goods on the market is determined by utility and by the scarcity of the product. The value of goods, then, depends not on matters intrinsic to the good or to its production, but on the estimations of consumers. Thus, Covarrubias, The value of an article does not depend on its essential nature, but on the estimation of men, even if that estimation is foolish. Thus, in the Indies, wheat is dearer than in Spain, because men esteem it more highly though the nature of the wheat is the same in both places. In considering the just price of a good, Covarrubias added, we must consider not its original cost, nor its cost in labor, but only its common market value. Prices fall when buyers are few, and goods are abundant, and vice versa. It should be noted, as will be mentioned further below, that Covarrubias, considered one of the greatest experts on Roman law in his day, exerted considerable influence on the great 17th-century Dutch Protestant jurist Hugo Grotius. Covarrubias' economic writings were particularly influential in Italy, where they continued to be cited down through the work of the eminent Abbe Ferdinando Galliani in 1750. Another important contribution to utility theory was made by a lesser contemporary of Covarrubias, Luis Saravia de la Calle Veronese, Saravia was one of several influential writers of handbooks on moral theology, which took the teachings of the great theologians and boiled them down for confessors and their penitents. In his Instruccion de Mercades, Medina del Campo, 1554, Saravia lashed out at all manner of cost-of-production theories of value, insisting that utility and market demand alone, interacting with scarcity of supply, determine the common market price, and hence the just price. Saravia's attack on cost-of-production notions was trenchant and hard-hitting. The just price arises from the abundance or scarcity of goods, merchants, and money, as has been said and not from costs, labor, and risk. 
If we had to consider labor and risk in order to assess the just price, no merchant would ever suffer loss, nor would abundance or scarcity of goods and money enter into the question. Saravia's work, in addition to being cited many times by later Spanish writers, was also influential in Italy, where it was translated in 1561. The Italian A. M. Venusti became a disciple of Saravia and published a similar treatise. The next important Salamancan economist was the colorful Dominican Tomas de Mercado, died 1585. Mercado's was the next important handbook on moral theology after Saravia, Tratos y Contratos de Mercaderes, Salamanca, 1569. Born in Seville, Mercado was raised in Mexico, where he entered the Dominican order, from which he returned to Salamanca and Seville. Mercado's handbook drew on his extensive knowledge of business practice, picked up on his travels, and it was written in a concise and even sardonic style. Mercado was a perceptive, if sometimes confused, monetary theorist. Applying utility analysis to money, Mercado went right up to the edge of marginal analysis by pointing out that the purchasing power is the highest where money is most scarce, and therefore highly esteemed. In short, Mercado dimly realized that the demand for money is a schedule, falling as the supply of money increases and that the value or purchasing power of money is determined by the interaction of its supply and demand. Thus Mercado. Money is esteemed much less in the Indies, where it is mined, than in Spain. After the Indies, the place where money is least esteemed is Seville, the city that gathers unto herself all the good things from the new world and after Seville, the other parts of Spain. Money is highly esteemed in Flanders, Rome, Germany, and England. This estimation and appreciation are brought about in the first place by the abundance or scarcity of these metals. Since they are found and mined in America, they are there held in little esteem. It is not surprising that Mercado, in contrast to De Soto, opposed the outlawing of internal currency exchange in Spain. On the other hand, he was confused enough, in contrast to his keen analysis of the value of money, to favor the outlawing of the export of metals. But wouldn't the esteem for the remaining metals be higher? And wouldn't this check and offset the outward flow of metals? During the 1570s, a satellite group of theologian economists arose at Valencia, grounding themselves on their studies at Salamanca. The most important was Francisco Garcia, who in his Tratado Utilismo, Valencia, 1583, expanded and developed the subjective utility theory of value. In a notable advance in discussions of utility, Garcia pointed out that the utility or value of a thing may vary because one good may have many uses and serve more purposes than another. 
may serve a more important service than another, and or may perform a given service more efficiently than another. In addition to utility determining value and price, Garcia noted also its relative abundance or scarcity. And here, Garcia, too, came just to the edge, although not over, of discovering the final missing marginal element in utility theory. For example, we have said that bread is more valuable than meat because it is more necessary for the preservation of human life. But there may come a time when bread is so abundant and meat so scarce that bread is cheaper than meat. Garcia went on to detail other determinants of value, including the number of buyers and sellers and the eagerness to buy and sell, that is, intensity of demand in buying or holding on to a product, whether vendors are eager to sell their goods and buyers much sought after and importuned. He then went on to integrate monetary into value theory, another determinant of prices being whether money is scarce or plentiful. In monetary theory, Garcia continued and developed the Azpilcueta-Covarubias-Mercado line. In the Indies, where gold and silver are plentiful, specie is not as highly esteemed as in Spain, where there is less gold and silver. He similarly pointed out in his comprehensive discussion that when money is abundant in any given country, its esteem or value will be low, whereas when money is scarce it is far more highly valued. In other words, as Garcia pointed out, these differences in degrees of esteem or demand may occur either over place or over time. This comparative analysis of changes in the value of money over time or place was an important advance in monetary theory. But not only that, Garcia for the first time rested his macro-analysis on a micro-insight, that a very rich man, a man with an abundant personal supply of money, will tend to evaluate each unit of currency less than when he was poor, or than another poor man. Here Garcia actually grasped, though sketchily, the concept of the diminishing marginal utility of money. Marginalism, in this area at least, was actually reached rather than simply approached. Finally, Garcia arrived at the most integrated utility theory of the value of money to date, the value of money on the market is determined by the supply of money available, the intensity of the demand for money, and the safety of the money itself, called by later economists the quality of the money in the minds of people in the market. 6. The Late Salamancans the school of Salamanca, begun by Francisco Vittoria in the 1520s, reached its final flowering at the end of the 16th century. One of the leading lights of that era was the Dominican Domingo de Bañez de Mondragón, 1527-1604, to 
professor of theology at the University of Salamanca, and friend and confessor of the famous mystic St. Teresa of Avila. De Bañez was renowned for the great controversy with his eminent Jesuit colleague, Luis de Molina, on the crucial question of determinism versus free will. De Bañez took the Dominican position, which leaned toward the Calvinist-determinist stand that salvation is solely a product of God's grace, ordered from the beginning of time for God's own inscrutable reasons. Molina championed the Jesuit view, which upheld the freedom of will of each individual in achieving salvation. In the latter view, the free will choice of the individual is necessary to effectuate God's grace, which is there for him to accept. A historian sums up Molina's view of free will with these inspiring words. Liberty is ours, so indisputably ours, that with the help of God's gifts, it lies in our power to avoid all mortal sin and to attain eternal life. Freedom belongs to the sons of God. In a systematic discussion of money, its value, and foreign exchange, de Bañez, in De Justitia et Jure, 1594, provided a cogent discussion of the purchasing power parity theory of exchanges, a theory which had formed the scholastic main line since de Soto and Azpilcueta. The last notable Salamancan economic thinker was the great theologian Luis de Molina, 1535-1601. The ascendancy of Molina in Spanish scholastic thought was a fitting embodiment of the passing of the theological and the natural law torch from the Dominicans to the aggressive new Jesuit order. By the late 16th century, the influence of the order permeated all of Spain. Though a Salamancan through and through, Molina only briefly studied and never actually taught at that university. Born in Cuenza of a noble family, Molina went briefly to Salamanca and then to the University of Alcala. Entering the new Jesuit order, Molina was sent to the University of Coimbra in Portugal, since the Jesuit order was not yet fully organized in Castile. Molina was to remain twenty-nine years as a student and teacher in Portugal. After Coimbra, the habitually shabbily dressed Molina taught theology and civil law for twenty years at the University of Evora. In retirement back in Quenza, the learned and worldly Molina published his massive six-volume magnum opus, De Justitia et Jure. The first three volumes were published in 1593, 1597, and 1600, and the other volumes followed posthumously. Luis de Molina was a solid economic liberal, and he provided a comprehensive analysis in the Salamancan vein of supply and demand and their determination of price. The just price is, of course, the common market price. 
One important addition that Molina made to his forerunners was to point out that goods supplied at retail in small quantities will sell at a higher unit price than at bulk sales before the goods get to the retailer. This argument also served as an added justification for the existence of the much-abused retailer. But Molina in economics was primarily a monetary theorist. Here he endorsed and carried forward the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates and the Salamancan analysis of the value of money, even explicitly endorsing the work of his theological opponent, Domingo de Bañez. Molina's analysis of the determination of the value of money and its changes was the most subtle to date, using explicit other things being equal, ceteris paribus clauses, and developing the analysis of the determinants of the demand for money. Thus, on the causes of changes in price, and particularly of the Spanish inflation of the 16th century, Molina wrote, Just as an abundance of goods causes prices to fall, the quantity of money and number of merchants being equal, so does an abundance of money cause them to rise, the quantity of goods and number of merchants being equal. The reason is that the money by itself becomes less valuable for the purpose of buying and comparing goods. Thus we see that in Spain the purchasing power of money is far lower on account of its abundance than it was eighty years ago. A thing that could be bought for two ducats at that time is nowadays worth five, six, or even more. Wages have risen in the same proportion, and so have dowries, the price of estates, the income from benefices, and other things. After going through the standard Spanish scholastic analysis of how abundance of money causes a fall in its value, first and foremost in the New World, then in Seville and Spain, Molina noted the importance of the demand for money. Wherever the demand for money is greatest, whether for buying or carrying goods, conducting other business, waging war, holding the royal court, or for any other reason, there will its value be highest. It is not surprising that the economic liberal Molina strongly attacked any government fixing of exchange rates. The value of one currency in terms of another is always changing in response to supply and demand forces, and therefore it is meet and just that exchange rates fluctuate accordingly. Molina then pointed out that fixed exchange rates would create a shortage of money. He did not, however, go into detail. Molina also inveighed against most governmental price controls, particularly the imposing of ceiling prices on farm commodities. On usury, Molina, while still not going as far as the radical acceptance of interest by Conrad Zumanhart a century earlier, took important steps in widening the accepted bounds of the charging of interest. He put his immense prestige behind Juan de Medina's entirely new defense of charging payment for the lender's assumption of risk. 
Indeed, he widened Medina's permitted bounds of using the risk defense. Not only that, Molina greatly widened the scope of Lucrum Sessans, and solidly entrenched that permissible title to interest as a broad principle permeating the market economy. One of the few remaining restrictions is intention. The loan is not permissible if the lender had not intended to invest the loaned funds. Luis de Molina also played an important role in reviving active natural rights and private property rights theory, which had fallen into a decline since the early part of the 16th century. Humanists and Protestants, as we shall see below, had little use for the concept of natural rights, while Vittoria and the Dominicans slipped into a determinist, passive or attenuated view of rights. Only the University of Louvain in Belgium began to serve as a center of free-will thought, along with the idea of absolute natural rights of person and property. The Louvain theologian Johannes Drido stressed freedom of the will in De Concordia, 1537, and active natural rights, De Libertate Christiana, 1548. By the 1580s, the new Jesuit order began to launch its assault on the Dominicans, whom they suspected of crypto-Calvinism, a suspicion not allayed by the fact that many Dominicans had converted to Calvinism during the 16th century. In the course of his championing free will against de Bañez and the Dominicans, Molina also returned to the active natural rights view, which had for long only continued to be upheld at Louvain. Attacking the passive claim theory of rights, Molina put the distinction very clearly. When we say that someone has a use to something, we do not mean that anything is owed to him, but that he has a faculty to it, whose contravention would cause him injury. In this way we say that someone has a use to use his own things, such as consuming his own food. That is, if he is impeded, injury and injustice will be done to him in the same way that a pauper has the use to beg alms, a merchant has the use to sell his wares, etc. Note that the astute Molina did not say that the pauper had the right to be given alms. For Molina, as for all active property rights theorists, a right was not a claim to someone else's property, but was, on the contrary, a clear-cut right to use one's own property without someone else's claim being levied upon it. It was Molina's achievement to link this active natural rights theory with his libertarian commitment to freedom and the free will of each individual, both theologically and philosophically. Professor Tuck sums up this linkage with these stirring words. Molina's was a theory which involved a picture of man as a free and independent being, making his own decisions and being held to them on matters to do with both his physical and his spiritual welfare.
The school of Salamanca had begun with the distinguished jurist De Vitoria, and so it is fitting that the last major Salamancan should be another renowned jurist, and perhaps the most illustrious thinker in the history of the Jesuit order, Francisco Suarez, 1548-1617. The last of the great Thomists, this celebrated theologian was born in Granada into an ancient noble family. Entering the University of Salamanca, Suarez applied to the Jesuit order in 1564 and was the only applicant among fifty candidates that year to be rejected, as mentally and physically below standard. Admitted finally with an inferior rank, Suarez could hardly keep up with his studies, and was known, ironically like St. Thomas Aquinas before him, as the dumb ox. Soon, however, the humble and modest Suarez became the star pupil, and it was not long before his theology professors were asking him for advice. In 1571, Suarez became professor of philosophy at Segovia, then taught theology at Avila and Valladolid. Suarez soon attained to the famous chair of theology at the Jesuit College in Rome. From there, due to ill health, Suarez returned to Spain, teaching at Alcala, where he was virtually ignored, and then to Salamanca, where, as in Alcala, he lost academic disputes to inferior rivals. In 1593 the emperor insisted on Suarez's accepting the main chair of theology at Coimbra, where, in 1612, he published his masterwork, De Legibus Ac De Deo Legislatore. Francisco Suarez never achieved his due in life. His quiet, plodding lecture style made him lose academic influence to flashier, though inferior, rivals. Perhaps the crowning indignity heaped upon him is that in 1597, at the age of forty-nine, this brilliant and learned jurist and theologian, perhaps the greatest mind in the history of the Jesuit order, was forced to leave the University of Coimbra for a year to obtain a doctorate in theology at Evora, Ph.D.-itis, in the sixteenth century. While Suarez contributed little on strictly economic matters, he added greatly to the weight of the Louvain-Molina rediscovery of the active natural rights view of private property, and he reinforced the great impact of Molinist free will theory. In addition, Suarez had a much more restricted view of the just power of the king than did Molina or his other predecessors. To Suarez, the power of the ruler is in no sense a divinely created institution, since political power by natural and divine law devolves solely on the people as a whole. The community as a whole confers political power on the king or other set of rulers, and while Suarez believed that natural law requires some form of state, the sovereign power of any particular state must necessarily be bestowed upon him by the consent of the community.
Suarez's theory, of course, held radical implications indeed. For if the people or the community confer state power on a king or set of rulers, may they not then take it away? Here Suarez fumbled. He was certainly not prepared to go all the way to a truly radical or revolutionary position. No, he declared inconsistently, once the sovereign power is conferred by the people on a king, it is his forever. The people cannot take it back. But then Suarez shifts once more, adopting the traditional Thomist doctrine of the right of the people to resist tyrants. If a king lapses into tyranny, then the people may rise up and resist and even assassinate the king. But Suarez, like his forebears, hedged this powerful right of tyrannicide with a thicket of restrictions. In particular, tyranny must be manifest, and a private person cannot rise up himself and kill the king. The act must in some way be mandated by the people or community, acting as a whole. Chapter 5 Protestants and Catholics 1. Luther, Calvin, and State Absolutism we have seen that the counter-reformation of the sixteenth century had to carry on a two-front intellectual war on behalf of scholasticism and natural law, against Protestants and crypto-Protestants, and also against secularist apologists for an absolute state. These latter two seemingly contrasting groups were closer than merely having the same enemy— in many ways they were twins, and not simply fortuitous allies. Despite their many differences, Martin Luther, 1483-1546, son of a German miner, and John Calvin, born Jean Covin, of which Calvin is the Latinized name, 1509-1564, son of a French attorney and leading town official, whose new religious sects between them swept northern Europe, agreed on some crucial fundamentals. In particular, their social philosophy and theology rested on the basic proposition that man is totally depraved, steeped in sin. If this is so, man could scarcely achieve salvation even partially through his own efforts. Therefore, salvation comes not from man's non-existent free will, but as an arbitrary and unintelligible gift of unearned grace from God, a gift which he, for his own reasons, hands out only to a predestined elect. All of the non-elect are damned. Furthermore, as man is totally depraved and a slave of Satan, his reason, let alone his sense of enjoyment, can never be trusted. Neither reason nor the senses can in any way be trusted to form a social ethics. That can only come from the divine will through biblical revelation. To this day, fundamentalist Calvinists are taught to sum up their creed in the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, perhaps also recalling the Dutch fastnesses of Calvinism. T, total damnation. U, 
unconditional election. L. Limited atonement. I. Irresistible grace. P. Perseverance of the saints. In short, man is damned totally. His atonement can only be limited and insufficient. The only thing that can and does unconditionally save an elect among men is God's irresistible grace. If reason cannot be used to frame an ethic, this means that Luther and Calvin had to, in essence, throw out natural law, and in doing so they jettisoned the basic criteria developed over the centuries by which to criticize the despotic actions of the state. Indeed, Luther and Calvin, relying on isolated biblical passages rather than on an integrated philosophic tradition, opined that the powers that be are ordained of God, and that therefore the king, no matter how tyrannical, is divinely appointed and must always be obeyed. This doctrine, of course, played into the hands of the rising absolute monarchs and their theoreticians. Whether Catholic or Protestant, these secularists pushed their religion to the background of life. Socially and politically they held, as we shall see below, that the state and its ruler are absolute, that the ruler must seek to preserve and expand his power, and that his dictates must be obeyed. It is therefore the early Jesuits of the Counter-Reformation who saw and analyzed the crucial link between the Protestant leaders and such amoralist secularists as Niccolo Machiavelli. As Professor Skinner writes, the early Jesuit theorists clearly recognized the pivotal point at which the political theories of Luther and Machiavelli may be said to converge. Both of them were equally concerned, for their own very different reasons, to reject the idea of the law of nature as an appropriate moral basis for political life. It is in consequence in the works of the early Jesuits that we first encounter the familiar coupling of Luther and Machiavelli as the two founding fathers of the impious modern state. Moreover, Luther had to rely for the spread of his religion on the German and other European monarchs. His preaching of all-out obedience to the ruler was reinforced by this practical concern. In addition, the secular princes themselves had a juicy economic motive for becoming Protestant. The confiscation of the often wealthy monasteries and other church property Underlying at least part of the motives of the monarchy and nobility of the new Protestant states was the lure of greed and grab. Thus, when Gustav Vasa, king of Sweden, became a Lutheran in 1524, he immediately transferred the church tithes into taxes going to the crown, and three years later he confiscated the entire property of the Catholic Church, Similarly, in Denmark, the newly Lutheran kings seized the monastic lands and confiscated the lands and temporal powers of the Catholic bishops. In Germany, Albert of Hohenzollern accompanied his Lutheran conversion by seizing the lands of the Catholic Teutonic Knights, 
while Philip of Hesse grabbed all the monastic lands in his state, much of the proceeds going into his own personal coffers. In addition to grabbing the lands and revenues, the monarchs in each of the lands seized control of the church itself, and converted the Lutheran church into a state-run church, to the plaudits of Martin Luther and his disciples, who championed the idea of a state-dominated church. In the city of Geneva, John Calvin and his disciples imposed a totalitarian theocracy for a time, but this church-run state proved to be an aberration in mainstream Calvinism, which triumphed in Scotland, Holland, and Switzerland, and had considerable influence in France and England. An outstanding example of a state-run church as a motive for reformation was the establishment of the Anglican Church in England. The defection from Catholicism of Henry VIII was accompanied by the confiscation of the monasteries and the parceling out of these lands, either by gift or by sale at low cost, to favored groups of nobles and gentry. About two thousand monks and nuns throughout England, as well as about eight thousand laborers in the monasteries, were thus dispossessed, for the benefit of a new class of large landholders beholden to the crown, and not likely to permit any return to a Roman Catholic monarchy in Britain. 2. Luther's Economics as a man fundamentally opposed to later scholastic refinements, or even to the kind of integral systematic thought of scholasticism, as a man hankering after what he believed to be Augustinian purity, Martin Luther cannot be expected to have looked very kindly upon commerce, or upon the later scholastic justifications for usury, and, indeed, he did not. A confused, contradictory, and unsystematic thinker at best, Luther was unsurprisingly least consistent in an area of secular affairs, economics, in which he had little interest. Thus, on a crucial question which had vexed scholastics for centuries, whether private property is natural or conventional, that is, merely the product of positive law, Luther was characteristically anti-intellectual. He was not interested in such questions, therefore they were trivial. It is vain to mention these things, they cannot be acquired by thought. As Dr. Gary North has commented, so much for fifteen hundred years of debate. All in all, Richard Tawney's assessment of Luther on these matters is perhaps not an overstatement. Confronted with the complexities of foreign trade and financial organization, or with the subtleties of economic analysis, he, Luther, is like a savage introduced to a dynamo or a steam engine. He is too frightened and angry even to feel curiosity. Attempts to explain the mechanism merely enrage him. He can only repeat that there is a devil in it, and that good Christians will not meddle with the mystery of iniquity. The rest is confusion. Upholding the commandment prohibiting theft meant that Luther had to be, at least in some sense, an advocate of the rights of private property. 
but to Luther, stealing meant not only what everyone defines to be theft, but also taking advantage of others at market, warehouses, wine and beer cellars, workshops. In different writings, sometimes even within the same one, Luther was capable of denouncing a person who makes use of the market in his own willful way, proud and defiant, as though he had a good right to sell at as high a price as he chose, and none could interfere. While also writing, anyone may sell what he has for the highest price he can get, so long as he cheats no one and then defining such cheating as simply using false weights and measures. On the just price, Luther tends to revert to the minority medieval view that a just price is not the market price, but a cost of production plus expenses, and profit for labor and risk of the merchant. On usury in particular, Luther tended to revert to the drastic prohibition that the Catholic Church had long left behind. The census contract he would ban, as he would lucrum cessans. Money was sterile, there should be no increase in price for time as against cash payments for goods, etc. All the old nonsense— which the scholastics had spent centuries burying or transforming, was back intact. It is certainly fitting that, as we have seen, one of Luther's great theological opponents in Germany was his former friend Johann Eck, a Catholic theologian and friend of the great Fugger banking family, who was even ahead of his time in arguing in thoroughgoing fashion in favor of usury. Yet despite his opposition to usury, Luther advised the young ruler of Saxony not to abolish interest or to relieve debtors of the burden of paying it. Interest is, after all, a common plague that all have taken upon themselves. We must put up with it, therefore, and hold debtors to it. Some of these contradictions can be reconciled in the light of Luther's deeply pessimistic view of man, and therefore of human institutions. In the wicked secular world, he believed, we cannot expect people or institutions to act in accordance with the Christian gospel. Therefore, in contrast to the Catholic attempt through the art of casuistry to apply moral principles to social and political life, Luther tended to privatize Christian morality, and to leave the secular world and its rulers to operate in a pragmatic and, in practice, an unchecked manner. 3. The Economics of Calvin and Calvinism John Calvin's social and economic views closely paralleled Luther's, and there is no point in repeating them here. There are only two main areas of difference, their views on usury and on the concept of the calling, although the latter difference is more marked for the later Calvinist Puritans of the seventeenth century. Calvin's main contribution to the usury question was in having the courage to dump the prohibition altogether. This son of an important town official had only contempt for the Aristotelian argument that money is sterile. 
A child, he pointed out, knows that money is only sterile when locked away somewhere, but who in their right mind borrows to keep money idle? Merchants borrow in order to make profits on their purchases, and hence money is then fruitful. As for the Bible, Luke's famous injunction only orders generosity towards the poor, while Hebraic law in the Old Testament is not binding in modern society. To Calvin, then, usury is perfectly licit, provided that it is not charged in loans to the poor who would be hurt by such payment. Also, any legal maximum, of course, must be obeyed. And, finally, Calvin maintained that no one should function as a professional moneylender. The odd result was that hedging his explicit pro-usury doctrine with qualification, Calvin, in practice, converged on the views of such scholastics as Beale, Zumanhart, Cajetan, and Eck. Calvin began with a sweeping theoretical defense of interest-taking, and then hedged it about with qualifications. The liberal scholastics began with a prohibition of usury, and then qualified it away. But while in practice the two groups converged, and the scholastics, in discovering and elaborating upon exceptions to the usury ban, were theoretically more sophisticated and fruitful, Calvin's bold break with the formal ban was a liberating breakthrough in Western thought and practice. It also threw the responsibility for applying teachings on usury from the church or state to the individual's conscience. As Tawney puts it, the significant feature in his, Calvin's, discussion of the subject is that he assumes credit to be a normal and inevitable incident in the life of a society. A more subtle difference, but in the long run perhaps having more influence on the development of economic thought, was the Calvinist concept of the calling this new concept was embryonic in Calvin, and was developed further by later Calvinists, and especially Puritans, in the late seventeenth century. Older economic historians, such as Max Weber, have made far too much of the Calvinist as against Lutheran and Catholic conceptions of the calling. All these religious groups emphasized the merit of being productive in one's labor or occupation, one's calling in life. But there is, especially in the later Puritans, the idea of success in one's calling as a visible sign of being a member of the elect. The success is striven for, of course, not to prove that one is a member of the elect, destined to be saved, but assuming that one is in the elect by virtue of one's Calvinist faith, to strive to labor and succeed for the glory of God. A Calvinist emphasis on postponement of earthly gratification led to a particular stress on saving labor or industry and thrift, almost for their own sake, or rather, for God's sake, were emphasized in Calvinism much more than in the other segments of Christianity. The focus, then, both in Catholic countries and in scholastic thought, became very different from that of Calvinism. 
The scholastic focus was on consumption, the consumer, as the goal of labor and production. Labor was not so much a good in itself as a means toward consumption on the market. The Aristotelian balance, or golden mean, was considered a requisite of the good life, a life leading to happiness in keeping with the nature of man, and that balanced life emphasized the joys of consumption as well as of leisure, in addition to the importance of productive effort. In contrast, a rather grim emphasis on work and on saving began to be stressed in Calvinist culture. This de-emphasis on leisure, of course, fitted with the iconoclasm that reached its height in Calvinism, the condemnation of the enjoyment of the senses as a means of expressing religious devotion. One of the expressions of this conflict came over religious holidays, which Catholic countries enjoyed in abundance. To the Puritans, this was idolatry. Even Christmas was not supposed to be an occasion for sensate enjoyment. There has been considerable dispute over the Weber thesis, propounded by the early 20th century German economic historian and sociologist Max Weber, which attributed the rise of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution to the late Calvinist concept of the calling and the resulting capitalist spirit. For all its fruitful insights, the Weber thesis must be rejected on many levels. First, modern capitalism, in any meaningful sense, begins not with the Industrial Revolution of 18th and 19th centuries, but, as we have seen, in the Middle Ages, and particularly in the Italian city-states. Such examples of capitalist rationality as double-entry bookkeeping and various financial techniques begin in these Italian city-states as well. All were Catholic. Indeed, it is in a Florentine account book of 1253 that there is first found the classic pro-capitalist formula, in the name of God and of profit. No city was more of a financial and commercial center than Antwerp in the 16th century, a Catholic center. No man shone as much as financier and banker as Jakob Fugger, a good Catholic from southern Germany. Not only that, Fugger worked all his life, refused to retire, and announced that he would make money as long as he could. A prime example of the Weberian Protestant ethic from a solid Catholic. And we have seen how the scholastic theologians moved to understand and accommodate the market and market forces. On the other hand, while it is true that Calvinist areas in England, France, Holland, and the North American colonies prospered, the solidly Calvinist Scotland remained a backward and undeveloped area even to this day. But even if the focus on calling and labor did not bring about the Industrial Revolution, it might well have led to another outstanding difference between Calvinist and Catholic countries, a crucial difference in the development of economic thought. Professor Emil Cowder's brilliant speculation to this effect will inform the remainder of this work. Thus Cowder,
Calvin and his disciples placed work at the center of their social theology. All work in this society is invested with divine approval. Any social philosopher or economist exposed to Calvinism will be tempted to give labor an exalted position in his social or economic treatise. And no better way of extolling labor can be found than by combining work with value theory, traditionally the very basis of an economic system. Thus value becomes labor value, which is not merely a scientific device for measuring exchange rates, but also the spiritual tie combining divine will with economic everyday life. In their extolling of work, the Calvinists concentrated on systematic continuing industriousness, on a settled course of labor. Thus the English Puritan divine Samuel Huron opined that he that hath no honest business about which ordinarily to be employed, no settled course to which he may betake himself, cannot please God. Particularly influential was the early 17th-century Cambridge University academic, the Reverend William Perkins, who did much to translate Calvinist theology into English practice. Perkins denounced four groups of men who had no particular calling to walk in—beggars and vagabonds, monks and friars, gentlemen who spend their days in eating and drinking— and servants who allegedly spent their time waiting. All these were dangerous because unsettled and undisciplined. Particularly dangerous were wanderers who avoided the authority of all. Furthermore, believed Perkins, the lazy multitude was always inclined to popish opinions, always more ready to play than to work. Its members would not find their way to heaven. In contrast to the Calvinist glorification of labor, the Aristotelian Thomist tradition was quite different. Instead of work, moderate pleasure-seeking and happiness form the center of economic actions, according to Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy. A certain balanced hedonism is an integrated part of the Aristotelian theory of the good life. If pleasure in a moderate form is the purpose of economics, then following the Aristotelian concept of the final cause, all principles of economics, including valuation, must be derived from this goal. In this pattern of Aristotelian and Thomistic thinking, valuation has the function of showing how much pleasure can be derived from economic goods. Hence Great Britain, heavily influenced by Calvinist thought and culture, and its glorification of the mere exertion of labor, came to develop a labor theory of value, while France and Italy, still influenced by Aristotelian and Thomist concepts, continued the scholastic emphasis on the consumer and his subjective valuation as the source of economic value. While there is no way to prove this hypothesis conclusively, the counter-insight has great value in explaining the comparative development of economic thought in Britain and in the Catholic countries of Europe after the 16th century.
4. Calvinists on Usury Perhaps because he was considered the greatest French jurist of the mid-16th century, the merit of the contribution of Charles du Moulin, Latinized name Carolus Molineus, 1500-1566, has been highly inflated, in his and in later times. A Catholic who later converted to Calvinism and was then forced to leave for Germany, Du Moulin had nothing but contempt for scholasticism, which he attacked vehemently in his highly publicized work, The Treatise on Contracts and Usury, Paris, 1546. Whereas Molineus officially denounced the prohibition of usury, in actuality his views were little different from those of the contemporary scholastics, or indeed of Calvin. While clearly denouncing the view that money is sterile and demonstrating that it is as productive as the goods bought with it, he hedges his defense of usury sufficiently so that his views are little different from many others. He does maintain that the charge of interest on a loan per se is unjust, but ingeniously points out that a lender charges for the utility of the money rather than for the money itself. But Molineus attacks the cruel usuries permitted by lucrum cessans, and maintains with Calvin that interest may not be charged for loans to the poor. One wonders that if such a rule were enforced, who in the world would ever lend to the poor, and would the poor then be better off by being deprived of all credit? Indeed, it seems that Molineus' main contribution was to blacken unjustly the name of poor Conrad Zumenhart, a cruel injustice that would last for four centuries. In an act obviously motivated by malice toward scholasticism, Molineus took the great Zumenhart's arguments against the usury ban and twisted them to make the German theologian a particularly doltish advocate of the prohibition. He took Zumenhart's initial arguments for the prohibition, which he had stated in order to knock down, claimed that they were Zumenhart's own, and then plagiarized Zumenhart's critique of these arguments without acknowledgment. As a result of this shabby mendacity, as Professor Noonan points out, since Du Moulin's writings have alone become famous, Conrad Zumenhart has appeared to posterity only as Du Moulin caricatures him, that is, as a particularly obstinate and strangely stupid defender of the usury prohibition. The honor of putting the final boot to the usury prohibition belongs to the seventeenth-century classicist and Dutch Calvinist Claude Zomez, Latinized name Claudius Salmatius, 1588-1653, in several works published in Leyden beginning with De Usuris Liber in 1630 and continuing to 1645, Salmatius finished off this embarrassing remnant of the mountainous errors of the past. His fort was not so much in coining new theoretical arguments as in finally willing to be consistent. In short, Salmatius trenchantly pointed out that money-lending was a business like any other, 
and, like other businesses, was entitled to charge a market price. He did make the important theoretical point, however, that, as in any other part of the market, if the number of usurers multiplies, the price of money or interest will be driven down by the competition. So that if one doesn't like high interest rates, the more usurers, the better. Salmatius also had the courage to point out that there were no valid arguments against usury, either by divine or natural law. The Jews only prohibited usury against other Jews, and this was a political and tribal act, rather than an expression of a moral theory about an economic transaction. As for Jesus, he taught nothing at all about civil polity or economic transactions. This leaves the only ecclesiastical law against usury, that of the Pope. And why should a Calvinist obey the Pope? Salmatius also took some deserved whacks at the evasions permeating the various scholastic justifications, or extrinsic titles, justifying interest. Let's face it, Salmatius in effect asserted what the canonists and scholastics took away with one hand, they restored with the other. The census is really usury. Foreign exchange is really usury. Lucrum sessans is really usury. Usury all, and let them all be licit. Furthermore, Usury is always charged as compensation for something, in essence, the lack of use of money and the risk of loss in a loan. Salmatius also had the courage to take the hardest case, professional money lending to the poor, and to justify that. Selling the use of money is a business like any other. If it is licit to make money with things bought with money, why not from money itself? As Noonan paraphrases Salmatius, the seller of bread is not required to ask if he sells it to a poor man or a rich man. Why should the moneylender have to make a distinction? And there is no fraud or theft in charging the highest market price for other goods, why is it wrong for the usurer to charge the heaviest usuries he can collect? Empirically, Salmatius also analyzed the case of public usurers in Amsterdam, the great commercial and financial center of the 17th century, replacing Antwerp of the previous century, showing that the usual 16% charge on small loans to the poor is accounted for by the costs of the usurers borrowing their own money, of holding some money idle, of renting a large house, of absorbing some losses on loans, of paying license fees, hiring employees, and paying an auctioneer. Deducting all these expenses, the average net interest rate of the moneylenders is only 8%, barely enough to keep them in business. In concluding that usury is a business like any other, Salmatius, in his typical witty and sparkling style, declared, I would rather be called a usurer than be a tailor. Our examples of his style already demonstrate the aptness of the great Austrian economist Bumba Werck's conclusion about Salmatius that his works are extremely effective pieces of writing, veritable gems of sparkling polemic. 
the materials for them, it must be confessed, had in great part been provided by his predecessors. But the happy manner in which Salmatius employs these materials, and the many pithy sallies with which he enriches them, places his polemic far above anything that had gone before. As a result, Salmatius' essays had wide influence throughout the Netherlands and the rest of Europe. As Bumbaverk declared, Salmatius' views on usury were the high-water mark of interest theory, to remain so for over one hundred years. 5. Communist Zealots, the Anabaptists Sometimes Martin Luther must have felt that he had loosed the whirlwind, even opened the gates of hell. Shortly after Luther launched the Reformation, various Anabaptist sects appeared and spread throughout Germany. The Anabaptists believed in predestination of the elect, but they also believed, in contrast to Luther, that they knew infallibly who the elect were, that is, themselves. The sign of that election was in an emotional, mystical conversion process, that of being born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Such baptism must be adult and not among infants. More to the point, it meant that only the elect are to be sect members who obey the multifarious rules and creeds of the church. The idea of the sect, in contrast to Catholicism, Lutheranism, or Calvinism, was not comprehensive church membership in the society. The sect was to be distinctly separate for the elect only. Given that creed, there were two ways that Anabaptism could and did go. Most Anabaptists, like the Mennonites or Amish, became virtual anarchists. They tried to separate themselves as much as possible from a necessarily sinful state and society, and engaged in nonviolent resistance to the state's decrees. The other route, taken by another wing of Anabaptists, was to try to seize power in the state and to shape up the majority by extreme coercion, in short, ultra-theocracy. As Monsignor Knox incisively points out, even when Calvin established a theocracy in Geneva, it had to pale beside one which might be established by a prophet enjoying continuous, new, mystical revelation. As Knox points out in his usual scintillating style, in Calvin's Geneva and in the Puritan colonies of America, the left wing of the Reformation signalized its ascendancy by enforcing the rigorism of its morals with every available machinery of discipline, by excommunication, or, if that failed, by secular punishment. Under such discipline, sin became a crime to be punished by the elect with an intolerable self-righteousness. I have called this rigorist attitude a pale shadow of the theocratic principle, because a full-blooded theocracy demands the presence of a divinely inspired leader or leaders, to whom government belongs by right of mystical illumination. The great reformers were not, it must be insisted, men of this caliber. They were pundits, men of the new learning.
And so one of the crucial differences between the Anabaptists and the more conservative Reformers was that the former claimed continuing mystical revelation to themselves, forcing men such as Luther and Calvin to fall back on the Bible alone as the first as well as the last revelation. The first leader of the ultra-theocrat wing of the Anabaptists was Thomas Münzer, circa 1489 to 1525. Born into comfort in Stolberg in Thuringia, Münzer studied at the universities of Leipzig and Frankfurt, and became highly learned in the scriptures, the classics, theology, and in the writings of the German mystics. Becoming a follower almost as soon as Luther launched the Reformation in 1520, Münzer was recommended by Luther for the pastorate in the city of Zwickau. Zwickau was near the Bohemian border, and there the restless Münzer was converted by the weaver and adept Niklas Storch, who had been in Bohemia, to the old Taborite doctrine that had flourished in Bohemia a century earlier. This doctrine consisted essentially of a continuing mystical revelation and the necessity for the elect to seize power and impose a society of theocratic communism by brutal force of arms. Furthermore, marriage was to be prohibited, and each man was to be able to have any woman at his will. The passive wing of Anabaptists were voluntary anarcho-communists, who wished to live peacefully by themselves. But Mincer adopted the Storch vision of blood and coercion. Defecting very rapidly from Lutheranism, Mincer felt himself to be the coming prophet, and his teachings now began to emphasize a war of blood and extermination to be waged by the elect against the sinners. Mincer claimed that the living Christ had permanently entered his own soul, endowed thereby with perfect insight into the divine will, Mincer asserted himself to be uniquely qualified to fulfill the divine mission. He even spoke of himself as becoming God. Abandoning the world of learning, Mincer was now ready for action. In 1521, only a year after his arrival, the town council of Zwickau took fright at these increasingly popular ravings and ordered Mincer's expulsion from the city. In protest, a large number of the populace, in particular the weavers led by Niklas Storch, rose in revolt, but the rising was put down. At that point, Münzer hied himself to Prague, searching for Taborite remnants in the capital of Bohemia. Speaking in peasant metaphors, he declared that harvest time is here, so God himself has hired me for his harvest. I have sharpened my scythe, for my thoughts are most strongly fixed on the truth, and my lips, hands, skin, hair, soul, body, life— curse the unbelievers. Münzer, however, found no Taborite remnants. It did not help the prophet's popularity that he knew no check and had to preach with the aid of an interpreter, and so he was duly expelled from Prague. After wandering around central Germany in poverty for several years, signing himself Christ's Messenger, 
Mincer in 1523 gained a ministerial position in the small Thuringian town of Alstedt. There he established a wide reputation as a preacher employing the vernacular, and began to attract a large following of uneducated miners, whom he formed into a revolutionary organization called the League of the Elect. A turning point in Münzer's stormy career came a year later, when Duke John, a prince of Saxony and a Lutheran, hearing alarming rumors about him, came to little Alstedt and asked Münzer to preach him a sermon. This was Münzer's opportunity, and he seized it. He laid it on the line. He called upon the Saxon princes to make their choices and take their stand, either as servants of God or of the devil. If the Saxon princes are to take their stand with God, then they must lay on with the sword. Don't let them live any longer, counseled our prophet, the evil doers who turn us away from God. For a godless man has no right to live if he hinders the godly. Mincer's definition of the godless, of course, was all-inclusive. The sword is necessary to exterminate priests, monks, and godless rulers. But, Mincer warned, if the princes of Saxony fail in this task, if they falter, the sword shall be taken from them. If they resist, let them be slaughtered without mercy. Mincer then returned to his favorite harvest-time analogy. At the harvest-time one must pluck the weeds out of God's vineyard, for the ungodly have no right to live, save what the elect chooses to allow them. In this way the millennium, the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth, would be ushered in. But one key requisite is necessary for the princes to perform that task successfully. They must have at their elbow a priest, prophet, guess who, to inspire and guide their efforts. Oddly enough, for an era when no First Amendment restrained rulers from dealing sternly with heresy, Duke John seemed not to care about Münzer's frenetic ultimatum. Even after Münzer proceeded to preach a sermon proclaiming the imminent overthrow of all tyrants and the beginning of the messianic kingdom, the duke did nothing. Finally, under the insistent prodding of Luther that Mincer was becoming dangerous, Duke John told the prophet to refrain from any provocative preaching until his case was decided by his brother, the elector. This mild reaction by the Saxon princes, however, was enough to set Thomas Mincer on his final revolutionary road. The princes had proved themselves untrustworthy, the mass of the poor were now to make the revolution. The poor were the elect, and would establish a rule of compulsory egalitarian communism, a world where all things would be owned in common by all, where everyone would be equal in everything, and each person would receive according to his need. But not yet. For even the poor must first be broken of worldly desires and frivolous enjoyments, and must recognize the leadership of a new servant of God, who must stand forth in the spirit of Elijah and set things in motion. Again, guess who?
Seeing Saxony as inhospitable, Mincer climbed over the town wall of Alstadt and moved in 1524 to the Thuringian city of Mulhausen. An expert in fishing in troubled waters, Mincer found a friendly home in Mulhausen, which had been in a state of political turmoil for over a year. Preaching the impending extermination of the ungodly, Mincer paraded around the town at the head of an armed band, carrying in front of him a red crucifix and a naked sword. Expelled from Mulhausen after a revolt by his allies was suppressed, Mincer went to Nuremberg, which in turn expelled him after he published some revolutionary pamphlets. After wandering through southwestern Germany, Mincer was invited back to Mulhausen in February 1525, where a revolutionary group had taken over. Thomas Mincer and his allies proceeded to impose a communist regime on the city of Mulhausen. The monasteries were seized, and all property was decreed to be in common, and the consequence, as a contemporary observer noted, was that he so affected the folk that no one wanted to work. The result was that the theory of communism and love quickly became, in practice, an alibi for systemic theft. When anyone needed food or clothing, he went to a rich man and demanded it of him in Christ's name, for Christ had commanded that all should share with the needy. And what was not given freely was taken by force. Many acted thus. Thomas Münzer instituted this brigandage and multiplied it every day. At that point, the Great Peasants' War erupted throughout Germany, a rebellion launched by the peasantry in favor of their local autonomy and in opposition to the new centralizing, high-tax, absolutist rule of the German princes. Throughout Germany, the princes crushed the feebly armed peasantry with great brutality, massacring about 100,000 peasants in the process. In Thuringia, the army of the princes confronted the peasants on 15 May with a great deal of artillery and 2,000 cavalry, luxuries denied to the peasantry. The landgrave of Hesse, commander of the prince's army, offered amnesty to the peasants if they would hand over Mincer and his immediate followers. The peasants were strongly tempted, but Mincer, holding aloft his naked sword, gave his last flaming speech, declaring that God had personally promised him victory, that he would catch all the enemy cannonballs in the sleeves of his cloak, that God would protect them all. Just at the strategic moment of Mincer's speech, a rainbow appeared in the heavens, and Mincer had previously adopted the rainbow as the symbol of his movement. To the credulous and confused peasantry, this seemed a veritable sign from heaven. Unfortunately, the sign didn't work, and the prince's army crushed the peasants, killing five thousand while losing only half a dozen men. Mincer himself fled and hid, but was captured a few days later, tortured into confession, and then executed. Thomas Mincer and his signs may have been defeated, and his body may have moldered in the grave, but his soul kept marching on. 
Not only was his spirit kept alive by followers in his own day, but also by Marxist historians from Engels to the present day, who saw in this deluded mystic an epitome of social revolution and the class struggle, and a forerunner of the kiliastic prophecies of the communist stage of the supposedly inevitable Marxian future. The Mintzerian cause was soon picked up by a former disciple, the bookbinder Hans Hut. Hut claimed to be a prophet sent by God to announce that at Whitsuntide, 1528, Christ would return to earth and give the power to enforce justice to Hut and his following of rebaptized saints. The saints would then take up double-edged swords and wreak God's vengeance on priests, pastors, kings, and nobles. Hoot and his followers would then establish the rule of Hans Hoot on earth, with Mulhausen as the favored capital. Christ was then to establish a millennium marked by communism and free love. Hoot was captured in 1527, before Jesus had had a chance to return, imprisoned at Augsburg and killed, trying to escape. For a year or two, Hootian followers kept emerging at Augsburg, Nuremberg, and Esslingen in southern Germany, threatening to set up their communist kingdom of God by force of arms. But by 1530 they were smashed and suppressed by the alarmed authorities. Munzerian-type Anabaptism was now to move to northwestern Germany. 6. Totalitarian Communism in Münster Northwestern Germany in that era was dotted by a number of small ecclesiastical states, each run by a prince-bishop. The state was run by aristocratic clerics who elected one of their own as bishop. Generally, these bishops were secular lords who were not ordained. By bargaining over taxes, the capital city of each of these states had usually wrested for itself a degree of autonomy. The clergy, which constituted the ruling elite of the state, exempted themselves from taxation while imposing very heavy taxes on the rest of the populace. Generally, the capital cities came to be run by their own power elite, an oligarchy of guilds, which used government power to cartelize their various professions and occupations. The largest of these ecclesiastical states in northwest Germany was the bishopric of Münster and its capital city of Münster. A town of some 10,000 people was run by the town guilds. The Münster guilds were particularly exercised by the economic competition of the monks, who were not forced to obey guild restrictions and regulations. During the Peasants' War, the capital cities of several of these states, including Münster, took the opportunity to rise in revolt, and the Bishop of Münster was forced to make numerous concessions. With the crushing of the rebellion, however, the bishop took back the concessions and re-established the old regime. By 1532, however, the guilds, supported by the people, were able to fight back and take over the town, soon forcing the bishop to recognize Münster officially as a Lutheran city. It was not destined to remain so for long, however. 
From all over the Northwest, hordes of Anabaptist enthusiasts flooded into Münster, seeking the onset of the New Jerusalem. From the northern Netherlands came hundreds of Melchiorites, followers of the itinerant visionary Melchior Hoffman. Hoffman, an uneducated furrier's apprentice from Swabia in southern Germany, had for years wandered through Europe preaching the imminence of the Second Coming, which he had concluded from his researches would occur in 1533, the fifteenth centenary of the death of Jesus. Melchiorism had flourished in the northern Netherlands, and many adepts now poured into Münster, rapidly converting the poorer classes of the town. Meanwhile, the Anabaptist cause in Münster received a shot in the arm when the eloquent and popular young minister Bernd Rothman, a highly educated son of a town blacksmith, converted to Anabaptism. Originally a Catholic priest, Rothman had become a friend of Luther and the head of the Lutheran movement in Münster. Converted to Anabaptism, Rothman lent his eloquent preaching to the cause of communism as it had supposedly existed in the primitive Christian church. Holding everything in common, with no mine and thine, and giving to each according to his need. In response to Rothman's reputation, thousands flocked to Münster, hundreds of the poor, the rootless, those hopelessly in debt, and people who, having run through the fortunes of their parents, were earning nothing by their own industry. People in general who were attracted by the idea of plundering and robbing the clergy and the richer burghers. The horrified burghers tried to drive out Rothman and the Anabaptist preachers, but to no avail. In 1533, Melchior Hoffman, sure that the Second Coming would happen any day, returned to Strasbourg, where he had had great success, calling himself the Prophet Elias. He was promptly clapped into jail, and remained there until his death a decade later. Hoffman, for all the similarities with the others, was a peaceful man, who counseled non-violence to his followers. After all, if Jesus were imminently due to return, why commit against unbelievers? Hoffman's imprisonment, and, of course, the fact that 1533 came and went without a second coming, discredited Melchior and so his Münster followers turned to far more violent post-millennialist prophets, who believed that they would have to establish the kingdom by fire and sword. The new leader of the coercive Anabaptists was a Dutch baker from Harlem, one Jan Mathis. Reviving the spirit of Thomas Münzer, Mathis sent out missionaries or apostles from Harlem to rebaptize everyone they could, and to appoint bishops with the power to baptize. When the new apostles reached Münster in early 1534, they were greeted, as we might expect, with enormous enthusiasm. Caught up in the frenzy, even Rothman was rebaptized once again, followed by many ex-nuns and a large part of the population. Within a week, the apostles had rebaptized fourteen hundred people.
Another apostle soon arrived, a young man of twenty-five who had been converted and baptized by Mathis only a couple of months earlier. This was Jan Bakelson, who was soon to become known in song and story as Johann of Leyden. Though handsome and eloquent, Bakelson was a troubled soul, having been born the illegitimate son of the mayor of a Dutch village by a woman serf from Westphalia. Bockelson began life as an apprentice tailor, married a rich widow, but then went bankrupt when he set himself up as a self-employed merchant. In February 1534, Bockelson won the support of the wealthy cloth merchant Bernd Knipperdalink, the powerful leader of the Münster Guilds, and shrewdly married Knipperdalink's daughter. On 8 February, son-in-law and father-in-law ran wildly through the streets together, calling upon everyone to repent. After much frenzy, mass writhing on the ground, and the seeing of apocalyptic visions, the Anabaptists rose up and seized the town hall, winning legal recognition for their movement. In response to this successful uprising, many wealthy Lutherans left town, and the Anabaptists, feeling exuberant, sent messengers to surrounding areas summoning everyone to come to Münster. The rest of the world, they proclaimed, would be destroyed in a month or two. Only Münster would be saved to become the new Jerusalem. Thousands poured in from as far away as Flanders and Frisia in the northern Netherlands. As a result, the Anabaptists soon won a majority on the town council, and this success was followed three days later on 24 February by an orgy of looting of books, statues, and paintings from the churches and throughout the town. Soon Jan Mathis himself arrived, a tall, gaunt man with a long black beard. Mathis, aided by Bockelson, quickly became the virtual dictator of the town. The coercive Anabaptists had at last seized a city. The great communist experiment could now begin. The first mighty program of this rigid theocracy was, of course, to purge the new Jerusalem of the unclean and the ungodly, as a prelude to their ultimate extermination throughout the world. Mathis called, therefore, for the execution of all remaining Catholics and Lutherans, but Knipperdalink's cooler head prevailed, since he warned Mathis that slaughtering all other Christians than themselves might cause the rest of the world to become edgy, and they might all come and crush the new Jerusalem in its cradle. It was therefore decided to do the next best thing, and on 27 February the Catholics and Lutherans were driven out of the city in the midst of a horrendous snowstorm. In a deed prefiguring communist Cambodia, all non-Anabaptists, including old people, invalids, babies, and pregnant women, were driven into the snowstorm, and all were forced to leave behind all their money, property, food, and clothing. The remaining Lutherans and Catholics were compulsorily rebaptized, and all refusing this ministration were put to death. The expulsion of all Lutherans and Catholics was enough for the bishop, who began a long military siege of the town the next day, on 28 February. 
With every person drafted for siege work, Jan Mathis launched his totalitarian communist social revolution. The first step was to confiscate the property of the expelled. All their worldly goods were placed in central depots, and the poor were encouraged to take according to their needs, the needs to be interpreted by seven appointed deacons chosen by Mathis. When a blacksmith protested at these measures imposed by Dutch foreigners, Mathis arrested the courageous smithy. Summoning the entire population of the town, Mathis personally stabbed, shot, and killed the godless blacksmith, as well as throwing into prison several eminent citizens who had protested against his treatment. The crowd was warned to profit by this public execution, and they obediently sang a hymn in honor of the killing. A key part of the Anabaptist reign of terror in Münster was now unveiled. Unerringly, just as in the case of the Cambodian communists four and a half centuries later, the new ruling elite realized that the abolition of the private ownership of money would reduce the population to total slavish dependence on the men of power. And so Mathis, Rothman, and others launched a propaganda campaign that it was unchristian to own money privately, that all money should be held in common, which in practice meant that all money whatsoever must be handed over to Mathis and his ruling clique. Several Anabaptists who kept or hid their money were arrested, and then terrorized into crawling to Mathis on their knees, begging forgiveness and beseeching him to intercede with God on their behalf. Mathis then graciously forgave the sinners. After two months of severe and unrelenting pressure, a combination of propaganda about the Christianity of abolishing private money and threats and terror against those who failed to surrender, the private ownership of money was effectively abolished in Münster. The government seized all the money and used it to buy or hire goods from the outside world. Wages were doled out in kind by the only remaining employer, the theocratic Anabaptist state. Food was confiscated from private homes and rationed according to the will of the government deacons. Also, to accommodate the immigrants, all private homes were effectively communized, with everyone permitted to quarter themselves anywhere. It was now illegal to close, let alone lock, doors. Communal dining halls were established, where people ate together to readings from the Old Testament. This compulsory communism and reign of terror was carried out in the name of community and Christian love. All this communization was considered the first giant steps toward total egalitarian communism, where, as Rothman put it, all things were to be in common, there was to be no private property, and nobody was to do any more work but simply trust in God. The workless part, of course, somehow never arrived. A pamphlet sent in October 1534 to other Anabaptist communities hailed the new order of Christian love through terror. 
For not only have we put all our belongings into a common pool under the care of deacons, and live from it according to our need, we praise God through Christ with one heart and mind, and are eager to help one another with every kind of service. And accordingly, everything which has served the purposes of self-seeking and private property, such as buying and selling, working for money, taking interest and practicing usury, or eating and drinking the sweat of the poor, and indeed everything which offends against love, all such things are abolished amongst us by the power of love and community. With high consistency, the Anabaptists of Munster made no pretense about preserving intellectual freedom while communizing all material property. For the Anabaptists boasted of their lack of education, and claimed that it was the unlearned and the unwashed who would be the elect of the world. The Anabaptist mob took particular delight in burning all the books and manuscripts in the cathedral library, and, finally, in mid-March 1534, Mathis outlawed all books except the good book, the Bible. To symbolize a total break with the sinful past, all privately and publicly owned books were thrown upon a great communal bonfire. All this ensured, of course, that the only theology or interpretation of the Scriptures open to the Munsterites was that of Mathis and the other Anabaptist preachers. At the end of March, however, Mathis' swollen hubris laid him low. Convinced at Easter time that God had ordered him and a few of the faithful to lift the bishop's siege and liberate the town, Mathis and a few others rushed out of the gates at the besieging army, and were literally hacked to pieces. In an age when the idea of full religious liberty was virtually unknown, one can imagine that any Anabaptists whom the more orthodox Christians might get hold of would not earn a very kindly reward. The death of Mathis left Münster in the hands of young Bockelson and if Mathis had chastised the people of Münster with whips, Bockelson would chastise them with scorpions. Bockelson wasted little time in mourning his mentor. He preached to the faithful, God will give you another prophet, who will be more powerful. How could this young enthusiast top his master? Early in May, Bockelson caught the attention of the town by running naked through the streets in a frenzy, falling then into a silent three-day ecstasy. When he rose again, he announced to the entire populace a new dispensation that God had revealed to him. With God at his elbow, Bockelson abolished the old functioning town offices of council and burgomasters, and installed a new ruling council of twelve elders, with himself, of course, as the eldest of the elders. The elders were now given total authority over the life and death, the property and the spirit, of every inhabitant of Münster. A strict system of forced labor was imposed, with all artisans not drafted into the military, now public employees, working for the community for no monetary reward. This meant, of course, that the guilds were now abolished.
The totalitarianism in Munster was now complete. Death was now the punishment for virtually every independent act, good or bad. Capital punishment was decreed for the high crimes of murder, theft, lying, avarice, and quarreling. Also, death was decreed for every conceivable kind of insubordination, the young against their parents, wives against their husbands, and, of course, anyone at all against the chosen representatives of God on earth, the totalitarian government of Münster. Bernd Knipperdalink was appointed high executioner to enforce the decrees. The only aspect of life previously left untouched was sex, and this now came under the hammer of Bockelson's total despotism. The only sexual relation permitted was marriage between two Anabaptists. Sex in any other form, including marriage with one of the godless, was a capital crime. But soon Bockelson went beyond this rather old-fashioned credo and decided to establish compulsory polygamy in Münster. Since many of the expellees had left their wives and daughters behind, Münster now had three times as many marriageable women as men, so that polygamy had become technologically feasible. Bockelson converted the other rather startled preachers by citing polygamy among the patriarchs of Israel, as well as by threatening dissenters with death. Compulsory polygamy was a bit too much for many of the Münsterites, who launched a rebellion in protest. The rebellion, however, was quickly crushed, and most of the rebels put to death. Execution was also the fate of any further dissenters. And so, by August 1534, polygamy was coercively established in Münster. As one might expect, young Bockelson took an instant liking to the new regime, and before long he had a harem of fifteen wives, including Devara, the beautiful young widow of Jan Mathis. The rest of the male population also began to take to the new decree as ducks to water. Many of the women did not take as kindly to the new dispensation, and so the elders passed a law ordering compulsory marriage for every woman under, and presumably also over, a certain age, which usually meant being a compulsory third or fourth wife. Moreover, since marriage among the godless was not only invalid but also illegal, the wives of the expellees now became fair game, and were forced to marry good Anabaptists. Refusal to comply with the new law was punishable, of course, by death, and a number of women were actually executed as a result. Those old wives who resented the new wives coming into their household were also suppressed, and their quarreling was made a capital crime. Many women were executed for quarreling. But the long arm of the state could reach only just so far, and in their first internal setback, Bockelson and his men had to relent and permit divorce. Indeed, the ceremony of marriage was now outlawed totally, and divorce made very easy. As a result, Münster now fell under a regime of what amounted to compulsory free love, 
And so, within the space of only a few months, a rigid Puritanism had been transmuted into a regime of compulsory promiscuity. Meanwhile, Bockelson proved to be an excellent organizer of a besieged city. Compulsory labor, military and civilian, was strictly enforced. The bishop's army consisted of poorly and irregularly paid mercenaries, and Bockelson was able to induce many of them to desert by offering them regular pay, pay for money, that is, in contrast to Bockelson's rigid internal moneyless communism. Drunken ex-mercenaries were, however, shot immediately. When the bishop fired pamphlets into the town offering a general amnesty in return for surrender, Bockelson made reading such pamphlets a crime punishable by, of course, death. At the end of August 1534, the bishop's armies were in disarray, and the siege temporarily lifted. Jan Bockelson seized this opportunity to carry his egalitarian communist revolution one step further. He had himself named King and Messiah of the Last Days. Proclaiming himself King might have appeared tacky and perhaps even illegitimate. And so Bockelson had one Dusenschur, a goldsmith from a nearby town and a self-proclaimed prophet, do the job for him. At the beginning of September, Dusenschur announced to one and all a new revelation. Jan Bockelson was to be king of the whole world, the heir of King David, to keep that throne until God himself reclaimed his kingdom. Unsurprisingly, Bockelson confirmed that he himself had had the very same revelation. Dusenschur then presented a sword of justice to Bockelson, anointed him, and proclaimed him king of the world. Bockelson, of course, was momentarily modest. He prostrated himself and asked guidance from God. But he made sure to get that guidance swiftly. And it turned out, mirabile dictu, that Dusenschur was right. Bockelson proclaimed to the crowd that God had now given him power over all nations of the earth. Anyone who might dare to resist the will of God shall without delay be put to death with the sword. And so, despite a few mumbled protests, Jan Bockelson was declared king of the world and messiah and the Anabaptist preachers of Münster explained to their bemused flock that Bockelson was indeed the Messiah as foretold in the Old Testament. Bockelson was rightfully ruler of the entire world, both temporal and spiritual. It often happens with egalitarians that a hole, a special escape hatch from the drab uniformity of life, is created for themselves and so it was with King Bockelson. It was, after all, important to emphasize in every way the importance of the Messiah's advent, and so Bockelson wore the finest robes, metals, and jewelry. He appointed courtiers and gentlemen-at-arms, who also appeared in splendid finery. King Bockelson's chief wife, Devara, was proclaimed queen of the world, and she too was dressed in great finery and had a suite of courtiers and followers. 
This luxurious court of some two hundred people was housed in fine mansions requisitioned for the occasion. A throne draped with a cloth of gold was established in the public square, and King Bockelson would hold court there, wearing a crown and carrying a scepter. A royal bodyguard protected the entire procession. All Bockelson's loyal aides were suitably rewarded with high status and finery. Knipperdalink was the chief minister, and Rothman royal orator. If communism is the perfect society, somebody must be able to enjoy its fruits, and who better but the Messiah and his courtiers? Though private property and money was abolished, the confiscated gold and silver was now minted into ornamental coins for the glory of the new king. All horses were confiscated to build up the king's armed squadron. Also, names in Münster were transformed. All the streets were renamed. Sundays and feast days were abolished, and all newborn children were named personally by the king in accordance with a special pattern. In a starving slave society such as communist Münster, not all citizens could live in the luxury enjoyed by the king and his court. Indeed, the new ruling class was now imposing a rigid class oligarchy, seldom seen before. So that the king and his nobles might live in high luxury, rigorous austerity was imposed on everyone else in Münster. The subject population had already been robbed of their houses and much of their food. Now all superfluous luxury among the masses was outlawed. Clothing and bedding were severely rationed, and all surplus turned over to King Bockelson under pain of death. Every house was searched thoroughly, and eighty-three wagon-loads of surplus clothing collected. It is not surprising that the deluded masses of Münster began to grumble at being forced to live in abject poverty, while the king and his courtiers lived in extreme luxury on the proceeds of their confiscated belongings. And so Bockelson had to beam them some propaganda to explain the new system. The explanation was this. It was all right for Bockelson to live in pomp and luxury, because he was already completely dead to the world and the flesh. Since he was dead to the world, in a deep sense his luxury didn't count. In the style of every guru who has ever lived in luxury among his credulous followers, he explained that for him material objects had no value. How such logic can ever fool anyone passes understanding. More important, Bockelson assured his subjects that he and his court were only the advance guard of the new order. Soon they, too, would be living in the same millennial luxury. Under their new order, the people of Münster would forge outward, armed with God's will, and conquer the entire world, exterminating the unrighteous, after which Jesus would return, and they would all live in luxury and perfection. Equal communism with great luxury for all would then be achieved. Greater dissent meant, of course, greater terror, 
and King Bockelson's reign of love intensified its intimidation and slaughter. As soon as he proclaimed the monarchy, the prophet Dusenshur announced a new divine revelation. All who persisted in disagreeing with or disobeying King Bockelson would be put to death, and their very memory blotted out. They would be extirpated forever. Some of the main victims to be executed were women, women who were killed for denying their husbands their marital rights, for insulting a preacher, or for daring to practice bigamy, polygamy, of course, being solely a male privilege. Despite his continual preaching about marching forth to conquer the world, King Bockelson was not crazy enough to attempt that feat especially since the bishop's army was again besieging the town. Instead, he shrewdly used much of the expropriated gold and silver to send out apostles and pamphlets to surrounding areas of Europe, attempting to rouse the masses for Anabaptist revolution. The propaganda had considerable effect, and serious mass risings occurred throughout Holland and northwestern Germany during January 1535. A thousand armed Anabaptists gathered under the leadership of someone who called himself Christ, Son of God, and serious Anabaptist rebellions took place in West Frisia, in the town of Minden, and even in the great city of Amsterdam, where the rebels managed to capture the town hall. All these risings were eventually suppressed, with the considerable help of betrayal to the various authorities of the names of the rebels and of the location of their munition dumps. The princes of northwestern Europe by this time had had enough, and all the states of the Holy Roman Empire agreed to supply troops to crush the monstrous and hellish regime at Münster. For the first time in January 1535, Münster was totally and successfully blockaded and cut off from the outside world. The establishment then proceeded to starve the population of Münster into submission. Food shortages appeared immediately, and the crisis was met with characteristic vigor. All remaining food was confiscated, and all horses killed, for the benefit of feeding the king, his royal court, and his armed guards. At all times the king and his court ate and drank well, while famine and devastation raged throughout the town of Münster, and the masses ate literally everything, even inedible, they could lay their hands on. King Bockelson kept his rule by beaming continual propaganda and promises to the starving masses. God would definitely save them by Easter, or else he would have himself burnt in the public square. When Easter came and went, Bockelson craftily explained that he had meant only spiritual salvation. He promised that God would change cobblestones to bread, and, of course, that did not come to pass either. Finally, Bockelson, long fascinated with the theater, ordered his starving subjects to engage in three days of dancing and athletics. Dramatic performances were held, as well as a black mass. Starvation, however, was now becoming all-pervasive. 
The poor, hapless people of Münster were now doomed totally. The bishop kept firing leaflets into the town, promising a general amnesty if the people would only revolt and depose King Bockelson and his court and hand them over. To guard against such a threat, Bockelson stepped up his reign of terror still further. In early May he divided the town into twelve sections, and placed a duke over each one with an armed force of twenty-four men. The dukes were foreigners like himself. As Dutch immigrants they were likely to be loyal to Bockelson. Each duke was strictly forbidden to leave his section, and the dukes in turn prohibited any meetings whatsoever of even a few people. No one was allowed to leave town, and any caught plotting to leave, helping anyone else to leave, or criticizing the king, was instantly beheaded, usually by King Bockelson himself. By mid-June such deeds were occurring daily, with the body often quartered and nailed up as a warning to the masses. Bockelson would undoubtedly have let the entire population starve to death rather than surrender, but two escapees betrayed weak spots in the town's defense, and on the night of 24 June 1535 the nightmare New Jerusalem at last came to a bloody end. The last several hundred Anabaptist fighters surrendered under an amnesty and were promptly massacred, and Queen Devara was beheaded. As for ex-King Bockelson, he was led about on a chain, and the following January, along with Knipperdalink, was publicly tortured to death, and their bodies suspended in cages from a church tower. The old establishment of Münster was duly restored, and the city became Catholic once more. The stars were once again in their courses, and the events of 1534 and 1535 understandably led to an abiding distrust of mysticism and enthusiast movements throughout Protestant Europe. 7. The Roots of Messianic Communism Anabaptist communism did not spring out of thin air at the advent of the Reformation. Its roots can be traced back to an extraordinarily influential late twelfth-century Italian mystic, Joachim of Fiore, 1145-1202. Joachim was an abbot and hermit in Calabria, in southern Italy. It was Joachim who launched the idea that, hidden in the Bible for those who had the wit to see, were prophecies foretelling world history. Concentrating on the murky book of Revelation, Joachim decreed that history was destined to move through three successive ages, each of them ruled by one of the members of the Holy Trinity. The first age, the age of the Old Testament, was the era of the Father, or the Law, the age of fear and servitude. The second age, the era of the Son, was the age of the New Testament, the era of faith and submission. Mystics generally think in threes, and Joachim was moved to herald the coming of the third and final age, the age of the Holy Spirit, the era of perfect joy, love, and freedom, and the end of human history. 
It would be the age of the end of property, because everyone would live in voluntary poverty, and everyone could easily do so because there would be no work, since people would be totally liberated from their physical bodies. Possessing only spiritual bodies, there would be no need to eat food or do much else either. The world would be, in the paraphrase of Norman Cohn, one vast monastery in which all men would be contemplative monks wrapped continuously in mystical ecstasy until the day of the last judgment. Joachim's vision already resonates with the later Marxian dialectic of the three allegedly inevitable stages of history, primitive communism, class society, and then, finally, the realm of perfect freedom, total communism, and the withering away of the division of labor and the end of human history. As with so many Kiliasts, Joachim was sure of the date of the advent of the final age, and, typically, it was coming soon, in his view sometime in the first half of the next, the thirteenth century. The Joachite bizarreries quickly exerted enormous influence, particularly in Italy, in Germany, and in the rigorist wing of the new Franciscan order. A new ingredient to this witch's brew was added a little later by a learned professor of theology at the great University of Paris at the end of the twelfth century. Once a great favorite of the French royal court, Amalric's odd doctrines were condemned by the Pope, and after a forced public recantation, Amalric died shortly thereafter in 1206 or 1207. His doctrines were then picked up by a small secret group of erudite clerical disciples, the Amarians, most of whom had been students in theology at Paris. Centered at the important commercial cloth-making town of Troyes in Champagne, the Amarian missionaries influenced many people and distributed popular works of theology in the vernacular. Their leader was the priest William Arifex, who was either a goldsmith or an alchemist attempting to transform base metals into gold. Subjected to espionage by the Bishop of Paris, the fourteen Amorians were all rounded up and either imprisoned for life or burnt at the stake, depending on whether they recanted their heresies. Most of them refused to recant. The Amarians, like Joachim, propounded the three ages of human history, but they added some spice to it. Each age apparently enjoyed its own incarnation. For the Old Testament, it was Abraham, and perhaps some other patriarchs. For the New Testament, the incarnation was, of course, Jesus. And now, for the dawning age of the Holy Spirit, the incarnation would now emerge in human beings themselves. As might be expected, the Amarians considered themselves the new incarnation. In other words, they proclaimed themselves as living gods, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Not that they would always remain a divine elite among men. On the contrary, they were destined to lead mankind to its universal incarnation.
The congeries of groups throughout northern Europe in the 14th century, known as the Brethren of the Free Spirit, added another important ingredient to the stew. The dialectic of reabsorption into God, derived from the 3rd century Platonist philosopher Plotinus. Plotinus had had his own three stages— the original unity with God, the human history stage of degradation and separation or alienation from God, and the final return or reabsorption as all human beings are submerged into the one and history is finished. The brethren of the free spirit added a new elitist twist. While the reabsorption of every man must await the end of history, and the crude in spirit must meanwhile meet their individual deaths, there was a glorious minority, the subtle in spirit, who could and did become reabsorbed and therefore living gods during their lifetime. This minority, of course, were the brethren themselves, who, by virtue of years of training, self-torture, and visions, had become perfect gods, more perfect and more godlike than even Christ himself. Once this stage of mystical union was reached, furthermore, it was permanent and eternal. These new gods often proclaimed themselves greater than God himself, Thus a group of female free spirits at Schweidnitz claimed to be able to dominate the Holy Trinity such that they could ride it as in a saddle, and one of these women declared that when God created all things, I created all things with him. I am more than God. Man himself, therefore, or at least a gifted minority of men, could lift themselves up to divine status by their own efforts, far earlier than their fellows. Being living gods on earth brought many good things in its wake. In the first place, it led directly to an extreme form of the antinomian heresy. If people are gods, then it is impossible for them to sin. Whatever they do is necessarily moral and perfect. That means that any act ordinarily considered as sin, from adultery to murder, becomes perfectly legitimate when performed by the living gods. Indeed, the free spirits, like other antinomians, were tempted to demonstrate and flaunt their freedom from sin by performing all manner of sins imaginable. But there was also a catch. Among the free-spirit cultists only a minority of leading adepts were living gods. For the rank-and-file cultists striving to become gods, there was one sin alone which they must not commit—disobedience to their master. Each disciple was bound by an oath of absolute obedience to a particular living god. Take, for example, Nicholas of Basel, a leading free-spirit guru whose cult stretched most of the length of the Rhine. Claiming to be the new Christ, Nicholas held that everyone's sole path to salvation is making an act of absolute and total submission to Nicholas himself. In return for this total fealty, Nicholas granted his followers freedom from all sin.
As for the rest of mankind outside the cults, they were simply unredeemed and unregenerate beings, who existed only to be used and exploited by the elect. This attitude of total rule went hand in hand with the social doctrine many free-spirit cults adopted in the fourteenth century, a communistic assault on the institution of private property. In essence, however, that philosophic communism was a thinly camouflaged cover for their, the free spirit's, self-proclaimed right to commit theft at will. The free spirit adept, in short, regarded all property of the non-elect as rightfully his own. As the Bishop of Strasbourg summed it up in 1317, they believe that all things are common, whence they conclude that theft is lawful for them. Or, as the free spirit adept from Erfurt, Johann Hartmann, put it, the truly free man is king and lord of all creatures. All things belong to him, and he has the right to use whatever pleases him. If anyone tries to prevent him, the free man may kill him and take his goods. As one of the favorite sayings of the brethren of the free spirit put it, whatever the eye sees and covets, let the hand grasp it. The final ingredient for the revolutionary communist Munzer Munster stew came with the extreme Taborites of the early fifteenth century. All Taborites constituted the radical wing of the Hussite movement, a pre-Protestant revolutionary movement that blended struggles of religion, anti-Catholic, nationality, Czech versus upper-class and upper-clergy German, and class, artisans cartelized in guilds trying to take political power from the patricians. The new ingredient added by the extreme wing of the Taborites was the duty to exterminate. For the last days are coming, and the elect must go out and stamp out sin by exterminating all sinners, which means, at the very least, all non-Taborites. For all sinners are enemies of Christ, and accursed be the man who withholds his sword from shedding the blood of the enemies of Christ. Every believer must wash his hands in that blood. Having that mindset, the extreme Taborites were not going to stop at intellectual destruction. When sacking churches and monasteries, the Taborites took particular delight in destroying libraries and burning books. For all belongings must be taken away from God's enemies and burned or otherwise destroyed. Besides, the elect have no need for books. When the kingdom of God on earth arrived, there would no longer be need for anyone to teach another. There would be no need for books or scriptures, and all worldly wisdom will perish. And all people, too, one suspects. Moreover, elaborating anew the theme of a return to a lost golden age, the ultra-Taborites proposed to return to the allegedly early Czech condition of communism, a society with no private property. In order to achieve this classless society, the cities in particular, those centers of luxury and avarice, and especially the merchants and the landlords, must be exterminated. 
after the elect have established their communist kingdom of God in Bohemia by revolutionary violence, their task would be to forge and impose such communism on the rest of the world. In addition to material property, the bodies of the faithful would have to be communized as well. The Taborite ultras were nothing if not logical. Their preachers taught, Everything will be common, including wives. There will be free sons and daughters of God, and there will be no marriage as union of two, husband and wife. The Hussite Revolution broke out in 1419, and in that same year the Taborites gathered in the town of Eusti, in northern Bohemia, near the German border. They renamed Eusti Tabor, that is, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus had foretold his second coming, had ascended to heaven, and where he was expected to reappear. The Taborites engaged in a communist experiment at Tabor, owning everything in common, and dedicated to the proposition that whoever owns private property commits a mortal sin. True to their doctrines, all women were owned in common, while if husband and wife were ever seen together, they were beaten to death or otherwise executed. Unfortunately, but characteristically, the Taborites were so caught up in their unlimited right to consume from the common store that they felt themselves exempt from the need to work. The common store soon disappeared, and then what? Then, of course, the radical Taborites claimed that their need entitled them to claim the property of the non-elect, and they proceeded to rob others at will. As a synod of the moderate Taborites complained, many communities never think of earning their own living by the work of their hands, but are only willing to live on other people's property and to undertake unjust campaigns for the sole purpose of robbing. And the Taborite peasantry, who did not join the communes, found the radical regime reimposing feudal dues and bonds only six months after they had abolished them. Discredited among themselves, their more moderate allies, and their own peasantry, the communist regime of the radicals at Eusti Tabor soon collapsed. The torch of frenetic mystical communism was soon picked up, however, by a sect known as Bohemian Adamites. Like the free spirits of the previous century, the Adamites held themselves to be living gods, superior to Christ, since Christ had died, whereas they still lived. Impeccable logic, if a bit short-sighted. Yet, in a curious contradiction, the founder of the Adamites, the former priest Peter Kanish, had already been captured and burnt by the Hussite military commander, John Sitska. The Adamites dubbed the dead Kanish Jesus, and then selected as their leader a peasant whom they called Adam Moses. For the Adamites not only were all goods strictly owned in common, but marriage was considered a heinous sin. In short, promiscuity was compulsory, since the chaste were unworthy to enter the messianic kingdom. Any man could choose any woman at will, and that will would have to be obeyed. 
The Adamites also went around naked most of the time, imitating the original state of Adam and Eve. On the other hand, promiscuity was at one and the same time compulsory and restricted, because sex could only take place with the permission of the leader, Adam Moses. Like the other radical Taborites, the Adamites regarded it as their sacred mission to exterminate all the unbelievers in the world, wielding the sword until blood floods the world to the height of a horse's bridle. They were God's scythe, sent to cut down and eradicate the unrighteous. The Adamites took refuge from the Tzitzka forces on an island in the river Netzarka, from which they went forth in commando raids to try their best, despite their small number, to fulfill their twin pledge of compulsory communism and extermination of the non-elect. At night they sallied forth in raids, which they called a holy war, to steal everything they could lay their hands on, and then to exterminate their victims. True to their creed, they murdered every man, woman, and child they could discover. Finally, Tsitska sent a force of four hundred trained soldiers, who besieged the Adamites' island, and finally, in October 1421, overwhelmed the commune and massacred every single person. One more hellish kingdom of God on earth had been put to the sword. The Taborite army was crushed by the moderate Hussites at the Battle of Lipan in 1434, and from then on, Taborism declined and went underground. But it continued to emerge here and there, not only among the Czechs, but in Bavaria and other German lands bordering Bohemia. The stage was set for the Münzer-Münster phenomenon of the following century. 8. Non-Scholastic Catholics Turning from the Protestants and the Anabaptist extremists, there were some Catholics during the 16th century who were not scholastics, and who did not participate in the Reformation struggles, but who contributed significantly to the development of economic thought. One of these was a universal genius whose new way of viewing the world has stamped itself on world history, the Pole Nicholas Copernicus, 1473-1543. Copernicus was born in Torn, Torinia, part of royal Prussia, then a subject state of the Kingdom of Poland. He came from a well-to-do and even distinguished family, his father being a wholesale merchant and his uncle and mentor the Bishop of Ermelant. Copernicus proved an inveterate student and theorist in many areas, studying mathematics at the University of Krakow, becoming a skilled painter, studying canon law and astronomy at the famous University of Bologna. Becoming a cleric, Copernicus was named canon of the cathedral at Frauenburg at the age of twenty-four, but then took leave to lecture at Rome and to study in several fields. He then earned a doctor's degree in canon law at the University of Ferrara in 1503, and a medical degree at the University of Padua two years later. He became physician to his uncle, the bishop, and later served full-time as canon of the cathedral. 
Meanwhile, as an avocation in the course of his busy life, this remarkable theorist elaborated the new system of astronomy that the Earth and other planets rotated around the sun, rather than vice versa. Copernicus turned his attention to monetary affairs when King Sigismund I of Poland asked him to offer proposals for reform of the tangled currency of the area. Since the 1460s, Prussian Poland, where Copernicus lived, was the home of three different currencies, that of Royal Prussia, the Polish kingdom itself, and that of Prussia of the Teutonic Order. None of the governments maintained a single standard of weight. The Teutonic Order, in particular, kept debasing and circulating cheaper money. Copernicus finished his paper in 1517, and it was delivered to the Royal Prussian Assembly in 1522, and published four years later. Copernicus' proposals were not adopted, but the resulting booklet, Monetae Cudendi Ratio, 1526, made important contributions to monetary thought. In the first place, Copernicus strengthened the exposition of Gresham's Law, first set forth by Nicole Orem a century and a half earlier. Like Orem, he began with the insight that money is a measure of common market value. He then proceeded to show that if its value is fixed by the state, money fixed artificially cheaply will tend to drive out the dearer. Thus Copernicus declared that it is impossible for good, full-weighted coin and base and degraded coin to circulate together, that all the good coin is hoarded, melted down or exported, and the degraded coin alone remains in circulation. He also pointed out that in theory the government could keep adjusting the legal values of two monies in accordance with fluctuating market values, but that in practice the government would find this too complex a task. In the course of his discussion, Copernicus also became the first person to set forth clearly the quantity theory of money the theory that prices vary directly with the supply of money in the society. He did so thirty years before as Pilqueta Navarras, and without the stimulus of an inflationary influx of specie from the New World to stimulate his thinking on the subject. Copernicus was still being a theorist par excellence, the causal chain began with debasement, which raised the quantity of the money supply, which in turn raised prices. The supply of money, he pointed out, is the major determinant of prices. We, in our sluggishness, he maintained, do not realize that the dearness of everything is the result of the cheapness of money, for prices increase and decrease according to the condition of the money. An excessive quantity of money, he opined, should be avoided. Another non-scholastic Catholic who contributed to economic thought in the 16th century was a fascinating Italian character named Gianfrancesco Lotini da Volterra, died 1548, who began the Italian emphasis on analysis of value and utility. 
In a sense, Lotini was an archetypal Renaissance man, learned Aristotelian scholar, secretary to Cosimo I de' Medici, Duke of Florence, unscrupulous politician, and leader of a Venetian murder ring. At the end of his life, in 1548, Lotini published his Avedimenti Civili, in the Italian tradition, see further in chapter 6, of writing a handbook of advice to princes. The Avedimenti was the work of an elder statesman dedicated to Francesco, the Medici Grand Duke of Tuscany. Lotini investigated consumer demand, and pointed out that the valuation of consumers was rooted in the pleasure they could derive from the various goods. In a new hedonistic emphasis, he pointed out that pleasure comes from satisfying man's needs. While counseling the use of moderation, an Aristotelian theme, regulated by reason in satisfying desires, Lotini lamented that some people's wants and demands seem to be infinite. I have known many whose demand could not be satisfied. As in the case of several predecessors, Lotini saw the fact of time preference. People evaluate present goods higher than future goods, that is, than present expectations of attaining these goods in the future. Unfortunately, Lotini gave to this perfectly reasonable and ineluctable fact of nature a moralistic twist. Somehow, this was an improper overestimation of present and underestimation of future goods. This unwarranted moralistic critique was to plague economic thought in the future. As Lotini phrased it, the present, which is before our eyes, and which can, so to speak, be grasped with our hands, has forced, more often than not, even wise men to pay more attention to the nearest satisfaction than to hope for the far future. The reasons for this universal fact of time preference are that people pay more attention to things they can perceive with their senses than things they can learn of by reason, and that only a few people follow a long-lasting and risky project stubbornly to its end. In the first reason, Lotini begs the question, the problem is not senses versus reason, but something evident to the senses now versus what is only expected to be evident at some time in the future. His second reason is more on the mark. The emphasis on the long-lasting touches on the crucial problem of length of waiting time, and the word risky brings another and critical factor into play— the degree of risk that the object will never become evident to the senses at all. Lotini's work went into several editions shortly after his death, and a copy has been found belonging to the great English poet and theologian John Donne, 1573-1631, whose marginal notes reveal the Aristotelian influence upon Donne. Successor to Lotini was Bernardo Davanzati, 1529-1606, a Florentine merchant, erudite classicist, and renowned translator of Tacitus, and an arch-Catholic historian of the Reformation in England. 
At the age of seventeen, young Davanzati became a member of the Florentine Academy. In two works, written in lively Italian style in 1582, and especially in his Lezioni delle Moneta, 1588, Davanzati applied the scholastic type of utility analysis to the theory of money. Thus Davanzati approached and solved, with the exception of the marginal element, the paradox of value, comparing demand and scarcity. Davanzati also followed Bourdin in developing what would later be the excellent analysis by Karl Menger, father of the Austrian school in the late 19th century, of the origin of money. Men, wrote Davanzati, need many things for the maintenance of life, but climates and people's skills differ. Hence there arises a division of labor in society. All goods are therefore produced, distributed, and enjoyed by means of exchange. Barter was soon found to be inconvenient, and so locations for exchange developed, such as fairs and markets. After that, people agreed, but here Davanzati was cloudy on how this agreement took place, to use a certain commodity as money that is, as a medium for all exchanges. First, gold and silver were used in lump pieces, then they were weighed, and then stamped to show weight and fineness in the form of coins. Unfortunately, in his later historical sketch of the theory of money, Menger was ungracious enough to dismiss Davanzati brusquely as simply someone who traces the origin of money back to the authority of the state. 9. Radical Huguenots Calvin began his own reformation after Luther but it rapidly swept through Western Europe, triumphing not only in Switzerland, but more importantly in the Dutch Netherlands, the main commercial and financial center of Europe in the seventeenth century, and coming within a hair's breadth of dominating Great Britain and France. In Britain, Scotland was conquered by Calvinism in the form of the Presbyterian Church, and Calvinist Puritanism heavily influenced the Anglican Church and almost conquered England in the mid-seventeenth century. France was rent by religious political wars during the last four decades of the sixteenth century, and the Calvinists, known as Huguenots, were not far from triumphing there. Though converting no more than five percent of the population, the Huguenots were extremely influential in the nobility and in pockets in northern and southwestern France. John Calvin, fully as much as Luther, preached the doctrine of absolute obedience and non-resistance to duly constituted government, regardless of how evil that government may be. But Calvin's embattled followers, enjoying rising aspirations against non-Calvinist rulers, developed justifications for resistance to evil rulers. These were first set forth in the 1550s by the English Marian exiles in Switzerland and Germany during the reign of the last Catholic monarch in England, Queen Mary. This radical tradition, including the people's right to tyrannicide, was carried on by the Huguenots in the following decades.
Stimulated by the horror of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, the Huguenots promptly developed libertarian theories of radical resistance against the tyranny of the crown. Some of the most notable writings are the jurist François Hautemont's 1524-1590 Franco-Gallia, written in the late 1560s but first published in 1573, the anonymous Political Discourses, 1574, and the culminating work at the end of the 1570s by Philippe Duplessis Mornay, 1549-1623, The Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants, 1579. Defending tyrannicide in particular was the Political Discourses, which bitterly attacked the so-called theologians and preachers who asserted that no one may ever lawfully kill a tyrant without a special revelation from God. The other Huguenot writers, however, were far more cautious on this touchy issue. Furthermore, three decades before the radical Spanish scholastic Juan de Mariana, the Huguenots advanced a pre-Lockean theory of popular sovereignty. In particular, Hautemann warned that a people's transference of their right to rule to the king can in no way be permanent or irrevocable. On the contrary, the people and their representative bodies have the right of continual surveillance of the king, as well as of taking away his power at any time. Not only that, but the state's general is supposed to have continuing day-to-day -day power to rule. Hautemann won general Huguenot acceptance of this new creed by cloaking it in terms of Jean Calvin's original, quite contrasting, political doctrine. But Hautemann's argument for original popular rule was strictly historical, and the counterattacks of the royalist writers soon riddled the historical account with gross distortions. It was necessary for the Huguenots to abandon the original Calvinist council of total civil obedience and construct a natural law theory of the original sovereignty of the people, preceding the consensual transfer to kingly rule. In short, the Huguenots had to rediscover and reappropriate the scholastic tradition of their hated Catholic opponents, Thus, in contrast to the preaching style and emphasis on divine will of the Marian exiles, Mornay and other Huguenots wrote in a logical, scholastic style, and explicitly referred to Aquinas and to codifiers of the Roman law. In short, as Professor Skinner writes, there was no Calvinist theory of revolution in the sixteenth century. Paradoxically, the French Calvinists pioneered the development of a revolutionary theory of popular rule by grounding themselves in the natural law tradition of their Catholic adversaries. Furthermore, Occamite scholastics at Paris, for example, Jean Gerson in the early 15th century and the Englishman John Major in the early 16th, pioneered specifically the concept of sovereignty which always inheres in the people and which they can therefore take back from the king at any time.
One of the pernicious effects on scholarship of Max Weber's Protestant, actually Calvinist, ethic as the creator of capitalism has already been seen. The neglect of the actual rise of capitalism in Catholic Italy, as well as in Antwerp and southern Germany. Another associated Weberian fallacy is the popular idea of Calvinism as modern and revolutionary, as the creator of radical and democratic political thought. But we have seen that Calvinist and Protestant political thought was originally statist and absolutist. Calvinism only became revolutionary and anti-tyrannical under the pressure of opposing Catholic regimes, which drove the Calvinists back to natural law and popular sovereignty, motifs in Catholic scholastic thought. An important strand of popular sovereignty was worked out by Theodore Beza, 1519-1605, Calvin's leading disciple and successor at Geneva. The great Beza, influenced by Hautemont, published The Right of Magistrates in 1574. Beza insisted that natural law revealed that the people logically and temporally preceded their rulers, so that political power originated in the body of the people. It is self-evident, Beza declared, that peoples do not come from rulers and are not created by them. Hence the people originally decided to transfer governing powers to the rulers. An influential radical Huguenot pamphlet, The Awakener, 1574, repeated Beza's argument. The Awakener was probably written by the eminent French jurist Hugues Donneau. Man could not be naturally in subjection, the Awakener pointed out, for assemblies and groups of men existed everywhere before the creation of kings, and even today it is possible to find a people without a magistrate, but never a magistrate without a people. If man is not to be naturally free, but naturally enslaved, then we must absurdly conclude that the people must have been created by their magistrates, when it is obvious, to the contrary, that magistrates are always created by the people. As usual, Philippe Duplessis Mornay summed up the position with trenchant clarity. No one, he observed, is a king by nature. And furthermore, and with particular point, a king cannot rule without a people, while a people can rule itself without a king. Hence it is evident that the people must have preceded the existence of kings or positive laws, and then later submitted themselves to their dominion. Hence man's natural condition must be liberty, and we must possess freedom as a natural right, a right that can never be justifiably removed. As Mornay put it, we are all free by nature, born to hate servitude, and desirous of commanding rather than yielding obedience. Further, continuing this proto-Lockean analysis, the people must have submitted themselves to governmental rule to promote their well-being. 
Following John Major, Mornay was clear that the kind of well-being the people advanced in setting up government was to protect their individual natural rights. To Mornay, as to Major, a right over something was being free to hold and dispose of it, that is, a right in the object as property. The people retain such rights when they establish polities, which they willingly create in order to ensure greater security for their property. These rights of property include the natural right of everyone in their own persons and their liberties. Governments are supposed to maintain those rights, but often become the main transgressors. Mornay was careful to point out that the people, in establishing governments, cannot alienate their sovereignty. Instead, they always remain in the position of the owner of their sovereignty, which they merely delegate to the ruler. The whole people, therefore, continues to be greater than the king and is above him. On the other hand, Mornay and the other Huguenots were constrained to temper their revolutionary radicalism. First, they made it clear in a manner wholly consistent with their view that the whole people retain their sovereignty, that the people are not really the people as a whole, but their representatives in the magistrates and the states-general. The people have necessarily given their sword to these institutions, and therefore, when we speak of the people collectively, we mean those who receive authority from the people, that is, the magistrates below the king and the assembly of the estates. Moreover, in practice, these alleged representatives keep the enforcement of the king's promises in their hands, since that power of enforcement is a property of the authorities that have the power of the people in them. Furthermore, according to the Huguenots, the sovereign right is only in the people as a whole and not in any individual, so that tyrannicide by one subject is never permissible. The people as a whole are above the king, but the king is above any single individual. More concretely, since sovereignty rests in the institutions of duly constituted assemblies or magistrates, only these institutions embodying the sovereign power of the people can properly resist the tyranny of the king. In a few short years, the rebellion of the Dutch against Spanish rule reached a climax in 1580 and 1581, an anonymous Calvinist pamphlet, A True Warning, appeared in Antwerp in 1581, which asserted that God has created men free, and that the only power over men is whatever they themselves have granted. If the king breaks the conditions of his rule, then the people's representatives have the right and the duty to depose him and to resume their original rights. The leader of the Dutch rebellion, William the Silent, Prince of Orange, adopted the same view in these same years, both in his own apology presented to the States-General at the end of 1580, and in the official Edict of the States-General issued the following July. 
It should be noted that the Apology was largely written by Mornay and other Huguenot advisers. The edict declared that the king of Spain had forfeited his sovereignty, and that the United Netherlands had at last been obliged, in conformity with the law of nature, to exercise their unquestioned right to resist tyranny and to pursue such means as necessary to secure their rights, privileges, and liberties. 10. George Buchanan Radical Calvinist. The most fascinating as well as the most radical of the Calvinist theorists of the late sixteenth century was not a French Huguenot, but a Scot, who spent most of his time in France. George Buchanan, fifteen o six to fifteen eighty two, was a distinguished humanist historian and poet who taught Latin at the Collège de Guyenne in Bordeaux. Buchanan was trained in scholastic philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in the mid-1520s, where he studied under the great John Major. An early convert to Calvinism, Buchanan became a friend of Beza and of Mornay, and served as a member of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. British Calvinist thinkers of the 1550s, refugees from the Catholic rule of Queen Mary, had worked out in exile a justification for rebellion against tyranny in terms of the godly against idolatry. It remained to restate revolutionary theory in secular, natural rights terms, rather than in the strictly religious concepts of godliness and heresy. This feat was accomplished by the Scot, George Buchanan, in the midst of a struggle of the Calvinist majority of Scotland against their Catholic queen. A revolution in 1560 had conquered the Scottish Parliament for Calvinism in a now overwhelmingly Calvinist country, and seven years later the Calvinists deposed the Catholic queen, Mary Stuart. In the course of this struggle, Buchanan, in 1567, began to draft his great work, The Right of the Kingdom in Scotland, which he published in 1579. Parts of Buchanan's argument appeared in speeches delivered by the new Scottish regent James Stuart, Earl of Moray, in 1568, and then in discussions between the Scottish and English governments three years later. Buchanan began, like the Huguenots, with the state of nature and a social contract by the people with their rulers, a contract in which they retained their sovereignty and their rights. But there were two major differences. In the first place, Beza and Mornay had talked of two such contracts, a political social contract and a religious covenant to act as a godly people. With Buchanan, the religious covenant drops out totally, and we are left with the political contract alone. Some historians have interpreted Buchanan's radical step as secularizing politics into an independent political science. More accurately, Buchanan emancipated political theory from the directly divine or theological concerns of the Protestant founders, and returned it to its earlier base in natural law and in human rights. 
More radically, Buchanan swept away the entire inconsistent Huguenot baggage of the people, virtually alienating their sovereignty to intermediate representatives. On the contrary, for Buchanan the people consent to and contract with a ruler, and retain their sovereign rights, with no mention of intermediate assemblies. But this puts far more revolutionary implications on natural rights and popular sovereignty. For then, when a king becomes tyrannical and violates his task to safeguard individual rights, this means that the whole body of the people, and even individual citizens, may be said to have the authority to resist and kill a legitimate ruler in defense of their rights. Thus, over two decades before the Spanish Jesuit de Mariana, George Buchanan had arrived for the first time at a truly individualist theory of natural rights and sovereignty, and therefore a justification for individual acts of tyrannicide. Thus, in what Professor Skinner calls a highly individualist and even anarchic view of political resistance, Buchanan stressed that since the people as a body create their ruler, it is possible at any time for the people to shake off whatever imperium they may have imposed on themselves, the reason being that anything which is done by a given power can be undone by a like power. Furthermore, Buchanan adds that since each individual must be pictured as agreeing to the formation of the commonwealth for his own greater security and benefit, it follows that the right to kill or remove a tyrant must be lodged at all times, not only with the whole body of the people, but even with every individual citizen." So he willingly endorses the almost anarchic conclusion that even when, as frequently happens, someone from amongst the lowest and meanest of men decides to revenge the pride and insolence of a tyrant by simply taking upon himself the right to kill him, such actions are often judged to have been done quite rightly. We have seen that the Spanish Jesuit Juan de Mariana developed a similar theory of Lockean popular sovereignty and of individual tyrannicide two decades later. As a scholastic, he too had a natural law contract and not any religious covenant at the base of his theory. Skinner ably concludes that the Jesuit Mariana may thus be said to link hands with the Protestant Buchanan in stating a theory of popular sovereignty, which, while scholastic in its origins and Calvinist in its later development, was in essence independent of either religious creed, and was thus available to be used by all parties in the coming constitutional struggles of the seventeenth century. More typical, however, of the dominant strand of radical Calvinism emerging from the sixteenth century was the distinguished Dutch jurist Johannes Althusius, 1557-1638, his magnum opus was his treatise of 1603, Politics Methodically Set Forth. Althusius built upon and was similar to Mornay and the Huguenot theorists. 
With them he retained the pre-Lockean popular sovereignty with consensual revocable delegation to the king, and also with them he mediated that sovereignty through representative assemblies and associations. In addition, the justification of individual tyrannicide disappears. However, one innovation of Buchanan's was retained in Althusius' massive treatise, the dropping of any religious covenant. Indeed, Althusius is more explicit, attacking theologians for infusing their political writings with teachings on Christian piety and charity, and failing to realize that these matters are improper and alien to political doctrine. 11. Leaguers and Politiques While the Huguenot monarchomachs have been far more extensively studied than their Catholic counterparts of the late 16th century, the latter are an interesting and neglected group. After the accession of King Henry III in 1574, it began to be clear that the Huguenots were no longer in danger of annihilation, and that on the contrary it seemed that Henry was soft on Protestants. This softness became an acute problem for the Catholics of France in 1584 when the death of the heir to the throne, the Duke d'Alencon, brought into the first line of succession Henry of Navarre, a committed Calvinist. This threat brought into being the Catholic League, especially in Paris, then the heartland of French Catholicism. The League, headed throughout France by the Duc de Guise, rebelled against Henry and drove him out of Paris. As we have seen, Henry's treacherous assassination of Guise and his brother the Cardinal during a peace parley led to a mighty act of tyrannicide, in which the young Dominican priest, Jacques Clément, on 1 August 1589, avenged the Guises by assassinating Henry III. Paris, under the Catholic League, was run by a council of sixteen, supported by the middle classes, professionals, and businessmen, and backed fervently by virtually all the priests and curés in the city. The most radical of the leaguer thinkers who flourished during the 1580s and 1590s was a leading attorney, François Le Breton, who in his Remonstrance to the Third Estate, 1586, bitterly attacked the king as a hypocrite, advocated a French republic, and called for revolution and civil war to attain it. Le Breton was promptly executed by the Parliament, the leading judicial organ in France. The rebellion of the Catholic League, which culminated in the revolt of Paris and other parts of France, was not only motivated by concern over the possible imposition of a minority Huguenot faith upon the Catholic French. Leaguer grievances were political and economic, as well as religious. Henry III, the last Valois king, had imposed upon his country a huge amount of pillage, a very high tax burden, and large amounts of expense, offices, and subsidies. Huge taxes were particularly levied upon the city of Paris. But Father Clément's act, however heroic, proved in the end to be counterproductive. 
For the first Bourbon, Henry of Navarre, assumed the throne as Henry IV. Realizing that he could scarcely remain a Huguenot and still govern France, Henry, after four years of war, converted to Catholicism, supposedly explaining in a probably apocryphal phrase that Paris is worth a mass. Henry IV had won. With the advent of the new Bourbon king came the rule of the centrist or moderate Catholics, the politiques, the politicals. Whether one might call Henry IV and the politiques moderates depends on one's perspective. As secularists and men of feeble faith, it is true that the politiques were not interested in slaughtering Huguenots, and were anxious to end the religious conflict as soon as possible. Henry did so in his toleration decree, the Edict of Nantes, in 1598. In that sense, the politiques were middle-of-the-roaders, in between the two religious extremes, the Huguenots and the Catholic leaguers and that is the light that most historians have shed upon them. But in another important sense, the politiques were not moderate at all. They were truly extreme in desiring to give all power to the absolute state and to its embodiment in the king of France. In triumphing over both extremes, Henry IV and the politiques rode roughshod over the only two groups who had called for resistance against royal tyranny. The victory of Henry also meant the end of French resistance to royal absolutism. Unchecked despotic rule by the Bourbons was now to be France's lot for two centuries, until it was brought to a violent end by the French Revolution. It was a high price indeed to pay for religious concord, especially since Louis XIV, the Sun King, the embodiment of French royal despotism, revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685, and thereby drove many Huguenots out of France. In the long run, the religious peace of absolutist moderation turned out to be the peace of the grave for many Huguenots.